Your journey continues on the enigmatic episode 100 spectacular of So Many Insane Plays. All right, Steve, from one fun one to another, but in a completely different way, I would argue. Next up is Instill Energy. Now, this one is a subtly unique effect in the context of Alpha. It's another aura, costs a green, enchant creature. You may untap target creature both during your untap phase and one additional time during your turn. Target creature may also attack the turn it comes into play. Now, that wording, in my opinion, is hopeless. Um, But the idea here, you get the idea, and it's strongly due to modern interpretation, that this thing has haste in the modern context. And, well, okay, it can attack as though it has haste, which is a, a distinction that was added, and we can talk about that. But then you can untap it again. I think there's a whole lot of fun interpretive uh, elements that we could discuss here, Steve, but I also know that there's just a lot of uh, strategic uh, implications for Instill Energy that have existed from the beginning and then throughout the years. So uh, back to you. Where do you want to begin? Well, before we dive into it, I think it's illuminating to contrast it with the the Gamma version, whose text, (laughs) the text of that is an enchant creature at, at one green that simply says creature is never tapped from attack. So... So wow, that's so it was just Vigilance then. Vigilance, right, just Vigilance. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> so Interesting. You, you go from haste to from Vigilance to Haste, which is, to me, incredibly functionally different Yeah. Um, in, in ways that are I, I, too numerous to, to delve into <laughs> off the bat. Um, but Instill Energy really has one, well, it has an infamous use, and then it has a kind of gener- a more pragmatic, uh, notorious use. Yeah, the most yeah. infamous place for instill energy is that it was part of a three-part combination, the trifecta, that got the first magic card <laughs> banned, not for power level reasons, and that right. was, of course, Kevin. Uh, we're talking about animating a time vault, right? Absolutely. And turning it, turning it into a creature, and then putting instill energy on it to take unbonded turns. Exactly. The original, the original, <laughs> the time original vault key combo. vault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and I mean, Morrow wrote about this back in the day. It, it just wasn't that difficult to get that combo going. Surprisingly, because I mean, just about every removal spell in existence deals with it. But <laughs> I, I think it was still viewed as just obnoxious and nefarious and, and, and they banned it, uh, yeah. three card combo. So, so that's instill energy's, I think, most famous, notorious, infamous use. But probably the most, more widespread use is in combination, or just basically to get around a stasis. So if you put this onto a Birds of Paradise, you can basically keep the stasis out there indefinitely. Um, I said stasis, right? Yeah. Stasis indefinitely. Now, the issue is it's still fairly intensive. And by the way, in a straight blue-green deck, you can do all those things very nicely, right? You can play Time Vault and Stasis. Remember Rich Chase? Do you remember? Did you play in the Legacy Grand Prix we played? I think it was like 2006, Kevin, where we all ran Time Vault decks. <laughs> no, I did not play in that oh, GP. I just remember hearing about so it vicariously. Fun. I it, I had I owned like eight Alpha Beta Time Vaults at the time. I wish I oh, kept geez. all of them. I know. Um, I played the Flame Fusillade combo deck, which was immensely fun. Uh, Rich played Stasis Time Vault. Paul Paul played the. I think I can't remember which one he played. I think he might have played a blue green a blue version. Anyway, none of us <laughs> played with it. Still energy in that Legacy version, but there were. <laughs> Um, the point is that Stasis and Time Vault, if Time Vault had been allowed to exist into Constructed Magic longer, 
mm-hmm. or had been, you know, there were definitely Turbo Stasis decks in, in Magic's history. Time Vault would have definitely been played with them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because I would yeah, have. T- I mean, I was, playing, I was playing Stasis and Extended in the later 90s, and uh, I would have played Time Vault then if it was allowed. <laughs> and, and not neutered. Yeah. Time Vault Twiddle is definitely a deck in Swedish old school because recall is unrestricted. And basically, the combo oh. deck plays Sylvan Library to aggressively find the card. I think it might use Transmute and Mana Mana Vaults to find the Time Vault. Well, the Time Vault's unrestricted in Swedish rules. Dang. And then Twiddle is, of course, you can play as a four of. And then you can basically just Twiddle Vault and then Recall Twiddle Vault, Recall Twiddle Vault until you can just eventually win. I don't remember exactly what the win condition is, but it's basically irrelevant (laughs) (laughs) recall twiddle vault is a lot like paradoxical outcome isn't it (laughs) actually it's very similar the first one yeah it gets you one and then the second one gets you two and then the next one gets you three (laughs) yeah no it's actually very similar it's it's kind of a critical mass and blue green it's built around blue green sylvan library is just incredibly good with taking additional turns you know you're not and then you can mirror mirror universe your opponent to get all that life back and then sylvan some more (laughs) it's kind of like necro built into but yeah. yes, yeah, that's that's a very fun combo. So I, we've talked about Type One, uh, kind of Alpha um, Legacy with Time Vault, but Instill Energy is just a very nice color for doing those kinds of things. Um, I did build for a fun Time Vault deck that uses all of those things, um, inst- because Birds of Paradise Instill Energy is nice in both of those combos, right? Because you can use you can still energy the Time Vault, or you, you can still energy a bird. And have stasis, and then of course time vault, time vault works very nicely with stasis. For those who who don't know what I'm talking about, you can um, basically untap, skip a turn, untap the time vault to skip a turn, which will allow you two turns: one turn to let the stasis go away, and then the additional turn with time vault to um, untap all of your permanents. Yeah, the stasis doesn't hold the time vault from untapping. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so it's a pretty cool interaction, in my opinion. Right. I've never seen Instill Energy really used beyond those. I think one possible other application would be like creatures that you might want to use twice, like a prodigal sorcerer or a orcish artillery, you know, things like that. As a casual player early in my days, I definitely used Instill Energy for its haste effect in particular. I had a and kind of an aura's heavy enchantress kind of deck that killed with rabid wombat in my early days. Yeah, love and that. <laughs> aside, if I didn't want to give all my opponents yes. creatures haste with concordant crossroads, I just wanted my creature to have haste. Then Instill Energy yeah. got that deal done. No, that's a good one. No, enchantress. Yeah, Instill Energy and enchantress is a very good one because yeah. you can just good. combo out in one big one yeah. big turn. You can good Instill for energy. mana, good for everything. <laughs> yeah, and then you can also just put a bunch of like. Unstable mutations on the Enchantress. Yeah. You know, eventually Aspect just... of Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Blessing. Blessing. Yeah. I had um, Spirit Links in there too. Yeah. No, Rabbit Wombat's <laughs> awesome with that. Uh, I love Enchantress. I know. love Enchantress. Uh, no, that's, that's great. I think we've covered the, I think we've covered the realm. I think we've, it's a nice <laughs> color for this. Um, I don't know that haste is, I mean, I don't know. It's still energy. Could it seems like it could have been in, in a number of different colors. Maybe green is the right color for haste. Is that typically the case today, Kevin? Haste uh, seems like mostly in red. Haste is number one. Yeah, it's dominant in red. It's primary in red. It's secondary in um, black and green. So yeah. black and green get some haste, and but rarely these days. 
there is a there is you've covered the so a lot of the histor- the historical strategic applications pretty well here. I want to talk about a couple of things about the wording and the reprint history. So there's a funny thing about the way the alpha wording it exists, and it, it's probably pretty apparent to you. But the first phrase being "you may untap target creature both during your untap phase and one additional uh, time." Yeah. What do you think should happen when you have instill energy <laughs> and your opponent has a stasis, for example? So, yeah, I understand the, the, the question. Yeah. Basically, what you're saying is, does the first part essentially is is it referring to the natural untap, or does it override anything that doesn't allow you to untap? For example, right. a meek stone or a paralyze. Yeah, yeah, a meek stone or paralyze. Um, Stasis might be a bad example because it legitimately skips the phase. But for yeah. other things, like you said, meek stone, which says they just don't untap. I don't know what the interpretation th- is meant to be. I think, it, yeah, so so the problem is the distinction between the actual text and then the intended meaning, right? <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> the intended meaning, I think we can infer, it, it generally intended to refer to just the unnatural untap. Yeah. But unfortunately, the text is written in such a way that I would have to interpret it as referring, and I appreciate you flagging this because I hadn't noticed this before, but I think you would have to say that it can untap through a paralyzer meekstone. Yeah. What do you think? That's how I read it as well. I I don't know if that was really what was meant uh, to say this undoes a paralyze, for example, because that's a super narrow. But it does it does more than that, obviously. But paralyze and meekstone, I think, are the only two. Oh no, smoke would count too. Yeah, so paralyze, yeah. meekstone, and smoke would be the three well, applicable even, effects. Smoke is even more confusing because you have to choose, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so the question would be: Do you get like an exception, like black the Black Knight and balance exception, right? Yeah, it's like I get funny. to choose this and something else. That that's incredibly confusing. <laughs> that one is really pretty bad. I'm with you, but there's another element too, and that is the second phrase, which is target creature may also attack the turn it comes into play. This yeah. has produced some interesting effects throughout the reprintings of Instill Energy because you'll note that it says attack specifically and it does not specifically say you could use activated abilities so even in the alpha context if you were to say cast a land or elves and then cast and instill energy on it on the same turn the alpha interpretation the alpha wording would not allow you to tap that elf for mana that turn it doesn't break, say you break, can activate break, abilities repeat that. i want to make sure i understand say, say that from the top one more time if you were point. to cast a land or elves and then yeah. in the same turn cast and instill energy on it in the alpha yes. context you would not be able to tap that land or elf for mana that turn but you would be able to attack. But you would be able to attack. Oh because God. the card does not because specifically separate... enable activated abilities, just attacking. Yes. Yeah, you're right. And how that has right. manifested over the years is really actually interesting. This card was reprinted <laughs> in ABU plus revised, <laughs> then 4th edition and 5th edition. It's never been reprinted since 5th. The ABU and revised versions all basically have the same text. And it's, you know, you can untap the target one. So in... um. In revised, they changed the during untap and an additional time to just be you may untap target creature one additional time this turn. And then it says it can attack the turn it comes into play, which is a slight tweak on the alpha wording, but shares a lot of the same effects. Fourth edition, there was a C change. Fourth edition made it much closer to the current wording, the Oracle wording, and it changed it to target creature can attack the turn it comes into play on your side. And then it has an activated ability of zero colon during your turn untap target creature and still energy enchants. Use this ability only each, well, once each turn. That's much more clear, in my opinion. Turning it into an activated ability makes more sense because that's how the yeah. alpha wording is implied. It implies an activated <sighs> ability of untapping, right? 
then something yeah then something weird happened the fifth edition wording said enchanted creature is unaffected by summoning sickness they the legitimately fifth edition says that <laughs> the so fifth then, edition one legitimately gives the creature haste abilities. yeah exactly and then since fifth edition i don't know when exactly because i don't i haven't been following this card but so, at some point then um they undid that now it's back to enchanted creature can attack as though it had haste so there was some period between 5th edition and today, I don't know how long it was, where you could tap that land of War Elf the turn you played and still energy on it. It's pretty funny. Yeah, they were trying to simplify things before yeah. they had the word haste in 5th so, edition. <laughs> I, I, I want to go... No, I, that's, that's fascinating. So it, it's what's, what's interesting is they were... The attempted at simplification actually created a functional change and not a trivial yeah. one either. A major right. functional change. A major functional change, yeah. Yeah. More important um, when you consider cards like Royal Assassin and many other things. I want to go back to the original point that you made vis-a-vis Stasis Meekstone, because if we interpret, and not the question of assuming that this card has been in play for a full turn, so that it begins play with, you know, let's yeah. say tapped. Mm-hmm. Um, if it, your interpretation, which I think is textually correct, means that you can untap it through a Stasis, use it but then you can also attack even after you've untapped to pay for stasis right (laughs) that's interesting i have to amend my statements from before though i don't think that answer is true with respect to specifically stasis because that still energy says during your untap phase and stasis explicitly don't get an untap phase so So if you if you change your example to be meek stone okay if you change your example to meek stone i would agree Okay. Yeah, this actually still works with stasis because you can untap it one additional time. So you can yes. untap the Birds of Paradise during your upkeep, tap it to pay for stasis. Yes, okay. I would agree with that. But but then in the Meekstone comparison, example, I think you can make you the can case that the both bird just tap it and well, it, it would <laughs> have to be attack. a creature with power greater than two, so birds doesn't apply anymore. But let's right. say you had this thing on a juggernaut. If you had still energy on a juggernaut, you could make the case that it does untap under a Meekstone. I think a better example might be something that has that you would both want to use to attack and an activated ability. So what if you had this like on a pirate ship? <laughs> okay, there you go. Pirate ship with a meek stone in play? I, yes. I, I think it... Well, assuming it's been in turn for a whole play, then it would untap through the meek stone. It play for tap, a whole turn. Yeah, you could tap it to do a damage and then untap it one more time on your turn and yes. tap it to do a damage. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you, could I, untap it, you could untap it to attack and then you could... Un- uh, untap it to ping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Well, it's still energy. Who who knew such an no, interesting who, card? Seriously, who knew? I, I promise you, we won't have much to say about this next one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I'm with you. Next up is invisibility. It's another aura. It costs you you. It's an enchant creature, and it says very simply: target creature can be blocked only by walls. This plays in, obviously, to the, both the aura sub-theme as well as the wall sub-theme, which we've covered pretty well in uh, Alpha. So the classic combo of putting this on a juggernaut so the creature's unblockable is pretty well understood by me. Otherwise, I don't think I have used this card for anything in my time with Magic. Have you? No, I think you just I think you just nailed it. This was a <laughs> card that was rotated out after Unlimited, which means that um, which means it's, it has a very limited reprint history. Can you just recount that for us? Well... <laughs> It has another one of these really bizarre um, patterns, and I don't, I can't remember now because we've talked so much about so many different patterns that this one is probably unique. But ABU and it stopped until eighth edition, so it's in modern for some reason. Then it was reprinted again in M15, 
for some reason. And since then, it's been reprinted in the Mystery Boosters uh, uh, extra card slot. So in terms of legality, it's just ABU, then 8th, and M15, which has got to be another unique pattern. It is so funny. Are there, and also, I mean, the text is almost entirely unchanged. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this this card's primary use case is just to put it on a juggernaut, make a juggernaut unblockable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how many games in the early days were people playing a lot of walls to just set up their forts and be defensive. Um, I guess, at, owing to the amount of effects that interact with walls, as we've already said, Richard Garfield viewed them as an important part of the combat of early Magic. Interesting art. It actually does convey invisibility somewhat effectively by Ensign Maddox. Next, we have Iron Claw Orcs. 1R, summon orcs. It's a 2-2. And it says, cannot be used to block any creature of power more than one. <laughs> so some funny <laughs> intervening words there. The word right. used is doing a, a lot tool. of work. <laughs> right? <laughs> what do you say? But otherwise, like, it's can't... pretty straightforward. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is so, right. It, it, it would have been much more, much more straightforward. Just say cannot block, right? Right. Used right. to block. <laughs> so the Iron Claw Orcs has an interesting history in my experience, Steve. I don't know if you were playing exactly competitively in the sort of formats where Sly was good in its original say, interpretation, yeah, right? But this <laughs> is, deck. yeah, this is one of those creatures that sort of. It, I don't know if inadvertently is the right word, but it sort of typified Sly in its original incarnation okay. where it, Sly was about many things. It was, for those who don't know, Sly is the name of a person, Paul Sly, as, as Steve just said. And the, the deck was one of the first real incantations of modern mana curve management to keep yes. um, aggro decks threat count in the low mana costs as as much as possible so that you had the greatest chance of playing a one drop creature a two drop creature and then a three drop creature and killing your opponent efficiently the deck was filled with some great creatures like bog fanatic and jackal pup like these were some strong aggressive creatures but in the oh, two drop no, slot no 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 <laughs> no, no, no no the original version of this had none of those good cards <laughs> but go ahead wait really I'll, I'll, yeah what's the, the original so the, slide so the original story behind it is that he played this in a in a pro tour qualifier in, in, in the spring of 1996, and he got second place in the qualifier, did not win, but his deck was terrible. And when people saw the, people saw the deck, they just couldn't understand how it did so well. And so what it became was kind of this emblematic example of math, ma- mathematics over kind of qualitative evaluation of magic. No, the, yeah. the deck, the original version of this deck, Kevin, so, you got it right in terms of the mana curve. The, and the basic mana curve formula was that you have the vast, you know, 9 to 13 one mana slots, 6 to 8 two mana slots, 3 to 5 three mana slot, 1 to 3 four mana slots, a couple yeah. of X, X spells. And this, the creatures in this deck were, listen to this, Goblins of the Flarg, Dwarven Trader, Brassman, Orcish Librarian, Dwarven Lieutenant, Ironclaw Orcs, Orcish Cannoneers, Orcish Artillery, Brothers of the Fire, and two Dragon Whelp. Ah, so, okay. These these were terrible creatures that had never that just weren't constructive competitive, but they fit into his conception of mana curve. Gotcha, gotcha. So I'm thinking of the version of the deck that existed, obviously post um, Tempest, right. which was not definitely had 1. all those 0. cards. David David Price's version of it, yes. Had, yeah, that's had the, all that's the, the one I'm thinking of. But yeah. Dave Price's version also had Ironclaw Orcs, did it not? No, no, he abandoned that. It was all okay. just it was the good stuff. I don't remember what the good stuff two drop creature done in, in Price's list well, was. It, it, Iron Clark may have been in some version, but 
Okay. At the list I'm looking at, they're mostly they're like Jackal Pops, Mog Fanatic, Mog Raider, Fire Slinger, Cursed Scroll, that sort of thing. Ah, uh, there you go. Okay. Well, that one sounds more like a Tempest Block one. Anyway, Iron Claw Orcs is emblematic of the the yes the tenets of the Sly deck, which was I'm going to sacrifice some quality in individual creatures to ensure <laughs> pure consistency. And Ironclaw Orcs is a flag bearer for that, right? Ironclaw Orcs is not a good two drop. It is, it's less good than a grizzly bear, which is in alpha, right? It's less good <laughs> than the standard for what we call bears today, which are two drop two twos with upside. This is a two drop yeah. two two with downside, yeah. which is interesting in that how it positions red in terms of small creatures, especially in contrast to the review we've already done of, of, uh, Goblin Balloon Brigade, right? Goblin Balloon Brigade is definitely above the curve in terms of one drops for red, and especially in context of goblins as a tribe in Alpha. This one, as an orc, has no goblin synergies, so it doesn't even get help from That's the Lord. And, it would be so much better as a goblin. <laughs> right? Jeez. Yeah, and uh, and it's just kind of all downside. But it's good enough at attacking and blocking, so I don't know what to say otherwise. Uh, I I have cast Iron Claw Orcs in the kind of context where I was trying to, to do what the slide deck is doing and be hi- hyper-efficient. And I imagine in the context of like Alpha 40, it's probably an okay card if you're, if you're trying to be mono-red yeah. aggro. No, I completely agree. I think it's probably fine yeah. in that format. I, I think I think you've hit all the key points. This is this card's importance in Magic history is primarily in the Sly concept, um, but also just thinking about design of Alpha. I know we've already encountered this a number of times, but Alpha wasn't designed with four card limits, and so the color pie, but more importantly, the kind of distribution of tribes. I think if they had if all of that had been done under a four card design, a kind of understanding. I think we would have seen very different distribution of tribes. I mean, just, I mean, Merfolk is so pitiful for that particular reason, but this card would have been immensely more powerful as a goblin. And, and also the, I mean, but, but also you've got to figure out that, look, I think that there is a clear imperative to try and cram in as many fantasy elements, kind of historical D and D themes, tribes, you know, creature types into the original set. And that obviously, and you only have limited card space to do that, right? Yeah. But um, is this the? I'm sorry, if you, I've forgotten what you said. This is there's orcish artillery, but beyond that, are there any other orcs in this in this set? Oh, no, those are the only two in Alpha. Yeah. So there you have it. <laughs> you know, you mentioned the the trope here of orcs, and I have to say, I'm not an expert. But it seems pretty clear to me, based on this art here, which is a, a cool art by Anson Maddox, that this orc in particular, this design, is definitely playing on the Warhammer 40k kind of <laughs> style of orc. Yeah. Because there's just no denying that this is not high fantasy attire that no. this orc is wearing. This is this is space marine attire that this orc is wearing, <laughs> and it's really strangely out of place. I don't. I mean, it it probably just goes back to the thing we've already alluded to which is what were some pop culture things going on in the the nerd and gaming spheres at the time and i i do not know warhammer 40k but i can tell some of its imagery when i see it and i wouldn't be surprised if this was highly influenced by warhammer at the time i agree i think that's right this is not a uh, tolkien orc right yeah, this is definitely some Space Marine orc action. To the extent, in fact, that there is a, a banner, I guess let's call it, in the upper right of this art, which has some pseudo 
uh, alien language on it. And then the um, the orc itself has an insignia of a face slash helmet slash skull, very simplified, stylized, uh, right in the center. So it's pretty clear that this is meant to be evoking some some um, faction of space marine style orcs. It's actually kind of strange. The the card itself has been reprinted a number of times. I mean, it was an alpha beta unlimited, then revised a couple of foreign language printings and and fourth edition, and then fifth edition and then that's it so it was again viewed as a staple in the early days and then fell off after fifth edition and rightly so has it been reprinted in paper ever since since when fourth you said fifth, fifth edition yeah. yeah that's fascinating i mean this it is the it feels like the kind of card that would have been reprinted at some point but i suppose it's just not powerful enough. Uh, yeah completely <laughs> and as we've said the bear nomenclature now refers to tutus with upside and those that upside keeps getting better as the years go by even in red. So next we have Iron Root Tree Folk. Very straightforward. 4G Summon Tree Folk. Nothing in the text box but flavor, and it's a 3-5. I am here to tell you, Steve, this card is a champ in Alpha Limited. <laughs> you are, okay. <laughs> now, I've never played with an Iron Root Tree Folk. I've seen it played in Alpha Limited, Alpha Beta yeah. Unlimited, and right. it is just a house in those formats, but... <laughs> Uh, aside from that, it's pretty much just straight up top down ent design, and there's not too much more to it than that. The only tree folk in alpha, of course. Right. Well, there are only 74 commons in ABU, mm-hmm. and this is this is one of them. Um, yeah, and it's it's common. It's a, I think it's overperformer in green in limited. <laughs> <laughs> right. And um, when you look at the the list of commons. This is yeah exactly. This is one of the better I think creature commons that you can get in limited because it just trumps every just about everything else at common. Yeah. So that is I think that clearly explains that. What's actually in competition for that? So Kevin, for the combination of power toughness, I mean we already talked about crawlworm, but and then frozen shade is there and giant spider is not bad, but even this trumps giant spider. Yeah. It's that's basically it. It, it yeah, and the the only thing outside of green that actually fights this thing in any way is sea serpent and frozen shade. And yeah, and and sea serpent, <laughs> you know, can't even attack unless you have islands in play. Unless right. your opponent has islands in play. So if so, it's just mono e mono in terms of color, the only thing that gets through this is something with flying at common, which is only the Pegasus and the the sprites, and I then it's just just frozen right. shade. Yeah, I think you're right. I didn't even, I, I didn't even think about that too much but i guess that, i guess if you opened and also a common it, it only being one green as if you were to open a pack kevin let's say it's the third pick mm-hmm. and you know you're in green and you see a craw a craw worm a giant spider and an iron root tree folk what do you take if i know i'm but in you green i'm taking in, craw worm because what if you, you know you're going to be in two size. colors if i know i'm trying to be in more than one color then i am seriously going to consider the tree folk yeah because mana fixing is so bad in, in Alpha Limited. Now you could still you could still just go old school and just have your mana base of eight of one and nine of the other or whatever, and, and you could still support a crawl worm. But uh Iron Root Tree Folk is very good, very high up on that list. And across would all the you, commons too. Would you ever consider Giant Spider over it? Only because if the... we were drafting in an in an environment such that I knew what my opponents had. Like a lot if of it flyers. was 
Well, yeah, if it was a, like a Rochester draft where it had happened face up and someone I was playing had taken, <laughs> you know, like a phantom monster or whatever, then yeah. I would seriously consider this the oh, Giants. Oh, God, yes. how good is this against that? <laughs> it's <laughs> well, like that's another thing. That's another thing about Iron Root Tree Folk is that yeah. it doesn't block any of the the top tier uncommon flyers, Air Elemental, Sarah, Sanger, but it gets to attack into them, which is nice. True. Because of the five toughness. Also, this will this will trade with a, a Juggernaut if it comes to that, which is nice. Yep. So it, it yeah. pairs up well against not and, only the commons but also the uncommons. And blocks a Jade statue in, indefinitely. But so do <laughs> so do the ones that we were just talking about, Crawlworm and Giant Spider. That's true. Interesting. Yeah, definitely one of the better commons. Great point. I don't know. If there's much more that can be said about this card. I I just want to ask you about the art. I find the art to be a little silly. Like <laughs> the 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 face on the thing is goofy, you know, and that kind of always just rubbed me a little wrong. You know what? I I have found this to be very, I guess, emblematic, representative is a better word, of Jesper Meifer's style. Yeah. That face. I don't know why this has become so deeply associated in my mind with Jesper's work, but yeah. I think this card has taken on a much greater artistic significance vis-a-vis Jesper and his style. And, and obviously, Jesper looms large and Alpha is the original art director for Magic. Um so I don't know. I, I I think I take on some of the seriousness of his personality through this card, so it doesn't seem quite as serious as, as silly. Yeah. More serious. But um I think I, I can't really look at it objectively without thinking about Jesper's style. In <laughs> no, particular in particular the face. Yeah. I, I'm not here to make the case that we should separate the art from the artist. Um also worth note in the gamma context that this card in the gamma was exactly the same card except it was just named Ents which is pretty transparent. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So next up we have Iron Star, and now we're going to start getting some of the economies of scale of our review here because we don't need to rehash everything from Iron Star that we've already done. But I do want to just add that it is, out of all the lucky charms, it is probably the one that is the most beneficial to its color. And I, what I mean is that red is not only one of the two colors that has just no life gain, Right. Because even because white, black, and green all have life gain, so it's one Great of point. red and blue. Yeah, and also red is the color that really is in, in, uh, incentivized to cast a lot of cheap spells across Magic's history, oh. <laughs> but in, in Alpha especially. So you're incentivized to get the most out of an Iron Star or any of the Lucky Charms, unless you're that, playing an X spell. But yes, it, granted, you're not always just playing a bunch of spells. But the point is, is you're you're the the color of goblins, right? You're the color of lightning yeah. bolts. So you're incentivized to play a lot of cheap spells in red. Um, that said, obviously red's opponents uh, also <laughs> get the most benefit nope. out of an iron star too. So it's a double-edged sword. <laughs> no, no, no. Your opponents can't activate your iron star. No, what I mean is when they play with iron play, stars, yeah, you don't like the fact that that they're playing the red one. The other thing I think that's interesting about iron star is because red is not typically a defensive color. I mean, iron claw orcs can't block, you know, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Ball lightning is not a defensive creature. Um, that that I think you that it, in some ways you get the best. It's the best use of Iron Star as well because, you no, know, sure, if you're playing a, a turtle or castle deck, you might want to gain the most amount of life. But this has the kind of dual capacity that while you're you can go incredibly aggressive on offense, and then use this Iron Star is kind of like a, a defensive mechanism. That while you're being aggressive, you're also ga- you know you're also getting all this life that creates a nice buffer for defense. Yeah, 
Um, which I think makes Iron Star, frankly, I think it might be the best of the charms. Yeah, that was that was my point exactly. I also think it's the best of the charms, given all the contextual uh, information we have and all the history. Can we talk about the fact that it, why is an Iron Star giving you life? <laughs> like <laughs> well, I can understand magical. an ivory cup and a throne of bone and a wooden sphere, but this is just a <laughs> hunk of metal. Like, come on! But it's it's magic <laughs> metal. It's 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 you know it's like space metal. It's <laughs> it's doing something really cool for the controller. S- space metal. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on then. And uh, after Iron Star, I must admit that the next card might be one of my favorite cards in the history of Magic. (laughs) (laughs) We have a a lot to say about this one. (laughs) Next up, of course, is Island. And uh, there's no secret that we've talked about it already with respect to the basic lands. There were two of them in Alpha with a third one added into Beta. And the way that the third one was added is noteworthy. So, Steve, I'll let you just uh, run with this. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Well, one thing I, I do want to talk mostly about the art, but one thing to note is that probably one of the the longest recurring jokes in Magic is about banning islands. So, <laughs> right. Um, there's that. Now, this art, this the art on Island here is Mark Poole, who did a phenomenal job. Um, and the A and the B. So the A is the sunset, the the kind of purple sunset. The B is the I don't know the the light blue. Uh, uh, overhead aerial view shot yeah, rather the than three, the, hor- the horizon the isometric. Shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the C, which is not an alpha, is actually the kind of reverse negative of A, uh, but darkened, and and the hues are entirely purple. Yeah. Um. And Kevin, you and I, not on the show, but you know, on the phone, have spoken, I think, at length about our preferences with respect to A, B, and C here. Yeah. I will say, I think that B gets a lot of play online. I've seen, I think a lot of people prefer B. I think between A and B, A is slightly more valuable in both the alpha and beta versions. Mm-hmm. But Ke- Kevin, why don't you just tell me your preferences overall, and then I'll tell you mine. I'm a big fan of A. I, I like the color yeah. scheme in A. And then I I like C by association, but I consider C to be just kind of an inferior A. <laughs> and there's a legitimate reason for that, of course. So I, my feelings on C are actually a little complicated. I, I think it doesn't add anything um, to the to the island option. So if, if it were up to me, I would just play with entirely A's, which I've done in some decks. And uh, But I still, I mean, B is beautiful too. There's just no, there's no two ways about it. The B is attractive from the standpoint of it's the one that looks the most inviting like a tropical remote isle right because it's got the lush yes. greenery with the yeah. beaches around it the looks edge like a kind of hawaiian island yeah. yeah exactly it's very inviting in that sense but i also just love the fact that a is ostensibly at sunset and the mixture of colors uh, it's just yeah. very beautiful yeah yeah you, can't you get a lot wrong. of those colors on the west coast like sometimes you'll look out in california sometimes i'll look outside it, you know at dusk and you get these incredible oranges and purples and yeah pinks That's... that you just didn't quite get in the midwest and it's really well um, rendered here, I think. It yeah. is. Uh, one thing I just didn't mention that I should mention is that that C is not a perfect reverse negative. It was a little bit of a simplification. It's actually an inversion, but it's a, zoom, a slight zoom in. Yeah. And the color, the coloring is, as I said, dimmer. The the yellows have been stricken out of the horizon. Um, I I dislike B strongly. I don't know why I just feel so bland. I think it feels bland by comparison to the other two, which are so true. colorful. Yeah. Um, if, if, 
A and B, B had not existed, I probably would love B. <laughs> if A and C had not existed, I would love B. Yeah. Um, but because it's juxtaposed with the other two, it just looks, just, I mean, it just fails. Um, <laughs> I, I do like A. If I'm forced to play with A and B, I look all my alpha, almost, I have one B just to own it in alpha. <laughs> um, the rest are all A. But if I had an option, so I always play with alpha over beta because it's just, just as more aesthetically pleasing to me. But if I had the alpha version of C, I would use only C's because the reason I love C is because when you put all the C's together, mm. the the purple is so strong um, <laughs> in a way it. that it's just, it's I mean, it's just so remarkable. I, I don't know. It's almost as if the purple bleeds out when you get a bunch of these together across the the table. It just, it's almost like they, they, like together, they're like the Infinity Gauntlet. They project themselves <laughs> outward in a really powerful, you get this, this strong ambiance of purple that you don't just, you don't, you, there's obviously a lot of purple in A, but it's not quite as powerful. And I think it's yeah. because the, the, the lack of yellow makes the purple just overwhelmingly strong. Whereas the yellow dilutes the purple in, in A. So I prefer C. Um, strongly, um, okay. and then and then B and then B. Sorry, and then A and then B is a distant third. Yeah, I would say B is a distant third for me as well. Um, it's also worth noting for our audience that of these three, only one of them was printed in foil as an arena prize in 2002, and C? it's A. It's A. Okay. Yeah. So there are beautiful foils of A that you can still get. And if it's, I didn't it's a, hate foil so much, I would love I know. to get that. But it makes for a really, and it's an old frame too. It's a really uh, beautiful foil. I think I've yeah. seen that. It's really gorgeous. Yeah. I, I wish um, I owned Steve, more C's. I own a lot of A, and in, I think in beta, I probably own like a half dozen C's. I wish I owned a lot more C's. And I know you have a bunch for your Q. Uh, awesome. I, I Just, have a bunch. Yeah, because I, I picked up alpha a, beta. Do you have them? I want to take a look at them again. They're so nice. Oh, yeah, I picked up a bunch of alpha beta lands many years ago before so old school picked up and but and I started just getting them signed by the artist that would show up at Eternal Weekend. And uh, and so I play with them like my EDH decks and everything. I play with uh, as many ABU lands as I can. So I've got yeah, I've got this stack here for draft that ironically, this draft stack has a bunch of C's in it because <laughs> because I've stopped drafting which means these are the ones i don't play with in my edh decks as much so i think i've got this stack here oh, these nice. these are all signed get those ugly other ones out of the way yeah get those <laughs> out of the way get those out of there i want yeah. to see i just want to see you fan the seas just fan the seas oh that's nice there we go that's really nice oh, they're gorgeous. <laughs> yeah you know, i think big, the other big thing, fan the of other, abu islands the other thing i actually so i didn't notice this but so obviously beta has some real dark dark art the the frame of c i think is darker as well and i think that also weighs into my not only is the frame of c darker i think but also i think that the um the text box is slightly darker as well so i think both you of are those, correct i think the darker art the lack of yellow and i think actually makes the darker frame and darker text box even stronger. And so I think that, I think that weighs, I mean, you can almost see like the pattern. It's strange how vivid the pattern around the C art is in terms of the frame. Is it, don't you think it's weird? 
I'm right there with you, and you know that I'm a, f- a big fan of the more saturated beta cards where there's a difference. And yes, that's a strong impact on the uh, just the whole effect of the Island Sea. I think this is the only basic clan in limited edition where I prefer a beta, the beta card. It's interesting. Really, that's interesting. All right, anything else on Island? Nope. All right, the greatest so part of magic. See, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I know that you and I could gush about Island all day, but we should probably move on to another card with Island in its title, which I also have a lot of affinity for, and that's Island Sanctuary. Now you got to check this alpha wording. So Island Sanctuary is an enchantment. It costs one W, and it says you may decline to draw a card from your library during draw phase. In exchange, comma, until start of your next turn, the only creatures that can damage you, damage you, are those that fly or have island walk. <laughs> now, obviously, there's a number of features to, to point at uh, with this alpha wording of Island Sanctuary. The um, They kind of elide the whole which phase you're drawing in bit by saying during draw phase, which is problematic for reasons we've already talked about with respect to untap phase and cards like Copper Tablet. The in exchange wording is is hilarious, but it also is noteworthy that there is some power level errata on this card, because the, the Alpha Virgins version very clearly says the only creatures that can damage you are those ah. that fly or have island walk, and uh, obviously yeah. the Oracle wording famously says you can't be attacked except by right. creatures with flying or island walk. So the Alpha ver- version clearly turns off Prodigal Sorcerer. Yes, Orcish <laughs> Artillery. Yeah, exactly. So that's pretty clear power level errata that would probably almost certainly happen to the guys of simplification over the years. Let me find out when it changed then, because this card was reprinting a number of times. So looking at the ABU wording, um, oh, wow, it was changed between alpha and beta. Oh, are you was, serious? Or? It was changed between alpha and beta. Oh. That's so rare, because the beta yeah. version says only creatures may attack you are those that have island, fly oh. or have island walk. That is so rare. Oh, it does. Oh, my God, it does. That's funny. That's, that's really interesting. <laughs> so the card was printed again, ABU, and then revised and fourth edition. And I think, did it go up to fifth? Yeah, fourth edition and fifth edition. And then, yeah, that's it. So it was one of those cards that was a staple of the game basically up until fifth edition and never again. I'm genuinely surprised, actually, that this card hasn't been reprinted because, in my opinion, it's not broken. It's not overly powerful. It's just a yeah. unique role player, and it, really it would is. be a cool thing to have in Magic again. It really is really cool. By the way, you didn't mention this, but this the, this is one of the top-down design cards that was thrown into Alpha at the last minute. Um, oh, so it's not in Gamma? No, and the there were five cards that we we mentioned, at least one of them, Birds of Paradise. So, and Kevin, the, the art is basically just the... Um, what is it? The uh, the film studio. <laughs> it's TriStar Pictures that has the Pegasus. Yep. <laughs> it's almost a perfect representation of that. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. <clears throat> yeah, you could be understood and forgiven for thinking this was just one frame from the middle of that TriStar logo. <laughs> uh, but but to the point that you were going to make about the power, I mean, this is the original. This is the kind of predecessor to Moat, of course, with the you know the um, drawback that you lose your draw step but that's a drawback that can be circumvented in certain ways so if you have a howling mine in play in this if you have a um what are some of the other combos you can use uh this can be very powerful and in fact in even an alpha league if you can get sufficiently ahead or have certain number of combos in play and you just land this it's it can be very hard for your opponent to win 
So if they can't attack you and you can take out a certain number of threats, like for example, if you have a orcish artillery, right, to take out a certain number of creatures that they could attack and you have a COP red, um, you can set up certain combos where your opponent is just going to eventually deck and there's really nothing they can do. Well, I have some direct experience with that. You remember the um, Stasis plus Time Vault example that you used earlier? Yes. Well, I've I've played Stasis plus Island Sanctuary in extended PTQs back in the <laughs> 90s. Really? Yeah. So replace Time Vault with Island Sanctuary in that analysis, and I played that deck. Because in certain matchups, your opponents didn't have Flyers or Island Walk creatures, and you could just... They could cast whatever spell they wanted for the rest of the game, but if I if they never untapped again and I never drew again... They would deck. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yeah wow. I've played so this card have, in, in PTQs. You've extended? Wow. Yeah. Extended. So this card is... <laughs> so why then was it never reprinted? This isn't on the reserve list, is it? Uh, I don't think so. Well, I mean, it was printed it up till 5th edition. No. Okay, then it can't be on no. the reserve list. Yeah, exactly. No, it's not reserved. I think this is just one of those things that they kind of just shied away from in Magic for a number of years. There's a intervene. You know, they've printed Wild and crazy bonkers cards in the last couple of years but there was an intervening period where they're really shying away from things that did certain things and i think not allowing your opponent to attack is one of those things that they just said "Eh, we want less of this in magic i think but i'm strongly of the opinion that you could print this card today in a lot of contexts and it would be perfectly fine and fair the there's you know it's dangerous there's some risk but as long as you are careful about how you construct the format you're printing it into i think it's all right um, it's pretty clear, Steve, that this is yet another island by Mark Poole. Does this card have some lineage shared with Birds of Paradise? Do you know? It does. So in this, only in the sense that both of those cards were part of the top-down cycle. So, but Birds of Paradise, we know, was created because Mark Poole created the art, right. and and the birds were so prominent. Is this another case of that? I don't. I do not know that. Um, I've never I heard can... that with respect to this, but it certainly looks like the same phenomenon right that there's this beautiful art and this pegasus is just and dominant in the in the image and really distracts you from the island behind it i have a source for that let me take a look at something um there's no reference nope, to it nope. on the gamma page no there's not i have no information okay. well this just looks like another one of those cases where mark Poole painted a wonderful island yeah big fan of this card printed up through fifth edition with the same art every time incidentally that's noteworthy has never been reprinted with any other art, including in Magic Online, which is strange now that I think about it. An art from Magic Online making it into Master Edition 4, an art from Alpha, I mean, making it into MEU 4 online, they must have, the arts, the, the rights for this particular art must be unlike any other art. Huh. All right, so let's move on then. Ivory Cup is next up, and we really don't have much to say about it. Um, I, of all the lucky charms, for the reasons we've previously mentioned, I've only personally used, I think, red, black, and blue. I don't think I've ever cast an ivory cup, even in my early days of opening revised packs. It was just never right. What do you think? Right. Um, no, no. It might be the coolest of the charms, but it's definitely not the best. <laughs> Why do you think it's the coolest? What makes you say that? Um, the ivory cup is really evocative. It's nice. It, oh, yeah? The art is cool. It's a cool cup, and I would definitely own one if I could. I mean, it looks ivory. It's got the kind of like cracks, you know, this ivory gad. It's just, it's really nicely rendered. It's kind of got a swirl of milky ivory underneath it. And then the kind of a Dan Frazier type flat background, even though the artist is Anson. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to Jade Monolith. Now, this is a strange one, right? 
the monolith is an artifact for four. It's a poly artifact. It says one colon. You may take damage done to any creature on yourself instead, but you must take all of it. Source of damage is unchanged. This is one of those things that really just doesn't work, right? <laughs> like, how is this meant to work from a timing standpoint in Alpha? Is it it's it's is it damage prevention? Is there part of the window for damage prevention? Do you wait till the damage is done? If I'm bolting your creature, do you have to respond by activating Jade Monolith? Help me out here, Steve. <laughs> um, it's, it seems hopeless from an alpha context yeah. in my eyes, but but maybe I'm being pessimistic. <sighs> Jesus, I, this is this is feels like the charm discussion a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> a little um, bit, although far less interesting, I guess. Yeah, far less. <laughs> so. My understanding is that this card, there's no Alpha League rules documentation here, but I think you could probably activate this in advance or after after damage is basically, well, it says you may take damage done. So, geez, that's, <laughs> that's really awkward. Yeah, the word um, done is, well, it's done. Like, it's been yeah, done. It has it's to past be after tense. The fact. <laughs> Yeah. So it's totally retroactive, but it can't be too retroactive, right? Because well, yeah, where's the what what state is the creature in when you activate this? Yeah, is it dead? <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, that's the problem. Yeah. And the I mean, the gamma version of the card doesn't help us at all cuz it's basically exactly this. Four mana artifact, one mana to activate. You may take the damage done to a creature to yourself instead. And it says you must take it all. So it's basically unchanged from gamma. Well, obviously, the main combo historically with this was Ali from Cairo. You want to keep Ali from Cairo around. Yeah, kind which of meant like you, a, could, a, you could never die. Right, somewhat of like a spectral cloak. Um, I I think that the way that... So, if you take the damage, then in the I think it has to be damage basically on the stack, so to speak, to that creature. In the alpha context, how at what point does that exist in your eyes relative to a spell? Like, I'm bolting your grizzly bears. I'll respond by activating Jade Monolith to redirect it to myself. The, the, all, yeah. Both things would then resolve simultaneously. Well, spells resolve simultaneously, but basically they would all resolve simultaneously. This will prevent the damage to the grizzly bear. I guess the the grizzly, grizzly bears technically take the damage, but then you retroactively remove the damage from the grizzly bears, and they never go to the graveyard. That would be how I would interpret it. Yeah. And there's a reading of the text of this alpha version that's... that is generous in that it's looking forward in time like i'm activating this and it allows me to take damage done to any creature in the future like i think done is is past tense but i think it has to be forward looking or it'll work at all i think it has to be both forward looking and then immediately retroactive i I think that what i would say is here's the problem Uh so in my upkeep you know i orcish artillery your lenore elves right and then um, we go to draw step, and then we go to combat, and then you know something else happens, and then you go to end step, and it's like, okay, I'm going to activate this. Can I get my Lenore <laughs> Elves back? Right? I mean, that's that's that seems like a stretch, but I guess a, a technical, clear reading of this would allow that, right? You may take all damage to any creature to yourself instead, and it doesn't even say this turn. It's, it's yeah. just like it retro could theoretically re- be retroactive to the beginning of the game. Yeah, that's really funny. Also, right? It uses Am I wrong the about word that? In, this needs to well, have clarification. I mean, it's broken it ha- otherwise. Yeah, it, it, that's that's my interpretation right there. Is that it is actually broken. You have to have an interpretation. You have to have an FAQ or some kind of ruling to go with this. 
And the good news is, and is that the modern Oracle the wording, these, there is none. Go ahead. I think it's just because the card is so weak, but that's just my opinion. The um, the Oracle wording is as about you could expect if you didn't know already. It says the next time a source of your choice would deal damage to target oh, creature this turn, okay, yeah. it deals the damage to you instead. It's pretty pretty straightforward from an Oracle wording now. It, that it's it's well it's, the thing with the next. Yeah, it's preemptive, but the next time could also refer to something on the stack, but it hasn't resolved yet. I take your meaning. The next time part does meaningfully change the functionality because you could um, you could make a case that says you activate it and it says prevent all damage um, from a source of your choice. There are plenty of effects that have that language where you're choosing a, a source that until the end of the turn, probably. This card could definitely have been constructed that way as well, and I think that would have been defensible as well. But that's not the current alpha, I mean, the current Oracle yeah. ruling. So the if current you is go, just next time. If you, if you lightning bolt my Birds of Paradise, I cannot activate this to save it. I, ha- I would have to have done it in advance. Uh, what, do you mean in modern? No, you could respond in modern okay. rules because of the stack. Okay, just checking, yeah. yeah. And I think it would. St- I think it should still work that way in alpha. I I agree with your interpretation because I think it's the only reasonable one in terms of making the card actually function. Yeah, I just I mean, the we thing know there's a, there are damage prevention windows, right? There and, are deli- there are are there in Magic delayed triggers that go through turns turn structure. Oh yeah, absolutely there. And are. this this is one of them because it says the next time, so which means that it could be thirty turns later. Oh no, it says this um, turn in the in the Oracle text now. Yeah. When did they add oh. this turn into it? Let's see. This turn oh. is added in revised. This turn is added in. It's not. It was added in revised. The this turn qualification. No, it wasn't. No, it's it's not. It was added in. Oh my it's god! It's not in fourth edition either. No, it was added in in sixth. Yeah. That's right. It was added in sixth edition because the fifth edition one just says redirect all damage from any source to from any creature. Wait, wait. Redirect all damage from any creature to yourself. From any creature? What? what the heck does that mean? This, this fifth edition is bizarre. The fifth edition one it doesn't should, make any sense at all. So, it should, say it should to be to any creature. any creature. Yes. Good oh grief. my god. Oh, that's ridiculous. Yet another example well, yeah. of fifth edition being worse than everything else. <laughs> Jesus. Um. Yeah. So st- the word redirect in the fourth edition version of this Don't card, though, is figure out what that means. I don't is doing a lot of work. Like yeah. redirect implies immediacy, right? It implies that it's happening right now, which which confounds your interpretation of of time. But looking back at the revised yeah. one, it says you may take damage done to any creature yeah, on yourself take. instead. Yeah. Yeah. I. This is just wild. This is so <laughs> this wild. This card is a complete mess. <laughs> I mean, this might be the most disaster. We've we've dealt with some doozies, man. <laughs> but the combination of there being no time, the, the, it, it, there being no turn restriction, mm-hmm. the fact that it's both proactive and potentially ex post facto after the fact, makes this a complete doozy. I mean, this might be worse than the charm problems, <laughs> you know, and the totally broken cards. That, God, You're this right. is a mess. You're right. Yeah, the timing thing is so interesting. I I didn't pick up on that the first couple of readings, but you're right. If you make the case that this can be used in advance in the alpha context, which I think is very reasonable, oh, uh, that's, the, yeah. it has to, right? But yeah. then your point kicks in that there's no time limit restriction on this. So if like if you're if if it's if it's the end of your turn and I have a jade monolith in play, I could just dump a whole bunch of mana into it. 
like you know, the next the next six times this creature would take damage. It creates I'm take basically that shields around it. Yeah, it yeah, creates little right. shields. Yeah, delayed. Oh my God, delayed replacement. I should yeah. be playing this in my alpha decks. <laughs> Are you sure? Like, yes, it makes your creatures really hard to kill, but uh, does your life total have that much buffer usually? I guess you're right. Yeah, this creates shields, miniature shields, and it, and every time you activate it, it creates a new shield, which means that every act, yeah, you would have to actually hit through all the activations. You'd have to track all those shields over time. That's that's wild. <laughs> It really that is, is wild. The other thing that's the other thing is tricky is the retroactive part is just fundamentally broken because the alpha text just says, you know, it means that a card that died on turn one, you could potentially put this into play on turn ten, and take the damage that was dealt on turn one. I mean, just <laughs> if you do a te- right, I mean, just a textual interpretation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that cannot yeah. be right. Just cannot be right. <laughs> I'm with you. It cannot because. <clears throat> You would have, I mean, what if he, what if like the creature died, then was brought back into play with Animate Dead, then died again and was resurrected? I don't know. There's just too many. Then it was plowed. Then, then what? Do you go from the room from game and put it back? I mean, just it, too much has happened. You can't. There's, there's another trick with the interpretation, that interpretation too, and that is it uses the word creature, but Alpha has codified that creatures in graveyard are referred to as dead creatures, right? They're summoned. Like vis-a-vis um, Animate Dead. And the card Resurrection says specifically take a creature from your graveyard and put it directly into play. So Resurrection refers to a creature in your graveyard. It's not entirely clear within the alpha context that Jade could, Monolith could be used on a creature that's currently sitting in your graveyard. So I would. I, that's a very good point, and I think that's probably how we avoid the utter absurdity of this card <laughs> yeah i think you're that right. it has to be it has to be basically either in my opinion prospective or imminent <laughs> right right that's hilarious <laughs> phraseology imminent damage <laughs> well i mean it basically means it has to be on the stack you know and, and yeah and that's what i mean by imminent <laughs> <laughs> that the card damage, has been targeted. Damage is imminent. I just hear klaxons <laughs> going off in your alpha card forty nine. Damage is imminent. Um, but you can't. You can't. I don't think you could do this like fully retroactively, right? Like you've gone through it combat. Doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Dead, it doesn't hold up. Yeah. Go to my second main. Yeah, and then it's you, too open ended. Yeah. <laughs> but this, the fact that the, the the two words this turn are missing, and the fact that they wild. weren't even. Added until sixth edition just blows my. Oh, I guess they were. In, they're sorry, fifth. That blows my mind. That really blows my mind. Oh, I guess gosh. it's just the fact that this card was just so bad that no one, <laughs> no one really cared. What happens? What happens with this in uh, in veteran bodyguard? Oh boy, I don't know if I want to talk about that while I'm sober. Okay. So- <laughs> <laughs> I want, I'm just going to give our audience a preview of Veteran Bodyguards. Veteran Bodyguards says, um, unless it's tapped, any damage uh, done to you by unblocked creatures is done instead to the bodyguard. You may not take this damage yourself, though you can prevent it if possible. So it's just a matter of... Layering? Uh, well, it's not even layers. It's just if Veteran Bodyguards sets Trump's. up a... Yeah, it sets up a replacement. It says if you would take damage, it goes to the bodyguard. You could have a veteran bodyguard and a jade monolith in, in play, and if you activated the monolith on the bodyguard, it would be the kind of like having neither of them in play. You would just end up taking the damage. 
because the effect to redirect would get redirected again back to you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. In <laughs> other words, it. it's not a combo, but if you had some reason to save your veteran bodyguard for a while, which is legitimate, then um, then it would make sense to do that, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> we'll talk about that a little bit more later when we get to veteran okay. bodyguard. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about the art for Jade Monolith. Anson Modex has very clearly very strongly in my opinion depicted a jade monolith like it's very jade looking and it's very monolithic at the same time it's leaning back in a strange way and appears to be part of a row of monoliths that are extending off into the horizon which sort of stresses the definition of monolith for one but but also what's happening to this one why is this one leaning back at a 30 degree angle when the rest of them are just upright are we meant to believe it's decrepit and being knocked over or what it could just be perspective odd perspective yeah i suppose the rest of them look pretty darn vertical though i don't know what to make of that i think it was just stylistic like maybe this one is just leaning tower of pisa and it's it's old and falling over a little bit it also it also appears like the jade it's like a vein of jade that's jutting out of the ground and someone has oh. car- has carved these these statues out of the out of the ground sure you know, rather than sure them yes having- the ones in the background appear to be yeah you're right they appear to be just kind of gradually carved out of the landscape out of a ridge right and there's also some strange orange red wave going on in the horizon does that does that read to you like something is happening in the horizon and there's blue in the upper right is the sky? Or do you think the the sky is red, blue, and the blue thing in the upper right is happening? I can't quite uh, read the activity there. I, I, it's it's truly ambiguous. Yeah. Interesting. Strange. Well, there you go. Jade monolith. Cause you know, maybe for it, so maybe much it confusion. Is, yeah, it may just be sort of like a, uh, you know, a kind of, storm in the sky you know like a fireball occurring across the sky right and the jade model is somehow protecting you know the the things within the the, the circumference of the structure or whatever and oh, keeping out yeah. keeping out whatever that there is. you go allowing you to put your creatures inside the or with somehow somehow be protected by the monolith yeah yeah i'd buy that it makes some sense well, for some reason, Jade has multiple purposes and functions within the alpha in, uh, you know, experience of magic. Because next up, we have Jade Statue, which is a wholly different thing. Also four mana, though, and it's an artifact, which is noteworthy. It just says artifact. <laughs> uh, two colon, Jade well, Statue becomes... Hold, hold, hold on, Kevin. What? It is noteworthy because there are not supposed to be any just artifacts in alpha. The <laughs> yeah, alpha what's worse, book, this one has power and toughness. <laughs> the alpha rulebook says there are four types of artifacts. Continuous, poly summon and mono so this card is like basically like red on all blast as an instant in alpha it's ahead of its time right i mean it's not supposed to be just artifact it's supposed right. to be something else <laughs> i don't know what i, I don't we know can, what yeah we can talk about the inference of what it really should be but you're right that is noteworthy it has the ability to, colon, Jade Statue becomes a creature for the duration of the current attack exchange, can be a creature only during an attack or defense. And then in the lower right, it says 3-6, though it is not a creature. As you said, Steve, it can be strongly inferred that this is not a summon artifact, right? It's not a summon artifact right. creature. It's pretty clearly not a mono artifact, because then it wouldn't work at all, right? It's also pretty clearly not a continuous artifact because right. continuous artifacts don't have activated abilities. 
And so that pretty much rules Please. us back to that this should be a poly artifact that was just not printed properly. I agree. Yeah. I think that's that's the conclusion. This should be a poly artifact. Not that you uh, can now it's it's debatable whether or not it should be printed with a, a power and toughness in the lower right hand corner, which you know by modern standard not. it is not. Yeah. <laughs> by modern standards, this is now, as you said, an artifact. It does not have power and toughness in the lower right hand corner. It just says Jade statue becomes a three six golem artifact creature until end of combat. Activate this ability only during combat. So the oracle wording has been pretty pretty obedient to the alpha wording in the sense that it's only a creature during combat, and you can only make it a creature during combat. Although the alpha wording uses <laughs> the word exchange, the you know attack exchange, which is right. um, hilarious. Right. Yes, so Steve, obviously, Great. our audience has already heard on thinking multiple ways how this card is so good in Alpha Card Forty League, especially in its its you know its predominant oh, feature yeah. of multiple decks. Can you tell us about that? Well, let me just recount the ways. So, part <laughs> of the reason it's so good is because it is immune from a large swath of disruption and removal, or otherwise things that affect it. So, recount: yeah. it can't be balanced. It can't be Wrath of God. Can't be, it cannot be targeted by a sorcery at all in terms of doing damage to it as a creature. Can't mm-hmm. be fireballed, can't be disintegrated, can't be earthquaked. It, it mm-hmm. can't be, even on your turn, it can't be. If you can't play your own things to destroy <laughs> it, um, can't be paralyzed, can't be terrorized, can't be control magicked, which is quite significant. Um, uh, it can be shattered and plowed and disenchanted because it's an artifact. But it gets around basically the vast majority of creature removal from wrath to, you know, to paralyze. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I think, I think it really does make it probably one of the best. It, as I said, it's either the best or second best creature in alpha. Certainly in alpha constructed. Um, we already talked about it being hilarious with balance and so on and so forth. <laughs> uh, I, I, there are a couple things I just wanted to point out. So the first, Kevin, though, is, so you point out that it's only activated in the, the attack exchange, which means that Things that have delayed effects, like a berserk, right, which says destroy yeah. the creature then turn. If you berserk a jade statue, does it die? A very good question, and I'm not convinced that the alpha rules are equipped to handle that question. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Um, but there are other things like that. Um, another question: pestilence. So pestilence requires you to have a creature in play at the end of the turn, or it goes away. Uh-huh. Does this go away? Prob- does pestilence go away or does it stay in play? Well, it depends on, is this a creature? The answer is no. No. No, it's not. But if it's not a creature, then can it attack the turn, it, the first, the turn this card comes into play? Because the alpha rule book, I want to give you the alpha rule book here. <laughs> um, it says here, it says in the alpha rule book, under summonings, it says a creature cannot attack or use a special ability that would tap it until you begin a turn with it in play. So the modern mm-hmm. rules clearly specify that all permanents cannot be used to attack or activate abilities unless they began the turn in play. That is not the case in the Alpha Rulebook. Right. The Alpha Rulebook just has that rule. Um, trying to see if there's anywhere else that it... There's another place that says that uh, under creatures it says the turn a creature comes into play on your side, it may not be tapped either to attack or to use a special ability. However, you may use such a creature for defense. This restriction ends the when you begin with a creature already in play. If Alpha, if Jade Statue is a creature, then it cannot attack. 
the turn it comes into play. If it's not, if it, and, but if it's not a creature, then pestilence goes away at the end of the turn if you have a jade statue in play. You can't have it both ways. You can't say that jade statue cannot attack the turns it comes into play, but also say that a pestilence stays in, um, you know, goes away at the end of the turn with a jade statue in play. Do you see what I'm saying, Kevin? Well, I do, but so let's codify what we mean by a creature, right? Because yeah. a creature is a card type. Yeah. Car- right? no, so I want to be clear. There are no creature card types in Alpha. Alpha has a section called creatures. They're basically, yeah. they, let me go, let me go back. Um, the card types in Alpha are, there's a list of them in here. Hold on. Let me give you the list. Okay. There are six different types of spells in Alpha. Artifacts, enchantments, creature summonings, instant interrupts, and sorcery. <laughs> That's what it says. Yeah. And then it talks summonings. about the, We've talked about this already. Right. About the, what the word summoning means exactly. On page 21 of the Alpha rulebook, it says any, it says creatures. Any cards with numbers in the lower right-hand corners are considered creatures. <laughs> now that's the that's the problem, right? Because Jade Statue has numbers. Has those numbers, yeah. Yeah, but then it says they are. It says they are brought into play by summoning spells. But this is not a summoning spell, right? This is an artifact. Yep. This is not. There are artifact creatures. We mentioned those. This is not one of them. It says summon spells are always summon creature type. Number one, <laughs> this doesn't say that. Number two. Yep. The artifact creatures in this set, which are Clockwork Beast, um, J- uh, Juggernaut, yep. and, and ups- um, Obsidian, Obsidian's Golem, Obsidian's yep. Golem, they do not say summon artifact creature. They just, they just say, say artifact creature. Right, which means that, that you have a contradiction here, right? Mm-hmm. Because the Alpha Rulebook says summons are always summon creature to card type, which means this is not a summon, nor are the other artifact creatures. And then it says the creature type indicates what sort of creature is summoned. And yeah. then it says all creatures have two characteristics listed in the right-hand corner, first power, then toughness, and then it says some other things. So the question, you could say, okay, this is a creature because it has uh, power and toughness in the lower right-hand corner. But clearly this doesn't say summon artifact. It doesn't say summon. It doesn't say artifact mm-hmm. in the card type. Yep. So you've got, I guess, what you would call a contradiction, <laughs> right? <laughs> so there's one other uh, contradiction that to these rules, and that is uh, the tokens created by the hive, right? Tokens created by the hive aren't cards at all. Yes. And therefore, they just can't be summoned anything, right? They're yeah. just called giant wasps. And it says they're creatures. So well, the, Alpha it, doesn't do a good job of codifying the difference between a card and a permanent type, even yes. though it includes a card like the hive that allows you to create permanents of type creatures that are not cards. So obviously in the modern rules... We know that creature is a card type, but it's also a permanent type. And in any card that's referring to a creature should be clarifying which type of thing it's referring to. Your but question least, about attacking versus pestilence pretty clearly indicates it's a reference to cre- uh, you know, permanent type creature. And so does pestilence, right? It's looking at permanent type creature, not, it should not be looking so, at cards. So just because, looking at the text, do you think that this, do you think if you, if the only creature in play or the only card in play besides pestilence is a jade statue, does pestilence remain in play or does it go away at the end of turn? In my opinion, it should go away. But that's not the most interesting question in my opinion because 
it, it, there are two answers to that question. One is that according to the Alpha rule book, Jade Statues is not a creature anyway. <laughs> Which, but it shouldn't be because it wasn't intended to be. Right? That's the whole well, point. Is it's an inanimate object that becomes a creature, and so it's not. I don't think that's a very interesting question. But I, I'm Your not sure qu- that I'm not sure that conclusion follows because the first sentence says that creatures are defined by having a power and toughness in the right hand corner. Uh, the yeah, part. but but that's that's true. At the same time. The hive obviously but, makes means that that rule but, is incomplete. No, no, that's but the hive—it's like, cl- it's clearly an incomplete uh, definition. T- two points in response to that. The first is that yeah. there's a the alpha rules also say remember that the card texts take precedence. The second thing is that the hive actually says treat wasps like artifact creatures. It doesn't say yeah. they are artifact creatures. Well, then, then there's obviously some ambiguity there about what treating something like a thing is. But my point is. That it's yeah. very clear that it's possible to have a creature that does not have power toughness in the quote unquote lower right hand corner. corner. Which yeah. means that you could say that I guess it depends on how you treat something like it, but you could theoretically have a hive <laughs> token in play and pestilence in play, and you and someone could argue that the hive token is not a creature for the purposes of pestilence. It's a very legitimate <laughs> argument. It's bizarre, but I mean, well, I mean, think according about to it, that but, one, according to that yeah. one aspect of the alpha rules, I would say yes. But yeah. that would obviously be ignoring a lot of other evidence to the contrary. Yeah. My point is simply that no one part of the definition of a creature in the alpha rules that you just read is comprehensive or fully accurate. Yeah. That's my point. <laughs> you can't Fair take enough. any one of those things and just make draw conclusions based on it because they're all yeah. incomplete and accurate. And if in some you draw way. a conclusion off one, then they might be contradictory to something else, right? <laughs> That's right. You have, because it you says just have summons to take are the always whole. summon, and then it, but it, this obviously right. is not the, ca- not the case. Exactly. Of and any of the creature, it's it's. I mean, so yeah. So the bit about cases. summons would would suggest that uh, a, a juggernaut doesn't keep pestilence around because it's yeah. not a creature, you know. And obviously that's well, silly. So you summon. have to take they have to take this definition of creature in totality in order to reach reasonable conclusions. Yeah. In my opinion, jade statue is not a creature. It's not a creature when you cast it. It's not a creature when it arrives in play. It's not a creature at any point unless you've activated which, its ability and you're still in combat. Which means under alpha rules, it should be able to attack the turns it co- turn it comes into play. Well, uh, see, uh, I, see, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with your conclusion there. But that's that's why I'm starting along the lines of talking about permanent type versus like card type, because I believe that that rule should apply to permanent type because it's the only logical conclusion. It, However, the, the rules are simply... Yeah. Well, that's kind of my point, though, is... Let me let me spin the question around on you. If you on your main phase, if you activate the hive and put a wasp into play, can that can it attack? No, because why it, not? Well, because the text of the hive says it's to be treated like a creature, and the rule with respect to um, creatures says that the turn a creature comes into play on your side, it may not be tapped either to attack or to use a special ability. So then you would. Why treat it are as- you Why are you attributing the like a creature phrase to be? more impactful than jade statues becomes a creature i would say becomes a creature is even more a creature than something that says like a creature (laughs) i just can't think how i just can't see how you could reach a conclusion that applies to the hive and doesn't apply to jade statue that's interesting um i haven't thought about this in advance but i think i think there's a difference here i think the difference is let me let me look at the text again does it actually say it says becomes a creature yeah that's persuasive I find that persuasive. I think that I think that's probably right. That's probably right. 
Yeah, I think that's probably right. It's it's simply undeniable that any definition of a creature that's articulated in that section of the alpha rules is is inaccurate or incomplete when taken with the whole of the set. That's just that's the <laughs> truth of the matter. And it's it's not very ambiguous to say that a jade statue becomes a creature. That seems quite clear to me. And as such, anything that applies or is implied by being a creature should apply. I don't think it can attack because it didn't come into play that turn. Uh, no, I now, find that persuasive because it becomes yeah. a creature and then the rule applies. No, I think that's right. Yeah, um, it does make <laughs> it does make up for an interesting ambiguity in the rules about attacking, though. When you talk about the difference between a creature, uh, the object that is a creature versus, versus the, the permanent that was that the was the creature. Type. Yes, that's yeah. where that's where the argument for allowing Jade Statue to attack the turn is right. comes to play comes to play. I'm trying to remember the Howl rules. Dave Howell, but remember the one of the original playtesters, but I think under his mm-hmm. rules, they allowed Jade Statue to attack the turn it comes into play for that reason. See, because that's really drawing... funny because um, interpreting that rule that way, I would reach the opposite conclusion. I would, <laughs> If I was applying just that rule that said that creature had to be in play at the start of your turn, I would reach the conclusion that Jade Statue can never attack because oh, it is never a creature God. from the beginning of your turn. That rule is not sophisticated enough to be telling you that permanent or the permanent that became that creature was in play. It's not that way. It's just like that creature. That is some sharp logical reasoning. I can't believe anyone would apply that logic and reach the conclusion, the opposite conclusion. (laughs) I would conclude that jade statues can never attack because they were never a creature at the start of your turn. Uh, Barring having animate artifact cast on them. Wow. Yeah, I I think one of the challenges... I find that bizarre. It's kind of like the jade monolith thing. It's completely bizarre. (laughs) Well, I think... So th- there's one way of interpreting a card is to avoid an, a totally absurd outcome, right? <laughs> like, I mean, you could just apply a general rule of interpretation that a logical, textual interpretation must avoid a completely absurd outcome. Like, for example, That's the, the, the Jade Statue example is is one of those. The the the, 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 the part about returning that, a creature to play from ten turns ago, right? That's the absurd yeah, conclusion. Th- that was the Jade Monolith example. I'm sorry, I say you're right. I yeah. meant Jade Monolith. Yeah. And also the Birds of Paradise that it just can't be used doesn't produce anything. mana yeah. yeah um i'm i'm really i guess it just depends on how hard you lean into textual interpretation the problem here is not i think with the card i think it's with the rules unfortunately <laughs> Definitely. because yeah because the the rules are just too screw screwy in multiple respects specifically the rule book just particularly the 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 definition of what a creature is and then applying that to this just makes it's just it's too contradictory you can't say yeah. that summons are always summon creature type. Well, that might be true for summons, but none of the artifact creatures that aren't Jade Statue actually say that. So, yep. <laughs> so what yep. the hell's going on there? Um, <laughs> I wanted to go back. I I did look at one point the text on Mishra's factory and to try and compare it to Jade's Jade Statue in this respect because ah. Jade what? I said ah, go ahead. Yeah, because Jade Mishra's factory obviously, you know, if it was an alpha rules becomes a creature under your interpretation and therefore can't attack. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, they actually, the, when I was looking this up this summer, they issued specific, so I looked in the comprehensive rules, which does basically have a rule that permanence, you know, blah, blah, blah. But they issued specific errat, uh, clarification and gatherer for Mishra's factory. On the oh, yeah. exact day that I was looking this up, <laughs> or they they issued it actually the next day because I was had a conversation with you about it. Um, yeah, in fact, they eliminated all of the original errata on Mister's Factory and on eight seven. 
<laughs> they issued all of this. Well, I think I called you on eight six, and this was on Gatherer. <laughs> <laughs> that was a wild, that was a weird day. <laughs> yeah, and they and they clarified. They said a non-creature permanent that comes that be, turns into a creature can attack, and its abilities can be activated only if its controller has continuously controlled that permanent since the beginning of their most recent turn. What I found interesting about this, it also says it doesn't matter how long the permanent has been a creature. What I found interesting about this is they did not. Both Mishra's Factory, and I have a screenshot of this, and Jade Jade, um, Statue had the same set of rulings. They added on 8.7 these rulings to Mishra's Factory, but they're not there in Gatherer for Jade Statue. (laughs) Definitely an oversight. So Jade Statue has all of these uh, rulings that were on Mishra's Factory, but not on Jade Statue. Very odd. Um, (laughs) Going back over time. So I, I don't know. I think... I think if I were in the league, the league authority, I think I would just have it be quite simple. I would say the Jade's statue is not a creature. Come to the conclusion based upon there's just, it's too contradictory in the rules to determine this is a creature. I would say that, that the, I would argue that the, the statement that begins the, the section on creatures, notwithstanding that is indicia of being a creature, but that is not definitive in terms of defining what a creature is. Yeah. So I would say the Jade statue is not a creature. For multiple reasons. It doesn't say summon creature type. It doesn't say anything. It, it, the text says it becomes a creature, which implies that it was not a creature beforehand. Otherwise, how could it become something it already was? Um, so I would say it's not a creature. Therefore, it, it's, it, Jade Statue in play, Pestilence would go away. And I think, I also think that your interpretation is probably correct that by becoming a creature, the, the sentence in the rule book that says, the Turner creature comes into play on your side. It may not tap either tap either to attack or use a special ability. Applies, but the problem with applying that statement is that it applies on an indefinite basis, right? <laughs> so I would. There's two ways of resolving that. The first is saying that the first time you make it a creature, it can't attack, which is absurd because it could be three turns after it comes into play. <laughs> Absolutely. The other way of interpreting it is just more generously saying just not textually strictly strict textually interpreting the the alpha rulebook here but just saying that you know if you make it a creature in a subsequent turn it can attack um yeah that's what i would do what do you think i don't know I, I, my interpretation in terms of applying it to something like alpha league is to just treat it like it works today like at a mishra's factory or whatever it's not very textual yeah it's not but at the same time it, your statement earlier is the real problem in here is that the rules are broken, right? Yeah. So you can't apply any one rule. You have to take the rules in some totality and you have to have some perspective. And given that, I don't think there's too much ambiguity once you take a kind of a circumspect view of the thing. Any one interaction between a statement and the rules and this card is problematic because the rules are broken and the card's legitimately misprinted too. Yeah. And so... <laughs> I just feel like you have to be a little more circumspect here because otherwise you you end up with absurd conclusions left and right. Yeah. A couple other things I just want to point out before we move on. Jade Statue being so powerful is partly – it has a definite and like very large toughness that allows it to survive combat with a lot of different things, including Juggernaut. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's large enough on power that it is a viable win condition. Um you know, it's yeah. not, doesn't take it's that really many a, turns. Three six is a real sweet spot, isn't it? it? It's almost, yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. Like four six would have been amazing because then it would God. kill Sangos and Sarahs, but still, three six is very good. Yeah. Very, very, very good creature. 
There's I think- something I want to something I want to add, Steve. Have you heard the fable of Norrin the Wary? No. <laughs> <laughs> Jade statue is one of a, a short list of cards in Alpha, and I don't know them all offhand, so I, I wish I could comprehensively rattle this off. But it shares a very, um, very elite lineage with being a card that created a character in its flavor text that was later printed in the game as a card. There are four cards. There are only four cards in Magic that reference or are quotes by Norrin the Wary. And they they, they tell a story, actually, a progression. Because Jade Statues, I'm just going to read the four of these. Jade Statues says, some of the other guys dared me to touch it, but I knew it weren't no ordinary hunk of rock, right? So that's Norrin the Wary in Alpha. A couple sets later in the dark, there's Goblin Shrine, of which Norrin says, I know it weren't no ordinary pile of, you know. <laughs> so that's continuing his ability to uh, properly recognize dangerous things. The third ever card to reference Norrin the Wary is Viscid Lemurs from Time Spiral. Now that's a large leap from the dark to Time yeah, Spiral. Is. And it's part of the the uh, flavor of the set time spiral that it's a callback to earlier sets. Love that. Well, in this one, Visid Lemurs says, or Nor- Norrin where he says of the Visid Lemurs, he says, Lemurs, is that all? Finally, something harmless. <laughs> <laughs> He's had a rough time, huh? I know. And then the fourth ever reference to Norrin in uh, flavor text is from Modern Horizons 1. Uh, which is well known Curves. to be much like Time Spiral. It's you know it's a callback set. Yeah. In the card Pyrophobia, Norrin the Wary says, "I hate this. I hate fire. I hate you for taking me on this route." <laughs> <laughs> this is just like this guy who's just tormented through all the magic right? flavor text. Poor Norrin. <laughs> well, and so this character of Norrin the Wary, Norrin was printed then before that Pyrophobia printing. So that's a joke on the fact that Norrin was subsequently printed because he was in Time Spiral. The card Norrin the Wary was printed in Time Spiral. It's a a, a one red, uh, sorry, a single red for a legendary creature, human warrior. Norrin's a 2-1, and Norrin says when a player plays a spell or a creature attacks, remove Norrin the Wary from the game. Return it to play under its owner's control at end of turn. And the so Norrin is... And the flavor sex is, I have a bad feeling about this. <laughs> <laughs> so this is... Uh, and Norrin is a, a fan favorite in EDH. Many and many a player has built an EDH deck around Norrin the Wary, and it's, he, he's very famous for being funny. I've seen some great altars of Norrin the Wary where he's completely removed from the art. It's just the same art when he's not there. <laughs> and uh, so I know many, many players out there really love Norrin the Wary. And and you can credit the Alpha Jade statue with being the beginning of the lineage that, that nice. brought Norrin into existence. It's also just, just, I mean, a really cool art, really cool card overall, Jade statue. Yeah. yeah one, one last thing. I think we spent enough time on Jade statue, although I don't know if you can ever spend enough time on Jade statue. But the Gamma... <laughs> version of jade statue specifically says when not in use is not a creature yep. now i don't know what exactly is meant by in use but i assume it refers to the activated <laughs> ability <Yeah. laughs> I, I have it in play it's in use now, um, the phrase in use is doing a lot of work there. yeah no, but that would have immensely cleared up some of these problems just to have that <laughs> right that statement like is not a creature that, I can imagine some hilarious conversations in Gamma playtesting with Jade Statue and like a removal spell. Like you've got swords to plowshares in your hand and your opponent plays Jade Statue and they, they ask you just kind of calmly, hey, are you using that? 
And if you answer yes, then they're like, all right, I'm going to plow it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. That's funny. <laughs> Ironically, pretty unchanged from Gamma in practice. All right, let's move on from Jade Statue. I knew that was going to be a fun one. I really do enjoy that card, although historically I've not gotten nearly as much use on it as you have. And I got to tell you, I'm going to say the same exact thing for this next card, because this next card is Jame Day Tome. The one, oh, the only, God. Jame Day Tome. For four mana, it's a mono artifact, and it says, four colon, you may draw one extra card. Not a terrible wording, honestly. And much simpler by today's standards, it's just four tap, draw a card. Well, Steve, we've already said many times before about how, how pivotal and central Jade stat, uh, sorry, J- uh, Jame Day Tome is, and... Um, You've already explained it, in fact, in a number of ways in references to the deck and and early control decks, as well as Alpha Card 40. So, uh, I don't know. What else do you want to say? Um, that's Yeah, I did kind of cover the ground, didn't I? You really have. It's an amazingly iconic card, and the art is also... I don't know if folks have noticed, but there's a face visible on the on the book. It's very yeah, cool. some creepy eyes with a menacing kind of toothy grin in the binding, yeah. Steve, do you have the uh, the history of the naming of this card right at the, uh, the tip of your tongue? Uh, JMD no. was was one of the early um, designers or, or testers of the game, right? Right. I don't remember who it was. Yeah, it, Joel Mick was Jolum Tome, so I don't remember who was JMD, but um, yeah. I, I, I don't have it in front of me. That's all right. Suffice it to say, this is another example of Richard Garfield and his friends putting people's identities, or either anagrams or initials, into the game. James Day is just a, a kind of an onomatopoeia of JMD, which was someone's initials, and I don't have the person offhand. The only thing I want to point out about James Day Tome, strategically or tactically, Kevin, is that um, as good as we thought it was back in the day, old school has demonstrated that it's even better. You know, like the Weissman <laughs> yeah. deck had like one or two back in the day, and like now the conventional Weissman decks run like three or four. So it just goes to show you how powerful this card is. The book and the stick, right? Um, yeah. Immensely powerful. I think this is the most obvious candidate for restriction. Perhaps Swords to Plowshares or Disenchant, but I think this is probably the most obvious candidate for restriction for environments of old school 94 where, where the where the deck is just too good. There's just a gentleman's agreement among a lot of players not to play the deck, which I think is unfortunate because if more people played the deck, then there would be more call to restrict this card, I think. In Alpha, yeah. in Alpha League, the, the problem with this card is that, is the 40 card deck. Is that, you know, just, there are lots of decks that can use this, but there are lots of decks that by the time you really get advantage out of it, it's like too late to win the game. You don't have a, a fast enough win conditions. So I think, I think this is a fine card, but it's not a card you would ever play, frankly, like more than one of, or at least more than two of, unless you were playing like a, a, a much larger than 40 card deck, you know, like some janky, like 60, 70 card deck, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's just, you, you know, it's just not something you're going to be playing with Ancestral Land Geyser, you know, in sort of some sort of like version of Alpha the deck. In a 40 card deck, if you get this, you know, down on turn 10, I suppose it's pretty good, but if, you know, how many times you're going to use it before you're really in danger of decking? Seriously, you know, unclear. True. Well, and uh, it's that concept, that fundamental tension, is one of the things that that players of the book were pretty well aware of over the years. Yeah, I mean, it's kind it's eight mana investment for your first use. Did when you played back in the day, Kevin? Did anyone? Did you remember a lot of people playing this, or was it just the deck players who played it? 
I mean, like, was it played? A, a in- lot of people, yeah, a lot of people played it casually. There were some of us who early on, not in necessarily the card advantage sense, but just really enjoyed drawing cards. Remember how I told you that I would just put Howling Minds into my decks, right? Yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't a spiky thing to do. It was just a hey, I like having more cards in my hand thing to do. So yeah, a lot of us played Jam Day Tomes for fun. Did you did you ever have people who use Jellum Tome instead of Jam Day? No, not a one. Yeah, I think to uh, get there was, the, the most. Yeah, out there was of definitely Jellum. a stigma against it. Really? Why? Ah, just because it didn't feel like you were getting anywhere. Like looting, looting is one of those things that casual players early on don't, in my experience, definitely did not. Uh, uh, take two like the card merfolk looter which is even too powerful by today's standards from a limited set design standpoint we didn't even play it we didn't even look twice at it like it's an incredibly good card and no one just wanted to like the looting concept did not kick uh, did not take to my play group and my experience for many many years fair enough but I hey think that's it, just my anecdotal experience well i think it probably took until like reanimator decks emerged the people you know for people to do use that so it makes sense that's part of it sure um yeah, I don't think there's anything else to say. Which just what an awesome, iconic card. Extremely expensive. And by the way, in the versions of the deck that run <laughs> three or four, they often run a number of Felwar stones on top of all the monsters that try and accelerate the book out yeah. there and also to support the activations, which makes Energy Flux even better against those versions. The card has been reprinted for many, many core sets and almost, I think, let me do a quick cursory scan. Yes, it's only ever been in core sets. So it was viewed in early days, and not just the early days, as a, a core tenant of the game, right? Alpha, Beta, Unlimited, Revised, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, and then 8th. So all the way up until, you know, modern. It skipped a, a core set and was in 10th edition. Then it skipped a couple, was in M13, and then Magic Origins. Then an interesting thing happened. For a card that was such a staple of core sets for many, many years, it was usurped. They finally realized that, you know, four plus four was just a little bit more than the going rate for drawing a card when we're tacking draw a card onto so many things these days. And then in M19, two years ago now, the card Arcane Encyclopedia was invented. What does that do? Which is, it's just a discounted Jame Day tone. It costs three mana and three mana to activate. And uh, otherwise, it's just a, a book that is cheaper and better. So... You know, Jame Day Tome will probably never be reprinted again unless they get into the business of printing some kind of retro old school products. Wow. And now this effect for this same thing in modern limited magic, at least, is three mana plus three mana. Yeah. Well, there you go. So it's been improved upon. That's right. No need uh, need not apply by today's standards. But there- Steve, I, I hope you looked at the Gamma version. No, tell me. <laughs> the gamma version cost two and two to activate. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's way yeah. too powerful. That would have been restricted back in the day. It would have been <laughs> absurd. That card's incredible. Well, it's interesting. You know, there have been a lot of artifact draw engines over the years. So mm-hmm. the one of the ones that comes to mind, Kevin, beyond, you know, JM Day Tome is Grafted Skullcap in Mud. You know, circle, mm-hmm. Circa 2003 Workshop Mud. There was also, you know, we mentioned Howling Mine and Icy Manipulator. Um, there's, there's also, there are a number of kind of versions of, uh, Grafted Skullcap. There's mm-hmm. the, um, oh, help me out here, Kevin. There's the, so Grafted Skullcap is the one where you, like, basically shelve your hand for temporarily and then you draw two, two cards at the end of the turn. Is that right? Discard your. So you're right, Steve. Like, 
we've experimented with a number in vintage, and then there's a few others that never made the cut. But grafted skullcap is four, and at the beginning of your draw step, you draw a card. Then at the end of your turn, you discard, discard. your hand. Yeah, yeah, which is functionally very similar in practice, though not entirely the same as Uba Mask, right? There you which go. usurped yeah. that, which allowed you to draw extra cards, but you never got to keep them. So similar card from a design standpoint. There was also the Mind Storm Crown, I think. Yeah, three oh, mana yeah. one that set beginning of your upkeep. You draw a card if you've got no cards in your hand. That was definitely. But if you had a card in hand, it damaged you. That was definitely used in mud. I can remember yeah, that for sure. Yeah, it was. That was better than that was better than Grafted Skullcap because it was one mana less. I feel like aren't there more aren't there more recent versions? There's, I remember playing against. Oh yeah, and vintage the one recently. Where you, the one where you vote um, on yes. your upkeep about whether or not you draw a card or blow that? everything up or something. I don't remember which one that was. That one is seen play with that ability. In Will of the Council in the last couple of years for sure. Uh, yeah, it was that one of the last um, one of the last big in paper vintage Eternal Weekend ones that we had. Um, but but before we went to Philadelphia, so it's not it's not as recent as I'm thinking of because it was before Philly vintage. But yeah, any rate, the um, and isn't there one? Isn't what there is that card called Council of the something? Isn't there also a? Um... Well, the ability is Will of the Council. Yeah. Oh, here it is. Coercive Portal. There you go. At the beginning of your upkeep, starting with you, each player votes for Carnage or Homage. If Carnage gets more votes, you sacrifice it and destroy all non-land permanents. If Homage gets more votes, uh, you draw a card. So it's basically a disc or a Jame Day Tome, kind of. Yeah. There's also... Isn't there one of the big artifacts that sees play now also draws you a card? I'm trying to remember what it is. Um, it's not the... the arti- du- go ahead. You're not talking about Citadel, are you? Which one is that? The Bolas is Citadel, I mean. Oh, no, no, no. No, I'm talking You're about... You're not talking about that. <laughs> I'm talking about a workshop artifact. Isn't there... I, what's the oh. um, What's the new double sphere that costs like six mana? And then... Yeah, ooh. that's the... The uh, the six mana, your spells are cheaper, they take a damage, that one. Does that draw you an extra card too? N- no, it doesn't. Turn? Okay. No, but there was another six mana one that came out a few years back. Yes. Ixalan. What made your spells cheaper and you drew an extra card. That's the I'm blanking on the title of, of that one. Yeah. yeah. It also prevents uh, planeswalkers from being activated. Yeah. Yes. That one was used for a little while to try and fight deck. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. The, Kevin, the one other thing I just wanted to mention was that uh, this might have been a little bit before your time, but right around the time Invasion came out, you know, we were all, a lot of us were playing Keeper decks, and the Keeper deck was so fun then because uh, um, a lot of us used Holistic Wisdom in Keeper. To go like infinite with ancestral, uh, yeah. and um, and then uh, John Finkel used obliterate in his keeper deck on the uh, invitational, and so obliterate was really funny at the time because it didn't touch holistic wisdom, and then you could get all the stuff back. But one of the things that I remember playing around with in my keeper deck, which had like you know moat, the abyss, morphling, you know ancestral, time walk, regrowth, you know all these good things, was planar portal because a lot of you know it was like you know. Jam Tome wasn't quite good enough anymore, but people we were still using Stroke of Genius and we were still using Brain Geyser. Yeah. Um, and I think one Factor Fiction, because Factor Fiction had just been restricted. Um, but Planar Portal was really fun because it was just two more mana than Jam Tome and then two more mana to activate. And you could just like two turns after using Planar Portal in a row, you could do things like Holistic Wisdom or Yogmoss Will or whatever. Um, obviously was not good enough for competitive, wasn't efficient enough in the long run. We also, by the way, once um, Invasion came out, we're using Dismantling Blow instead of a single Disenchant. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, uh, I remember hearing about those lists, but you're right. It was definitely before my time. But I, but but it was, you know, Jam Day Tome was the setup for Planar Portal, which was quite yeah. fun. 
Um, the 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 double sphere you were talking about is God Pharaoh's statue, gotcha. but that's yep. not a card draw one. That's just their spells cost more. But I and knew there was one. Life. There was yeah. one that was in that kind of realm. Yeah. There's another one that we haven't mentioned in, that is Staff of Nin. There was a whole bunch That's of Staff it. of Nin played. That's it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, there was a period where Staff of Nin was quite common. Yeah, with Metalworker co- combo and so on. It yep. was very powerful. Cool. Well, thank you, James A. Tome, for being such an iconic <laughs> card, the book, and <laughs> yeah. also for taking us down this memory lane stroll. Stroll down memory lane. Yeah. Well, Steve, the hits just keep on coming because now we're here to talk about Juggernaut. Except no substitutes. Juggernaut, in the alpha context, is a 4-mana artifact creature that's a 5-3. It says, must attack each turn if possible, can't be blocked by walls. Pretty good wording, honestly, you know, for an alpha card. It's uh, mostly unambiguous. And we've already talked about it in several contexts in this show and other recent shows. Juggernaut is, well, it's a juggernaut, right? It's uh, (laughs) one of the classically undercosted cards in alpha and it shows has shown up in format after format after format, both in an old school and a vintage context, and a few others. And really is, it's not a gold standard anymore, because it's been usurped, unfortunately, from a power creep standpoint, but still is a standard by which to measure uh, four-mana artifact creatures as to whether or not they're, they are a juggernaut or better. No two ways about it, right? I think one of the most amazing features about this card is its remarkable staying power. Yeah, There are very few creatures in Alpha that were good early and then were good 20 years later. This is one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, good, good early, 10 years later, and 20 years later. I mean, Kevin, we played this in our Vintage Championship decks. What was it 2013? Yeah. It was like Max Spheres yep. and Juggernauts and Lodestone Golems. So Juggernaut, I mean, there's not many creatures that you can say that about in Alpha. I mean, you know, just the, the... Of course, it's owing in large part to Mishra's Workshop. But... Juggernaut was a was in the very first, basically Magic tournament ever in 1993, <laughs> in the play by play described there. It was it was one of the spells used and probably where it gets so it was it was used in Sean O'Brien's um, Nether Void deck, famous Nether Void deck into the Void. Um, it was it's a top five creature in Alpha constructed today, but probably where uh, for for me the association is strongest is with David Price's. Teletubbies deck that he played several times in the late 1990s in the Magic Invitational mm. in the Type 1 section. And the Teletubbies deck was very simple. It was just Mishra's Workshops and a blue-black deck. Black sometimes for the Abyss and DT and Mind Twist. Blue for Mana Drains and Force of Wills. And he used four Suchi and four Juggernauts and sometimes some other creatures just to accelerate those things out. And then basically it was an aggro control deck, right? Yeah. And Teletubbies was then the basis for what we called TNT. Tools and Tubbies. Which was grafting tools and tubbies, which was grafting survival and the tools war chest, tools chest into that, um, that allowed you to, you know, with Goblin Welder, it was just unbelievably good. And Su Chi, obviously, <laughs> both being strong on offense, but also fueling more spells with Welder. Very powerful. And then TNT becomes one of the most iconic decks in the history of Type 1. Um, and then it ultimately leads to, you know, stacks and then workshop aggro as we know it. And then, remarkably, they built a sphere with Juggernaut in the form of Lodestone Golem. <laughs> and then reviving Juggernaut. I mean, just because you could play... I mean, look, I remember when Trinisphere came out, Kevin. We all thought that the the best Trinisphere deck was just going to be a prison deck, right? Yep. Because... Turn one, Trinisphere, turn two, Smokestack, and then especially when they print a Crucible, you're like, oh my god, it's definitely, <laughs> definitely prison. Yep. 
But the tournament, you know, it's one of those things where you put the hive mind to it and then results, empirical results flow in and you find out the truth, not theory. And the, and the truth was that Juggernaut was one of the best and most key parts to all those Trinisphere decks. And the reason turned out to be quite simple. It was just the most direct line to victory. Turn one Trinisphere, turn two Juggernaut, backed up by almost anything was basically enough, enough pressure, <laughs> pressure and disruption to win the game. And so, <laughs> whereas I thought Crucible Wasteland would have, you know, Crucible would have fed the smokestack. In fact, it was more often used with Wasteland behind Juggernaut. So you had these decks. Remember the Virginia crew down oh, there, yeah. Kevin? They were the ones who were Juggerstacks. Juggernaut, Smokestack, and Eric Eric Miller won a slew of tournaments on the back of Juggernaut and Trinisphere mm-hmm. more than anything else in the in the middle aughts. So so there you have it. And then I remember I played Rich Shea. The last time I played him in paper, which is I think around 2013, was in a Columbus tournament. He was playing, I think, a TPS deck, and I was playing the, the workshop deck that just had all the spheres you could play, <laughs> including like Frex, all the Frexian metamorphs and sculpting steels um, and juggernauts and lodestone golems and just crushed him. But um, there you have it. Juggernaut has an immense staying power. Now, it's not very good at the moment, but... Yeah. You never know. You never know. Yeah, Juggernaut's staying power, and I would I would contrast that to a number of other creatures we've talked about where either they were far too good at their time, right, for their, their cost ratio, and, and had to be retired. I'm thinking of, like, Hypnotic Spectre, which obviously did make a little bit of a return, but you, you see the point. Uh, as compared to other things that were <clears throat> far inferior at the time and were overprinted and eventually retired mercifully, things like Grey Ogre and Granite Gargoyle and several other things, you know. Juggernaut really is, as you said it, the sweet spot. It has a really strange reprint history because it was in Alphabet Unlimited and revised, and then it took a long time off after revised. It wasn't reprinted again until Darksteel, which is strange. Oh, and yeah. then 10th edition, and then it was in some supplementary sets. It was in M11, and then it took another break until M15. Then some more reprint sets like Eternal Masters. Then it was in Dominaria. So it keeps coming back. It keeps popping up every couple of years and from a core set standpoint. And obviously Dominaria is not a core set, but it's it was core set-like. And strangely enough, did you know that Juggernaut was printed this year again? It's It's in Jumpstart. The Jumpstart Booster wow. Draft product, not not just Booster Draft, but the, the combined boosters limited play product. Um, so, yeah, Juggernaut, absolutely. The test of time, not consistent. It's actually pretty strangely inconsistent. But at the same time, in multiple different products, in multiple different contexts, mostly core sets, but not entirely. A couple of reprint sets, a role player in sets like EMA and Battle Bond. It's just... Um, yeah, it's it's a cool card that when you need this kind of effect, it's still properly costed. It's pretty cool for an uncommon. Yeah, love Juggernaut. I, Steve, I want to get your thoughts on the original art. This art only existed in Alphabet Unlimited Revised. It was in, well, it was in Summer. And it was reused one more time as an F&M foil. So like the Icy Manipulator foils, you can get this in a, a silver border, not silver border, but silver framed uh, foil if you want it but what's your read on and maybe try not to look at the art too much before you answer the first time but what's your read on what's going on in the alpha art well i've always thought that this <clears throat> that this 
character in the foreground is basically running from a, a machine, mm-hmm. you know, the juggernaut. Not that there's a guy in the juggernaut, but that the the the, the monster is the machine, you know. Yeah. Um, that's that's what, what do you I thought. make of the yeah? What do you make is of the giant sort of like a figure? Contra- you know, like a, it's basically like a tractor, like kind of like a tractor, but. <laughs> Right. So, what do you make well, of the figure? So, I think that the, sorry, I, the figure is either one of two things. It's either sitting in the machine, which is most likely, or it's part of the machine. You know, and our, and, but I, I think it's more likely than not that it's sitting in the machine. <laughs> that's right? fair. I think that's a totally fair reasoning. Now, read the flavor text. What? Do you- I'll read it for you. For our audience, I mean. We had taken refuge in a small cave, thinking the entrance was too narrow for it to follow. To our horror, its gigantic head smashed into the mountainside, ripping itself a new entrance. <laughs> now, what does that tell you about the, the thing, the creature itself? Well, it certainly supports the latter interpretation <laughs> that it is part of the machine, yeah. right? Yeah, no, I I love everything. I mean, I, I think there's a lot ap- appealing about this art. By the way, this is Dan Frazier, but it doesn't have the you know the the bleary enigmatic or monochromatic background. Right. You actually have a kind of a normal sky right. background, which is d- intended, I think, to show the enormity of the Juggernaut. Well, and it's right? it's without a doubt the the perspective of the um, of the whole art is from the level and scope, I would say, of yeah. this figure who's being run down and mm-hmm. arguably run over. Yeah. I think it's very interesting that the flavor text refers specifically to the head of the thing, which definitely ties that head into being the <laughs> juggernaut's head, which means that this figure, yeah, it's like this combination machine creature, this unholy abomination that is obviously built out of wood, right? And and metal and, and ropes and, yeah. and it has banners on it. I mean, so... <laughs> are we meant to believe that someone just built a giant machine that happens to have a very frightening you know face on it and it just happens to use that face to ram into things i i don't know like a kind of like a parade float yeah. or something yeah you you can't i don't know how much you can draw from the flavor text we don't know whether the art was done before the flavor text or vice oh, I versa know, I know. we don't know if they influenced each other or not um do we know what the art was on the the art on the gamma version is uh, basically indistinct. <laughs> it's unsourced, but it's some sort of comic book art that just looks like a fierce metallic thing that's hard to even figure out what it is. Yeah, that's really interesting. The, it's it's obviously Armored. something that has arms and a and a, a head. I was expecting it to be an actual reference to the the comic book character, the Juggernaut, but it's not. It looks more like a mm-hmm. stylized suit of armor that might also be a a locomotive or something. I can't quite tell. Well, it seems to be pretty in line with what became of the Alpha Art, though. It's some kind of combination creature machine. Interesting. Well, I have a, I have a pretty soft spot for Juggernauts. Uh, I played them, actually, as a kid um, when I first started getting into the game, just because for, it was a, it was an uncommon, and it was super efficient, and it went in every deck because it was an artifact, right? So yes. it, it definitely played yeah. well with that all the cards I own kind of deck building that I did for the first few years. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I, you know, what's interesting is this is just this card just fits everywhere. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. it's funny. It's in, I mean, it's the fact that it's in the original World Championship deck at Gen Con, the launch of Magic, up to through Jumpstart. The fact that it's good and constructed, good and limited. The fact that it's you know 
good in in basically every iteration of type one as we've known it you know through from what was called magic constructed to type one to yeah. vintage it's remarkable yeah really really remarkable. a very very well designed card in all respects i think all right what a run of cards we've just i know through. right yeah that was a really good run now let's talk about jump a much simpler card jump is an instant for a single blue mana, and it simply says target creature is a flying creature until end of turn. Kind of a funny phraseology by today's standards, but not terribly ambiguous. Um, Steve, I have to admit that aside from the fun art um, depicting a character very clearly jumping <laughs> over a, a castle wall, I don't have much, if any, other associations with this card. I don't think I've ever played it voluntarily. And... Uh, <laughs> And it's just kind of not very good, especially when the card Flight is in the same set. Well, neither have I, but I guarantee you that you have played a successor version of Jump. Oh, well, yes, that much is true. <laughs> <laughs> because there are about 100 versions of this that show up in Limited, you know, often with a cantrip or something like that, but um, or, you know, gets flying in plus one, plus one, or whatever. <laughs> That's right. Um. So, so I think that's really where the imports of this card lies. It's not in, not in this specific spell, but in the, you know, the the variants it spawned over time. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. Is it? It kind of, it didn't even linger that long in terms of reprint history. Like it was in ABU and then revised in fourth edition, and then it was never again until tenth edition. And that's the only, that's the latest printing is 10th edition. So it was pretty clear that this card got outclassed pretty soon. You know, even Healing Salve um, outlasted this. And, <laughs> oh, wow. and that's saying something. I mean, Healing Salve, we've talked about it already. It's decent and limited. This card, yeah, just far too weak. And you're right. There were plenty of other more powerful and or more permanent variations that followed. And I have played many of those. Yeah, I wonder how many jumps uh, Mark Poole has signed. Like... I just there are so many cooler cards in Alpha to get him to sign. Yeah, this is near the bottom <laughs> of the list. The art's not bad, but the effect is incredibly marginal, especially when you have flight in the same yeah. set. Now we we talked about the tactical possibilities mm-hmm. of jump. You can get 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 card advantage out of well, card advantage is overstating <laughs> it, but you can get some some situational board advantage out yeah. of jump. Yeah. But even then, you know, f- playing that over flight. Mm, Probably not. <laughs> I completely agree. Probably not playing yeah, either. <laughs> you're probably not playing either. <laughs> yeah. The art is really good. It's kind of a shame. The the art is it's a really good action pose, a really pretty good figure drawing, and and just very evocative of exactly what's happening in the art or the the card. But if this card, I mean, the, on on the other side of the ledger, I'm sure this card has far more in terms of successors than flight, right? Because for limited, mm. this ability. Yeah, the, I I know. would have to do a a pretty detailed analysis to really answer that of course but um yeah they both have lots of successors all right let's move on and talk about karma this is a fun one two ww mm-hmm. for an enchantment that reads karma does one damage to player for each swamp player has in play damage occurs during players upkeep affects both players <laughs> Now, mm-hmm. they they really were reaching with this language about trying to distinguish between player and player's possessive, and they, they, I think they overdid themselves in terms of complexity here. Steve, I, I mean, I know the modern interpretation of this, but 
this is kind of a disaster in terms of referential integrity from a textual standpoint. <laughs> what, how do you? How does the league r- uh, rule on karma from the alpha only standpoint? Uh, Kevin, league authorities have no card clarification for karma. Okay, so it must just be accepted that it works, if not exactly or very closely to the current oracle wording. And that is a very reasonable reading of the alpha text. The the phrase affects both affects players. Both players is the yeah, thing. it's yeah. doing a lot of work there. But um, I think it's reasonable to just interpret it the way it's intended to and the way it's working today from an Oracle standpoint. Um, the uh, Gamma version is... <laughs> the Gamma version doesn't have actually quite as good of a wording, even though it's simpler. It's just a four-mana enchantment that says each swamp in play does one damage to the owner during upkeep. <laughs> Which uh, obviously needed a little bit of help in terms of who it affected on which upkeep, which is why the the alpha wording right. is a little labored, I think, in that sense. It's worth interest. It's yeah. it's noteworthy, and I don't know if it really mattered that much in playtesting, but in in the gamma version, the swamps are the things doing the damage, and in the alpha version, the card karma is doing the damage. So karma is it- prevented by a circle protection white, whereas in gamma, it would not have been interesting. In beta, they took out that phrase, affects both players. Did they? So I didn't look at the beta wording yet. So the beta wording says, for each swamp in play, Karma does one damage to the swamp owner during the swamp owner's upkeep. Okay, so they they did some cleanup, which I think helps a little bit. Yeah. Right. Other than swamp player. <laughs> it was a swamp player. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this card's... um. I remember being totally burned by this in my early days of casual play. I remember, really? uh, yeah, I just, I mean, think about it. you got your black or your black red deck or whatever. Maybe it's two colors, maybe it's not. But, I mean, black has a really hard time dealing with this card in the the revised plus some of the early expansions context, right? And I didn't, yeah. you know, in the early days, I was not planning ahead for my opponent's killer enchantments all the time, especially not in my black deck. <laughs> and so there You're were, right. I just remember having a couple of decks that just, when this came out, I was like, well, I got to kill you in two turns or I'm dead. And that it, it rarely worked <laughs> out. <laughs> that, that fast? <laughs> uh, no. So um, a couple of things about that. Number one is just prima facie looking at this card, it does appear very brutal for for black players. Yeah. I mean it's just it just looks brutal. In practice, I don't think it's quite as brutal as it appears. I mean, if you just look at it and you don't know much about magic, I think you would think that this just totally hoses black yeah. players. Um in practice it deals, you know, a handful of damage a turn, so it's not quite two turns, um, depending on how fast you've gotten this out. But the other thing about it is that <laughs> it also underscores that there are just some brutal color hoses <laughs> yeah. in Alpha. And I, I, I think Gloom is more powerful than Karma, but darn, Karma's a good reason to play Gloom. Yeah, that's true. It's also worth noting that Karma, this kind of effect that's based on swamps doing damage at four mana, it gets worse and worse the more efficient and powerful a format or a metagame gets, right? Like, this isn't playable in old school, right? Those decks are well tuned. They're, a lot of their mana is coming from mana rocks. You know, this doesn't affect a mox jet, for example. And so, the more powerful your deck and your format gets, the less this card applies. And I think that's one of the reasons why it kind of stands out to me as the sort of thing that hurt me pretty badly when I was a young kid and when I was a casual, right? Because my black <laughs> yeah. deck didn't have mox jet in it when I was a kid. My black deck yeah. just had twenty or thirty swamps in it, right? 
And so that's the contributing <laughs> probably factor. Probably not 30, but... Well, probably not 30, but yeah. I wasn't always only playing with 60-card decks then either, so there's a factor. Sure, sure. But you take my meaning, right? As soon as you have a format that has Moxon, that has a Sol Ring, that has other things, that has Juggernauts coming out on turn two, this, this kind of card is just way too underpowered for that kind of thing. It's interesting to compare it to Angry Mob <laughs> from the Dark, <laughs> which, which is a creature, mm-hmm. a human creature that, that has Trample, and basically gets power and toughness of two plus the number of swamps your opponent controls. Same mana cost yeah. as Karma. Yeah. Uh, Andrew Tucker art. Yeah. Awesome. Drew yeah, Tucker that's that's cool comparison. And, and obviously, Anger Mob was trying to evoke this this exact effect from a top-down standpoint. Right. And and then the Trample gives it a little bit more, you know, through power. Yeah. But um, yeah, Karma, powerful. Angry Mob, I, I, remember angry, I remember actually thinking about Angry Mob against players when they were playing too many hypnotic specter yeah. decks, you know, getting annoyed by that. <laughs> um, but no, I just think built into magic, it just shows you how built into magic, they, they they do not want you to be too narrow, right, in any single respect, or they're going to punish the hell out of you yeah. with some of these types of effects. Yeah. And as we said before... And karma is a good reminder. Yeah, as we said before, those there's actually a fair bit of diversity and creativity within Alpha about how it's going to punish a color, right? It frequently Alpha goes after the lands, right? Her um, flash fires and, and tsunami, but it goes after the lands in multiple ways. Conversion and karma are two other flavors for how you can punish someone for having just a whole bunch of a certain land type. <laughs> yep. As far as of reprints, karma has a a strange pattern, and I think part of it is because it is a weird intersection of not quite good enough, but also too directly punishing. And so it was in ABU, then revised 4th, 5th, and and it took a break after 5th edition until 8th edition, and then never again. <laughs> so for some reason, in 8th edition, they said, oh yeah, Karma, that's the thing we're missing in Magic. But it was obviously outclassed, and then we'll probably never see it again. But inexplicably, it's legal in Modern. <laughs> so let's move on from Karma to <laughs> one of the most metal art pieces <laughs> in alpha Keldon warlord Keldon warlord is uh, 2rr it's a summon lord which is ironic not it's not a summon lord anymore but in alpha it's a lord and it says the x's below are the number of non-wall creatures on your side including warlord thus if you have two other non-wall creatures warlord is 3 3 if one of those creatures is killed during the turn, Warward immediately becomes a 2-2. And then the power and toughness, of course, are XX. That is just a whole litany of strategic advice to tell you that <laughs> <laughs> this thing is XX. I think that's pretty funny. And in, in case you don't know this art, I mean, I, I know a lot of longtime players are nodding sagely along with us right now that, yes, this art is totally metal. This looks like a whole bunch of just 80s, you know hair metal bands and and yeah. the kind of embarrassing like a record yeah, cover. embarrassing <laughs> wet dream of of male fantasy power that is just just completely <laughs> ridiculous this person has a, a helm with antlers sticking out in all directions and completely ridiculous musculature with a sword that is way too big for their body and riding a black horse like with flaming castle in the background uh, it's awesome. just ridiculous. <laughs> uh, 
But yeah, if you had put this on a black T-shirt with any number of obscene, you know, highly stylized lettering above it, you could completely buy that this. Black Sabbath. Yeah, you completely yeah. buy this as yeah. an '80s hair metal band. That's so funny. Uh, <laughs> it's also yeah, the text is is, is equally hilarious here. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that it counts non-wall creatures. This is just playing into some of the wall sub theme of the set, right? That they yeah. didn't want you to get credit. Like this warlord is leading all your troops, but it's not leading the walls, right? <laughs> yeah. So it also says it also says summon lord, which is interesting language, isn't it? Yeah. Because the conception of lords were were slightly different in alpha. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We've already talked about what that means with respect to the. Lord, the other creature lords and using the definition that we like today which um you know ref- yes, yeah used to tribal lords and the things that pump other creatures of the same type this is not one of those things in fact the there are no creatures anymore in magic with the type lord that type has been fully retired and is only used in the titles or the names of creatures that's too bad it is a little bit of a shame but i think part of that is is cultural right uh the word Lord has become so ingrained in the culture that they don't want to use it and have it be misleading for people. Yes, my Lord. <laughs> so in practice, I, I have played mul- many a Kelvin Warlord in my day. In practice, I thought, oh, this is great. And that's because, again, I was uh, a casual when I started playing. And one of the features of casual play was board stalls. And so it was completely yep. common practice for both players to have 10 creatures or whatever on both sides of the table. And this thing then became a house in those situations. So I've definitely played a bunch of Kelvin Warlords in my earlier days. Kevin, how many cards in, in Alpha scale power and toughness based upon some contextual conditionality? The answer is not many. And are you counting ones that scale with mana input, like Blessing and Ishan Shade? No. Yeah, no, no. exactly. Though that's too So that, that uh, taking out things that you can put mana into, the list is actually pretty short. There's Aspect of Wolf and then Gaia's Liege. Just creatures. There's Ga- Gaia's Liege and then Kelvin and, Warlord. And Nightmare, which scales with your swamps. Yeah, I'm not talking about... I'm not talking... Okay, yeah, that's right. It scales yeah. with swamps, not not pa- pumping my... That's right, that's it. right. Yeah. But otherwise, that list is actually pretty short. There's a couple of other effects, like the Color Hosers and Cormus so, Bell that you know scale with land counts. But from a creature standpoint, the list is very small. So both Gaia's Liege and Nightmare scale with the, the number of a particular land type you haven't played. This is the only card that scales with the number of creatures you have in play or a particular kind of non-land card. Which means that this is basically the predecessor to the Lurgoyf, except the Lurgoyf counts it in the yeah. graveyard. Yeah, that's a really good point. This is a very early ancestor to that, that, that line of creatures. And the only other thing that can really conceivably get as big or compete for its size, I guess, would be um, the ones that count your lands, of course, but uh, Rock Hydra. Rock Hider is another one that yeah. uh, can scale up in size, but that's just a a growing creature by it. putting man into it, right? Right. Right. Um, the uh, so I have definitely seen this play in Alpha constructed in Alpha okay. League, um, and all the mono red decks. Usually, it's because the player like needs one additional other thing, and so they slotted this in. And there's a kind of funny <laughs> dynamic with this where it's like, as you pick off your opponent's creatures, the things get slowly smaller and smaller. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And one of the reasons why I think it never really made any serious impact in Constructed Magic is exactly that. There's, there's, It's really hard for there to be a creature in Constructed Magic that scales up with counts of creatures that doesn't immediately get punished for all the removal that your opponent has. That's why yeah. Tarmogoyf, part of the reason why Tarmogoyf is so good is because it's 
comparatively harder to fight the quantity of cards in your opponent's graveyard. Yeah, it's true. And I don't think this is in, I don't see this in Gamma at all. Was this one of those ones that was tossed yeah, in? Maybe. It's hard to know. Maybe right? it's because Kev Brockschmidt really brought to the table this completely metal art. <laughs> and he just said, all right, <laughs> got to have this. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, the diversity of artistic styles in Alpha, right? I mean, as an art director, you want there to be, we talked about the diversity and the, the through lines, but we didn't really talk about Karma's art. Karma, part of, it's, when you compare and contrast Karma, it's very, very stark, yeah. right? Like Karma has this um, penciled line art, but it's also kind of really cool what's happening in there. <laughs> this guy's getting strangled by some vines, mm-hmm. and it looks like there's some flies going around him, his bulging eyes and exaggerated brow and nose, and just kind of you know, very figurative. And there's a lot of blood. This, yeah, blood, uh, a very gruesome, gruesome scene, but very flat, kind of you know, um, very uh, I don't know, comic book sharply rendered. Whereas the Keldon Warlord's more like, like you said, a 90s Frazetta. <laughs> very painted, very, um, you know, actually the art reminds me of Corbin. Okay. Richard Corbin is very much like I that. was thinking that I'm going to see um, this on Velvet in a, in a yard sale. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, to your point, but, though. It, but that's the, just diversity. This, of despite thoughts, the yeah. comedy proportions of the character, the rendering is actually <laughs> quite good, right? There's There's some use of light and shadow a little bit. I mean, it's... It's not, you couldn't be confused for photo reel, but at the same time, it's a quality rendering of a character, of a figure, and the horse is not bad either. Yep. It's a shame that the horse's eye is covered up by the sword. I would not have chosen to do it that way. I would have added some menace to the picture if the horse was also menacing. Yeah, it's true. It's hard to figure out where to put that sword, though. If you have it down, then it doesn't seem quite as... That's true. Down where it doesn't seem quite as intense. But <laughs> By the way, Keldon Warlord, by today's standards, is now a human barbarian. Human barbarian. <laughs> Strange that it's not a warrior. Thank you. you would think a warlord would translate directly into a warrior, but well, I don't know. It's, it's debatable. The card has been reprinted only a handful of times. ABU revised fourth edition, and then the last paper printing is fifth edition. So for some reason, even though effects like this still happen today, not just in the Lurgoif sense that you mentioned, but there have there's still modern creatures that count your creatures. Um I'm not sure why this particular one was abandoned so early. Um, how many creatures look at the number of creatures that you control? So let's see. Oh, see, it's, it's that's funny. It's a predecessor to the um, modern uh, ability that was just printed in Zendikar Rising, which is the party mechanic, which counts the number of creatures of four different types and that determines the size of your party which is obviously the the D&D inspired thing but this is actually Kelvin Warlord's actually a predecessor to that although it only looks at one type and party looks at four different types but there are yeah there have been a number of creatures throughout the throughout the years and even in recent years that count creatures or the total creatures you've got in play but as recently as Ironroot Warlord and M20, which just has the ability power equal to the number of creatures you control. Pretty straight up lineage with Keldon Warlord there. That's a three mana, but it's a green white creature with some other upside. So I just, it's kind of strange to me. Keldon Warlords doesn't seem so out of the realm of balance from today's standards that wouldn't have been reprinted in a a set in the last 20 years. It might just be too underpowered, honestly. It's a little underpowered, but at the same time, you could print it at common or whatever probably by today's standards. 
Oh, well. It's not terribly important. The effect is reused pretty reliably in other cards and other color combinations and other rarities these days, so it's still a pretty common part of the game. Just this one fell out of favor. All right. Speaking of cards that scale up with the number of somethings you've got, let's talk about Cormus Bell. Cormus Bell is an artifact. Costs four. It's a continuous one. Treat all swamps in play as 1-1 creatures. Now they can be enchanted, killed, and so forth. And they can be tapped either for mana or to attack. Swamps have no color. They are not considered black cards. So this this basically has identical text to living lands, except in that case it's forest instead of instead of swamps. Mm-hmm. And green instead of black. Basically identical. By the way, one being an enchantment, the other being an artifact, continuous artifact. Which goes back to our discussion about what is an artifact and what's an enchantment? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. These two really definitely stress that ability. That aside from the top-down dis- difference between a bell and lands being living, right? Which that makes the case for an object versus an, an enchantment of sorts. But otherwise, the effect being exactly the same is kind of a head scratcher. <laughs> Kevin, do you think this is primarily an offensive card or a kind of like? tactical card like a tabernacle (laughs) i I love that question i was actually going to ask you the same thing but more in practice in my opinion the implication is that this is an offensive card like the but that's just my bent on it because if it's a defensive card then it it veers more over into the color hoser realm like if your Mm -hmm. opponent's not playing black then why did you bring this in or why did you play this right so that's why I just feel like to get efficient use out of it, it's an offensive card. But that's not to say that there aren't a number of interactions or ways to abuse it, right? You could play, you could le- legitimately put Cormus Bell and Cyclopean Tomb into a deck and play like a Stax variant in Alpha. You know, just every every turn, pick off your opponent's lands with turning them into the swamps and then killing them with a Prodigal Sorcerer, right? So there's definitely proactive ways to use this in a griefer fashion, in a color hoser fashion in Alpha. <laughs> and I love that part about it. Earthquake. When I, I played it as a kid a couple of times, and it was only ever in mono black decks where I had Bad Moon, right? And I was just swinging at my opponent with a bunch Ooh. of 2-2 swamps. How'd that work out for ah, Mostly it was pretty good. You know, there's there's some inherent risk. I definitely got wrathed a couple of times when all my swamps died. But, you know, that's that's working as intended, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, for four mana, both Living Lands and this are four mm-hmm. mana. And you get them down, and, you know, immediately you've got a quite a bit of con- considerable power on the board, right? Oh, yeah. It can be. But, especially late game. Yeah. I don't know there's there's much more to say about it. It's, it's a very interesting card. I mean, Tabernacle, of course, makes plus this could be pretty brutal for your opponent. Um, also, uh, what was the other combination that we talked about, Kevin? Uh, um, I mean, it's targeted. So the problem with this is it's either a cyborg card or you are the one, right? right. You're playing the swamps. Right. Um, it is a pretty cool roundabout way to punish uh, the swamp having player, right? We just reviewed karma a minute ago. So obviously karma is a pretty direct way to do it, but if you, it, you could be understood to, well, for one, if you're not playing white, but you could take another creative approach to fighting against your opponents uh, who's playing black. You could, maybe you're already a tabernacle deck, and then you just bring this in and it, it hoses them much more than it hoses you, right? Or, like I said, maybe you're a Tim deck and just bringing this in in a tactical time lets you just house their creatures in a way that they weren't expecting, Maybe you're an Earthquake deck, right? So this would be a fun way for red to punish black in a way that 
Red otherwise has a hard time doing sometimes. So I, I like the way it adds angles of attack to against black decks. At the same time, I don't like the in that context. I don't like the fact that it's an artifact. I don't get why black gets both this advantage and this inherent additional risk from this card being an artifact. <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But uh, but whatever. It's a top down design for something that I don't understand. I think. And what is a Corvus Bell? I mean, <laughs> why is it? It doesn't look like there's a swamp anywhere in. How does it make swamps come to life? And doesn't look like it's anywhere near a swamp. It's, it's floating definitely in the sky. In the sky. Yeah, there's no, there's yeah. no of the the tropes of black evilness uh, present in this art at all, really. Mm-mm. Yeah, I couldn't explain it to it. I, I, if if Chris Rush were around to answer today, I wish that I could ask him what that art description was and what it means to him. Maybe someone knows. If you're in our audience and you're listening to this right now, and you happen to know the story of the art description or Chris's meaning for Karmus Bell. Please let us know. <laughs> oh, and the reprint history for Karmus Bell. It was actually reprinted a number of times. ABU revised in fourth, and then the last paper printing looks to be, yeah, just fourth edition. It was brought in Magic Online with Master's Edition, but uh, yeah, ABU revised in fourth, and then it just fell off the face of the earth and the face of the game, so to speak. All right, let's move on and talk about Kudzu. Another card that I don't think it has the uh, quite the heritage of healing salve in terms of mispronunciation, but uh, it is one that's not obvious and not uh, common in today's language. So Kudzu is a 1GG enchant land that says when target land is tapped, it is destroyed. Unless that was the last land in play, Kudzu is not discarded. <laughs> Instead, the player whose land it just destroyed may place it on another land of his or her choice. That's <laughs> some roundabout language, but the idea, obviously, is simply this is top-down design of a, of a plant, yeah. this invasive species gradually killing the lands. Yeah, it's a, it's a plant STD that you spread around <laughs> to all the lands. Now, what's, what's... I mean, I think this card is like a fun, whimsical, right, card, and it's nicely costed, efficient enough yeah. that... You know, your opponent's going to be incentivized to try and use it to get you to destroy your land and then so on and so forth. So I think it's a cool it's a cool card. It really is. It introduces the, the language introduces some interesting mechanical questions in my opinion, especially vis-a-vis consecrate land, right? Mm. Now the um obviously the language that says it you know the land that was the, the, oh, sorry, I got to I got to reread it myself now because it references back to the the player whose land it just destroyed is a hilarious uh, language that's open to a whole bunch of interpretation. But look at it in in comparison to Consecrate Land, which in, uh, we've already reviewed, but in the Alpha context says um, land cannot be destroyed or further enchanted. So what happens if you have a land that has Kudzu on it and then you play Consecrate Land on that land and then tap it? Say that one more time. Let's let's say you have Kudzu on one of your lands, and then you cast Consecrate Land on that same land, and then then it becomes tapped, or you tap it. Without looking at the cards, I would assume that Consecrate Land destroys the Kudzu. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. The first sentence on Consecrate Land is all enchantments on the target land are destroyed. Can't be destroyed or further enchanted. Darn. So is it possible for to get Kudzu and a Consecrate Land on the same land in the alpha context? Maybe it's not. I don't think so. Because when you cast a Consecrate Land, it's destroyed, and then it says it can't be further enchanted. And there's no way in Alpha to like bring 
enchantments back into like play. Like Eureka. Yeah, en- yeah, enchanting them. Darn. Well, so I guess the scenario I wanted to set up just um, just can't be accomplished uh, within Alpha. That's frustrating. Not frustrating that I think it should happen. I just was hoping to set up an interesting scenario. Either way, the the fact that Kudzu refers back to the player whose land was just destroyed is a obviously a hilariously roundabout way of achieving its goal. But you just whoever's land it blows up gets to spread it over to the next land and so on and so forth. It's obviously from a top down standpoint meant to kind of uh, pass back and forth between players, but from a practical standpoint, it's pretty easy to imagine abusing this in some kind of low land count deck or like a consecrate land deck, for example, or a land or a deck that was doing something else to avoid uh, in making the, the thing asymmetric, right? You could have a deck that was obviously base green with a heavy contingent of mana based creatures such that maybe you have two lands every time your opponent has four and you just stop playing lands, but can still play your spells. And then the Kudzu just gradually destroys all of their lands. <laughs> I think it's not only a cool design from a top down standpoint, but also a cool design from a bottom up standpoint in that deck construction wise, you can break the symmetry, which obviously we always love to do. And it's kind of cool. Mark pool art where a person is, ostensibly drowning in vines <laughs> which is fun <laughs> yep it's, it's the cool. card has a really stunted reprint history alpha beta unlimited and revised and then not again it was it was in summer magic but then didn't make it into fourth edition which is actually a little bit unusual a lot of things that were in summer were in uh, became fourth edition but this one was not wait wait a second wait a second you said this card was in summer but not fourth that's funny yes that's unusual yeah it's very funny I wonder, hold on, let me do a quick... Yeah, Steve, I, I didn't really think about it before and probably could have said it a number of times, but there are 50 cards that were in Summer that didn't make it into 4th Edition. Now, it's noteworthy that 10 of those are the dual lands. So, I mean, we all know that those duels were in Revised and never since. So if you take reserved cards off of there, off of that 50, then it brings the list down to 23. There are 23 cards that were in summer, but then not in fourth edition. And uh, and Kudzu is one of them. You know, I didn't know it until just now, but Kudzu is one of the reserved ones. Kudzu is on the reserved list. Yeah. And I, I've never thought about this card since I owned them when I was a kid playing with my revised packs because <laughs> I've never been inspired to do it ever since then. But it's just another shame. What a sad card to be on the reserve list. Isn't it? Because it's just such a fun fun cool design yeah no kidding but the so the list of cards that were planned for you know they're in summer and planned for that next reprint and then yanked from that set include 50. include several hits like demonic tutor and basalt monolith and sol ring and serendibifreet one of the famous um wow, misprints yeah. right and so yeah it's some interesting it's an interesting class of cards it also includes guardian angel and the card we're about to review which is lance <laughs> So yeah, Lance was in summer, but then 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 no further. Uh, So Lance is pretty straightforward. It is an aura for W enchant creature. Target creature gains first strike, and that's all there is to it. In fact, it's very similar to the alpha word. Sorry, the oracle wording, which is enchanted creature has first strike. Steve, you know it's funny that this is in white because first strike is one of those things obviously I associate with white, but at the same time. I was always just so happy to have a white knight instead of ever playing a lance. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this card really suffers from the efficiency of white's creatures in alpha because 
I never felt the need to pile this on to any of my white creatures. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a little bit redundant, right? I mean, it's just like white is already <laughs> has the first strike yeah. built in. It It's interesting. I mean, I think they basically... What I find interesting is that they decided to give certain ability, keyword abilities, on enchantment creature, enchant creatures and, and not others. So you have flight, you have lance, you have fire breathing, yeah. which is not actually a keyword mechanic right. <laughs> in alpha. Um, but not other things. Like, why not trample? Why not, um, you know, vigilance, right? which, which isn't a keyword mechanic, but you could certainly put, yeah. put a, uh, you know, a thing that says, Attacking does not cause this creature to tap. Um, you know, it's just, it's curious to me. And this card, it's not like, look, first strike to me is potentially kind of a dangerous thing to put on, on there. Um, because it's very powerful and it's not like there are a lot of first strike creatures, right? They're mostly small. Um, yeah, that's right. But, but wh- why not banding? <laughs> you have the, you have the, right? Why not have an enchant creature that says, this gets banding. It just—it's hard to understand why some things and not others. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, we have an enchantment, an aura that grants mountain walk for Pete's sake. Why did we yes. get mountain walk and not something more interesting like trample? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you. Obviously, almost every—I I, don't—I don't know this for certain, but I would believe that almost every evergreen and even many not evergreen keywords are grantable to creatures these days through the combination of auras or equipment. If there's a keyword that you right. want to add to a creature, there's probably a, an equipment, equipment that can that does it. By the today. way, was there was there ever an enchant creature that just gives a, cre- a, a creature trample that you're aware of? Uh, if there is, I don't know which one it is. So let's see. Uh, yes, the answer is yes, and the card is Primal Frenzy from Odyssey. All the way till Odyssey did it take us to get this effect. It's a single green mana, and it just has enchanted creature has trample. Now, there have been other better ones wow. since then. Oh, wait, there was one before that. There's one before that that does more than trample. That's why I missed it. Mob Mentality from Visions is a single red that says Enchanted Creature has trample, and whenever all non-wall creatures you control attack, Enchanted Creature gets plus X plus O until end of turn, where X is the number of attacking creatures. So that's in the lineage of Keldon Warlord, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well... Well, interesting. Not a very significant card, and it was, I think, appropriately removed, but it did, does reflect the judgment of, of the designers of the game on what they wanted to grant and what they did not want to grant. This also follows in the line of your recent observation of artifact versus enchantment. Why is this object an enchantment? <laughs> yes. Pretty, it's pretty indefensible that this is an enchantment. It's not. It's a stick, right? It's a pointed stick. <laughs> and it's also, it's one of those things that foreshadows equipment, right? A lance makes far more sense as an equipment than it ever will as an aura. All right, next up, let's talk about Lay Druid. This is a bit of a unique one. Lay Druid is a creature that is a summon cleric. 2G, tap Druid to untap a land of your choice. This action can be played as an interrupt, and it is a 1-1 one, one. There's not a lot of this in the early games of Magic. There's not a lot of untapping things to begin with. We just reviewed Instill right. Energy a minute ago. And there's definitely not a lot of untapped lands to increase their effect. <laughs> but by today's standards, in modern Magic, this kind of thing happens all the time in many different ways. And this creature yeah. has been usurped by many that are more efficient and powerful by today's standards. Now, we already mentioned that this card was used in Zach Dolan's 1994 championship deck. Mm-hmm. So it's... 
ensconced there <laughs> for a reason. <laughs> I think the whole card of you know ensconced in history for a reason. I think the whole card is just cool from top to from top to bottom, inside out. Oh yeah. The artwork is cool. The conception is cool. You know the the mystic. You know the the wizard is cool. Whatever this guy is, druid wizard. Um, the um everything about it is neat. Also, it just has a lot of cool combinations. You know. Oh yeah. Mistress factory, a wild growth up, uh, land. Um. Yeah, that's a mondo was, combo in in just alpha. You know, wild growth plus lathe root. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt, <laughs> mondo. <laughs> um. Yeah, there's lot lots of cool things here. Um. Trying to remember what all the combos were in uh in 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 uh Zach Dolan's deck with this. One of them was the fact that he had Meekstone, and then this could be you know tap to untap. Uh, presumably he could use this, of course, with Stasis mm-hmm. to get another another tap. He there. had Instilled Energy, did he not? <sighs> I don't remember. Well, either way, if you have Instilled Energy, this uh, serves the same function as the Birds of Paradise in our prior Stasis examples, of course. Yep. Which he also, I think, let me just take, take a look. He had one lay druid and, yeah, only four, only four enchantments, two stasis, a kismet, and a control magic. But, um, okay. Pretty cool. Well, and this combos with a, a short list of things. Oh, and the Library of Alexandria, by the way. Oh, there you, you go. You can combo with that. <laughs> this combos in the alpha context with a, a handful of things that increase the amount of mana that your lands produce. So the Gauntlet of Might or Mana Flare or Wild Growths of the World. So there's a couple of combos built into Alpha where this thing can produce more than one additional mana. But I was just about to say <laughs> that this card got way more interesting as subsequent sets were introduced into Magic where lands started doing things other than just tapping for one, right? As soon as you get um, uh, Arabian Nights, and Arabian Nights is all it takes, really, because of Library and Bazaar and a few other things like Elephant Graveyard and other fun things like that. And, you know, the the Island yeah, of Wackwack, the... Is that amplifies the effect of a lay druid or similar effects tenfold. Maze of Ith. Maze of Ith, yeah. No, I forgot the other combo card he has. He has a winter orb, which is obviously very good with Oh, yeah, there you so. go. Sure. So this this functions as not only uh, a mana rock under a winter orb, but also uh, mana fixing. Yep. Lay druid was reprinted, alpha, beta, unlimited, revised, and then up through 5th edition... Then it took a couple sets off and was in ninth edition. That's its last printing. So, again, <laughs> another another one of those strange patterns where it was a, a staple for a while, then pops up again in a modern legal set. It, the subsequent versions of this card have become better. You know, the most recent printings have either a lower mana cost or they allow you to untap more than one land or they have other ancillary abilities. This most basic version uh, basically need not apply anymore. Next up, we have a fun one that is, uh, I know, near and dear to our hearts for a handful of different reasons, and that's Library of Lang. So the library is a continuous artifact, for one. It says, there is no limit to size of your hand. If a card forces you to discard, you may choose to discard to top of your library rather than to graveyard. If discard is random, you may look at card before deciding where to discard it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this the the way this card is worded is is hilarious it's like they're jumping over themselves to just avoid certain uh, pronouns or certain you know connecting words <laughs> you can just use the word at or it occasionally it's not the world's not going to blow up you know um yeah <laughs> this card's really cool and it's actually still somewhat unique in just the whole of magic for a couple of reasons 
And But one of the things I wanted to ask you, Steve, is what your early experience was like with this card, either from a casual or a competitive perspective, yeah. because I had a strange relationship with this card in the very early days. <laughs> well, a couple things. So the first the first kind of intense experience of this card is the Masonette Balance deck. Because yeah. in that deck, that deck could basically use Bizarre of Baghdad or the Balanced to put the best cards back on top of the deck. So it could, it was kind of like a Sensei's Divining Top with Bizarre, <laughs> this with Bizarre, um, proto version of that, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those who don't know what I mean, I mean, when you activate Bizarre Baghdad and it tells you to discard, you can decide to put cards on top of your library instead of discarding, which is really awesome. Um, but this card is just kind of like a mishmash of so many different things that are kind of spun together in a unique way. <laughs> the second thing, the second thing that it is, is like every magic player, when they not, at some point, usually sooner rather than later, is going to be frustrated to have to discard. Yeah. Be like, you know, usually the solution to discarding is playing more lands, <laughs> right? But at some point, people are going to think, man, I just, I need something like a spell book type effect, you know, so I can have as many counter spells in hand and removal as I want, or whatever the case may right. be. Um, and so people are led to this kind of effect. But I, I, th- those are my associations. Um, the other association, of course, is Ben Perry as the library of Lang, <laughs> librarian of Lang. I mean, um, but so why don't you answer, and then we can talk about some of the weird things this card does. Well, I want to take my response in a couple of segments. The first is the early days. I opened this card in revised boosters, as you do, and looked at it and thought, well, that's weird. I mean, okay. Uh, and so I just I, I was perplexed about what it was supposed to be for. Now, part of that is because the <laughs> card has a lot of strategic complexity, even within the alpha set. And so yes. I was not good at evaluating that kind yes. of thing when I was a kid, right? And I didn't have an understanding of the full set that was revised at the time. And so I didn't know why this would be good. After playing a little bit and after doing a couple things like discarding down to hand size, I was like, oh, okay, well, I see the case for that. And then every once in a while, my opponent would play Hypnotic Spectre or Mind Twist. And I would be like, oh, now I see the case for that. But (laughs) still, the, the raw power of this thing in the long term really didn't dawn on me until many, many years later. The So moving on in time then... I never really understood the the value of this card until uh, Spellbook was printed, which seems like a strange thing to say, of course, right? Library of Lang was around all the time. I played with Spellbook, which is only half of this card, but for a zeroth of the cost, uh, in my five-color deck. In fact, I still have my my one five-color copy of Spellbook, and I have it marked up with a win and a loss column. <laughs> so every time I would play Spellbook and win the game, I would tick, you know, tick it in one box or the other. Um, and it's funny because colloquially, awesome. over time, I actually got to the point where I had pride about my win-loss ratio from the Spellbook itself to the point where I was actually... Um, I was actually doctoring the numbers in practice because if I was going to lose a game, I would sometimes not play the spell book because I didn't want to mark it down as a loss. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really inbred thing for my, my personal enjoyment. Um, so I have a lot of affinity for the card spell book and the, the library by association. But I'll tell you that the thing that is to me, this is bringing it all the way up to the modern day right now, is that there is only one card in magic that has this phrase. If an effect causes you to discard a card. Now, it's a very specific wording, so it's not to say that there aren't any cards that trigger off you discard. But the point is, is that this 
for some reason has survived the test of time um with being the only card in magic that can intercept the the discarding of a card right now and let you change where it's going to go this is the only thing that lets you do that there are some individual cards that when you discard them they have certain effects and there are other cards that look for you discarding to give you bonus abilities like waste not and and uh what's the the five mana four four that i like so much bone miser so there are other cards that look at you discarding and give you benefits. This is the only one that lets you do this exact thing, though. And so as such, the interaction you just mentioned, like with the Masonet Rack Balance deck and other things, it's still the only way to achieve that specific effect of, hey, I'm about to bizarre away my hand, but I want to keep this one card. So from that standpoint, it's actually really interesting and uniquely powerful. Totally unique. Yeah. Yeah. The, going all the way back to the alpha context, obviously, there's just this, this, this discard sub-theme within alpha, right? Black does a lot of it either aggressively in the form of hippie or mind twist or uh, for itself in the form of contract from below. And then there's the omnipresent disrupting scepter, which you've already mentioned all the ways in which that was such a powerful effect. And uh, it's funny how library of Lang doesn't actually help you with retaining card advantage when you're being, when you're being discarded. And I think that was one of the things that really killed it in terms of its place in competitive magic. Maybe in perpetuity right was the fact that yeah it's making the discard not hurt so bad but you're still losing the card advantage you're still empty-handed and so i think that's it's i feel like this card is a hilarious intersection in my experience of unique effects subtle power not obvious power and yet it doesn't do the one thing you feel like it really wants you want it to do which is to make the discard not hurt so much and it, it you know you're still losing the cards so I think it's fascinating. I love the strategic complexity of it, and I also associate it with Ben Perry, whom I love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same. We were when we were talking about natural selection, we had a discussion about. Wait, did we talk about natural selection yet? Uh, no, we haven't gotten there yet. We haven't got to. Okay, we were talking about. I think we had talked about library manipulation in Alpha yeah. at one yeah, we point. Did. I don't think we brought up Library of Lang. We had that discussion. No, we, I don't think we did. Just noting that the artwork is incredibly cool. It has a kind of um, waxy feel to it, you know. So you get a sense that there's like I don't know what makes me say that, but this artist, this artist doesn't hasn't done a lot of art, has it? Have they? Dan Gillan did how many cards? Sixty six cards in the whole history of uh, Magic, which is not very many, but still a couple sets worth. In the Alpha Beta context, he only did nine. Crawworm, Demonic Attorney, Fungusar, this card, Lich, Savannah Lion, Stone Rains, Wheel of Fortune, and White Knight. That's Dan Gillan's oeuvre in Alpha Beta. I do enjoy how detailed the art in this card is. Obviously, the figure is doing you know what you do in a library. They're reading. At the same time, there's just way more detail than is necessary on this figure. The robe is incredibly detailed in terms of its various folds and shadows. The book is just very well-rendered. Very mysterious and large, and you know there's there's visible text on it. The candles are are dripping in the upper right. There's you know shelves full of scrolls and other books and things in the in the left. It's really just fantastic. I love all the detail that's to, to be had here. Just stare, I'm just admiring the art. So that there's a he's going through these like stack of tomes, but there's a book that's facing us that has a cover. That must the book must be upside down because the spine is on the left. <laughs> I mean, the um, open part of the book is on the left, the spine is on the right, but you can't quite make out what it is. Yeah, 
Yeah, there's a lot to that art. It's really fun. Really. Speaking more mechanically, this effect of you have no maximum hand size, right? The spellbook part of the effect has been peppered in throughout Magic's history. And ironically, in the most recent couple of sets, I mean, we've got a card in Seagate Restoration in Zendikar Rising, which is a sorcery, lets you draw cards, but one of its side effects is you have no maximum hand size. The Really? Yeah. The, so the effect is actually... Been, is a sorcery effect? Yeah. That effect of of removing your maximum hand size for the rest of the game hasn't been used that often. It's only been on, to my count, four cards. Praetor's Council from Mirrored and Besieged, Enter the Infinite from Gate Crash, and more recently, Finale of Revelation from War, and now Seagate Restoration from Zendikar. So four times now we've had spells that give you that ability in perpetuity. Otherwise, it's been on permanence, of course. My favorite implementation of this is on the card Thought Vessel, which is a very popular and common mana rock from one of the commander sets that's now become a staple in almost all my commander sets. So ironically, I'm playing with half of Library of Lang on the regular in EDH. You know, just to underscore how much this does, this does three separate things. Mm-hmm. You know, no hand size. You you If you discard, you can put it on top of your, your library. And if you have to discard randomly, you can look and decide where to discard it, which I guess is part of this the second, but <laughs> but um Yeah, I think I think in practice cool. it would be implied by that second ability, but I do think it's meaningful. Yeah. yeah. Library of Lang has been reprinted a handful of times, but it never really made its its mark. I mean the, the most recent re- reprinting was in fifth edition. So we've said it a number of times lately. ABU through fifth and hasn't been seen since. I legitimately think that a card like this one could still be printed today. I think you would have to, by today's standards, you would have to beef up what it does to fight discard. And so, I mean, for one mana, it's doing a lot here. But it's worth noting that all the recent versions of this kind of effect that have this ability to fight discard, both from a hand size or from some other interaction, they all do more now. Spellbook is really the the only one in this old lineage because the subsequent predecessor or sorry the subsequent uh descendants of spellbook are reliquary tower which is a land so that you're getting maximum value there from this effect being free and uncounterable then after that was venser's journal which gave you no maximum hand spies but then at the beginning of your upkeep you gained life for each card in your hand like that's a big uptick the mana rock thought vessel i mentioned and the most recent permanent one was the magic mirror which is a big old nine mana artifact Costs one less for each instant sorcery in your graveyard. It says you have no maximum hand size, but in addition to all of that, you, at the beginning of your upkeep, put counters on it and draw cards equal to the number of counters. So it's a constantly growing kind of howling mind just for you, the magic mirror is. So obviously, the simplicity, comparative simplicity of Library of Lang has been usurped by either maximum efficiency, spellbook and reliquary tower, or much greater power, uh, Venser's Journal and Magic Mirror, plus the other sorceries that do these similar effects. So it's going to be interesting to see what the next more simpler implementation of these kind of abilities is because it would definitely be a return to form to have a less splashy effect do this. One thing that, that Mark Rosewater I think has contemplated before is, you know, much as they remove mana burn, having no limit to hand sizes anyway, mm. which would render the first part of this relevant. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> and render the card spellbook pretty moot, but uh, that's not a reason not to do yeah, a thing. entirely. <laughs> Yep. Let's look let's look at the gamma version of Library of Lang, Steve. Library of Lang for Gamma 
did cost one mana. It said owner doesn't discard at the end of turn to bring hand down to seven. And then it says owner can keep <laughs> as many cards as can be lifted. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> love it. As many cards as you can have to, you can keep. I love it. <laughs> it's like that supermarket uh, um, game show where you could just run through, <laughs> keep as much stuff as you can fit in your cart. <laughs> your cart under a certain amount. Of that's time. great. It's worth noting that this is so they powered it up for Alpha because it doesn't have any mention to the discard ability of being able to put cards back on top of your library. So the Gamma version yeah. is uh, not as good, even though it does mention that you can keep as much as you can lift. <laughs> pretty funny what a cool card now steve i know this next card is one that we're gonna have some fun with because this is one that you and i have talked about in a number of contexts over the years and it's always good for both a, a head scratcher and a laugh this is lich <laughs> yeah for the low low cost of b b b b you get an enchantment <laughs> that says you lose all life if you gain life later in the game comma instead draw one card from your library for each life for each point of damage you suffer, comma, <laughs> you must destroy one of your cards in play. Creatures destroyed this way cannot be regenerated. You lose if this enchantment is destroyed <laughs> or if you suffer a point of damage without sending a card to the graveyard. There's, no, a, there's th- just there's, there's so a, much to unpack. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's just let's just start with the emphasis on suffering that this card has. It's, like, it's, it's, it's some sort of Buddhist veneer to this. It's like <laughs> I, I I don't That's even right. know what to make of that. It's I mean it's it's you know I don't know if the normal vernacular should be something like inflict or take. I think today it's take right take a point of damage. Uh, what is it? I'm sorry, you're referring to the, the language for when you receive damage? Yes, Is that what you exactly. Mean? <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, in, in the basic context these days, the, uh, the, the, the n- nomenclature is dealt. Dealt. Whenever you, you, you are dealt damage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> De- dealing is such a, it's such a neutral way of describing this. This really gets you in the, <laughs> right, the, the sense of, of, of it being painful, <laughs> suffering. <laughs> suffering is so much better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree with that. This is clearly a, a very, very top-down design of the concept of being an undead being, right? Mm-hmm. Where you don't have life, and your your life force is your cards, right? And if when you take damage or when you suffer damage, you have to you have to shed cards in play. And when you gain life, you don't you don't grow. You just draw cards. You know, it's it's pretty sweet top-down design from that standpoint. It is, and at the same time, for being a top-down design, it hits on something very fundamental about the game, doesn't it? Oh yeah, that's a real. It's really it's a really uh, fascinating exercise in uh, translating resources, and we've talked before about many times in many ways about the power of cards being measurable by things like zone changes and their ability to convert resources, things like that. This is a very raw reduction of a mechanic that just shifts how resources are utilized and. It, as doing so, it's very, very powerful. Yeah. I'm trying to think of examples of siphons and alpha, right? I mean, the, the two kind of paradigmatic examples of siphons in magic that I refer to, I think they're wonderful for pedagogical purposes but and theoretical purposes, but also quite practical, are necropotence and psychotog. The necropotence <laughs> just being the case you just take life and turn it into cards, basically mm-hmm. no cost. And, mm-hmm. and then psychotog, you take cards and turn it into damage. 
it basically, you know, it, it direct. In other words, there's no mana cost intervention, right? That right. That, that there's no. I guess you could put it in kind of economic. And otherwise, terms. free translation. A transaction cost, right? Transaction yeah. costs. You know, channel is another good one. Cha- oh, channels are perfect. That's <laughs> the best and purest siphon in alpha. Thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> um, it's it's absolutely true. So channel being just okay. I'm going to turn your life into into mana. That's probably the third best siphon. I mean, it's the third kind of best example of siphon. It mm-hmm. might be the simplest, but it, Necropotence and Psychotog are so so simple as well. <laughs> L- Lich, Lich is interesting because it doesn't it doesn't take something you already have into cards. It doesn't allow you to draw down on your existing life or library right. or graveyard. You have to generate something once it comes into play. So it's not quite as direct. You know, it is. You, it has to yeah. be another thing that occurs, right? Whereas channel, it's like you've already got all this life. Presumably, you have you will have at least one point of life when you cast channel, and presumably <laughs> much more than that um, to make it effective. But for for lich, you have to draw it somewhere else, which means then, well, where are you drawing life from, <laughs> right? Yeah. And there are plenty of sources, but there really weren't great sources for this card until until the dark with. With Dark Heart of the Woods and then later Zuranor, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. I just want to sticking to the sticking to the to the siphon function. My God, this card is immensely powerful as a potential card advantage engine. It's just got this this terrible word here, this terrible bit that says you lose the game if this is destroyed. <laughs> as as terrible expressions go. Um... In magic, that's a pretty terrible one. Like that's it's yeah. really far up there. Yeah. <laughs> so there's so many angles of attack for this card for us to discuss it. Okay, we got to talk about its tournament performance and its place in various meta games. We've got to talk a little bit more about its rules, which and, and its language as it's written in Alpha, because it's just a cacophony of of issues and errors. And then I think we should just uh, finish up by talking about the art because that's what we like to do. So. Yeah, Steve, I think we should also we... talk about the, but I also think we should talk about it's the lineage it sits within. Uh, oh, ancestry. that's another good one too. You're right. I mean, We've got to go there. So, so I guess I'll let you pick where we start then. Well, geez. Um, <laughs> uh, what, why don't you pick? What, 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 well, let me just say, where have you seen this appear back in the day? Where, where have you, do you have any memory of this? Was, or is this just kind of like one of those enigmatic mystifier <laughs> rares that was eventually so, quickly cycled out? Or do you have any actually a, tangible memories? <laughs> it's funny you should say it because my experience with the card for the first several years that I was involved in the game is exactly as you put it, enigmatic. I didn't even see one for the first you know two or three years that I even played. When I finally saw it, I thought, wow, that's just amazing. It was totally mind-boggling. Of course, when I saw it, I think I saw it probably after a couple of sets had come out, like like the Dark Chronicles, maybe. And yeah. so my my if card evaluation had changed a little bit by that point, but I was still f- purely casual. So I looked at that and thought, that's fascinating. I'd love to have one of those. But it was, you know, it was upwards of 15 bucks or something at the time. I mean, I was never going to buy one. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> But the mana cost well, was really more daunting in some ways than the price of the card. Yes, right? it was very, yes, it was very alarming. Um, <laughs> but also, I had already kind of internalized what it meant to have four designated given my affection for force, of, force nature. of nature. Yeah. But I'll tell you, my experience with the card changed once I acquired a copy a couple of years later, like in college. And I purposefully built a, a janky 
60 card deck out of it because I wanted to do what everyone wants to do the first time they see Lich, right? I want to play Zurn Orb or whatever and sack my lands, you know, that kind of stuff. Glacial Chasm, all that jazz. So, oh, God, I love it. So, I'm, I mean, so the first time I acquired one, I actually put together the quote-unquote Lich combo deck, and it was terrible. I didn't base it off of anything uh, published or anything good. I just put together the things that are kind of efficient and translate resources, and it was fun to play. It really was. Um, mm-hmm. Then I kind of shelved it, and I've never really used it since. And I actually have several copies of this just sitting of in course. a box, unused. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin's and got I haven't really touched them since. Magic collection. <laughs> That's true. So, how about you? What's your experience with the card? Well, I I have no memory of anyone playing this back in the day, um, but there is a very famous incarnation of this that was in one of the mm. Baxter decks. Uh, sorry, mm-hmm. one of the Baxter books. So, Kevin, <laughs> I don't know that we've explicitly spoken about this during the course of this. We've referenced it, but. In the mid-1990s, around 1994, 19, sorry, 1995 and 1996, George Baxter had published a series of books like Deep Magic, Deeper Magic. There's a third title. They're sort of fun as old-school tournament giveaways as far as they go. Um, the the strategic advice in those books is generally <laughs> lacking, poor. But there are some interesting things that I think took hold. One was that he created the concept of designing decks around pockets, You know that you would have basically you know, potentially, what was it, 15 pockets of four, you know, because it's a very 60-card deck, and really did emphasize making your deck 60 cards to maximize the ability to find the best cards. But in there, he would eventually drop tech, right? Like, so you're reading an article mm-hmm. looking for deck lists, and he had a Lich deck in the 95 book, which was really interesting. Um, I won't read up the whole list, but he, he had a, a paragraph in there where he described how to go off with the deck, Mm-hmm. And basically, it had Dark Heart of the Woods, Fast Bond, uh, and a bunch of forests. And the deck would essentially try and get to a point. Let me see if I can find the, the, the key chapter. It was in Deep Magic. He said that what you do is you try and play the Lich at a time where you intend to combo out. So you don't play it, you know, and then buy turns and then combo out. You want to play Lich and then combo out the same turn. And basically what you want is he says the requirements for this combo are five lands and a mox with a dark heart of the wood and fast bond in play. Once the combo is set up, the goal is to sacrifice forests to draw cards with dark heart of the woods and play lands via fast bond such that you gradually but inevitably build up enough mana for a lethal fireball. So, so that's, mm-hmm. you know, the parameters of it. Now, the point you were making is like glacial chasm is so good with that because glacial chasm <laughs> turns the all damage you would take plus the fast bond damage to zero. And, you know, Dark Heart of the Woods is technically better because you gain more life, but it's mm-hmm. also more restrictive, so you can't, like, sacrifice, for example, a Glacial Chasm to gain life with the Lich right, um, right. in the final the final bit. Um, so, so so it actually does. I mean, those parameters are not that restrictive, right? But to get a Fast Bond, not restricted. Dark Heart of the Woods, not restricted into play. And then find a Lich, you could probably get there and just combo off at that point, which is pretty nice. Um but I think the most awesome and powerful combo with Lich, which was one that was never really used back in the day for a very simple reason, and you'll understand why in a moment, the most powerful <laughs> combo is Lich in Mirror Universe. Mm, yep. Because you can just play Lich, play Mirror Universe, win the game instantly on your upkeep. The problem is that <laughs> Mirror Universe was restricted back in the day. Um, <laughs> and so you could never do that. So, I mean, reliably. Now, obviously, the, the Necro decks, especially the ones that were played... You know, in the Magic Invitationals in the mid 1990s, used the Singleton Mirror Universe, but you didn't have four Mirror Universes like you have in old school today to play with that fun combo. Um, so that's pretty much what I could say about Lich. I think in in both old school 
but especially old school ninety five, Lich becomes a little bit a little bit better because you can the, the difficulty is just how do you deal with disenchant, right? And there are there are answers. There's the um uh Kevin, there's the instant from uh, um Legends that protects your enchantments from being destroyed. What is that called? Uh, you're talking about avoid fate. Avoid fate, yes. <laughs> avoid <Yeah>. fate. <laughs> you can use counter magic. But that's that's the inherent risk in playing Lich is that you could just die to <laughs> uh to you know to to a disenchant. If you can maneuver though into a position where you can let's say you're playing an old school ninety five format where necropotence is restricted, I could see you playing and in fact uh some of our old teammates um did come up with a nice Lich combo. Jimmy McCarthy and J.R. Goldman built one for a ninety five tournament they played at the conference yep. of professionals, which was pretty cool. And their list is pretty close to what I would do. I would I would play it probably more built around recursion, you know, more uh fast bond, more uh Zeranorb effect. Well they they had they had some of that, but I'd probably go more into that. Um and then you can you can probably just do somewhat like the Baxter combo. Just you know, once you've got a lot of things going, you can go either one combo route or the other. So you can go the the Necropotence and then just overwhelm your opponent route. You can go the um, you know time twister recursion route, or you could go the lich and just win that way route. But lots of options. Um, Kevin, what I wanted to talk about though, just well, any, anything you want to say in terms of the strategic applications before we talk about some other interesting aspects of this card? Just that um, when we get to the lineage, we can talk about how even though this card is very very powerful, the subsequent iterations of it I, are arguably more powerful. But go on. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I just want to say from a design perspective, so Kevin, it has the text at the beginning of the card that you lose all life, but it also says if this is destroyed, you, you lose the game, which would appear mm-hmm. to be a little bit redundant, right? It's like, if this is yes. destroyed, you lose the game for it's a byproduct of having zero life. Um, so I'm wondering if they should have tacked on the phrase, if this is destroyed, you lose the game. It, it seems to me that that's being, it's tied to the fact that you have no life. But it's not, you know, obviously this depend, it's dependent upon the iterations of the rules paradigms in which this is played because there were certain, you know, especially when Revise came in, you didn't lose the game until the end of the phase. That wasn't mm-hmm. true in Alpha, Beta, Unlimited. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering what you think of that, just that particular thing. Do you think that, that you lose the life was, was intended to be a byproduct of the destruction of the card or, or to clarify that because you lost all your life, you should be dead? I you, think and that, also, how do you think it should have been, should have been designed? So two questions I, there for you. Yeah, I think that the, there's two, I think there's two answers to your question because you can structure very easily the original version of this card without either of those tenants. You could either lose the game when it leaves play yes. or you could just be at zero life and the card would function practically the same right. in almost every respect, especially back in alpha, right? Yes. So I believe that part of it is a pure flavor element. Part of it is that sensation that I am existing at zero life, but but this card, you know, is representative of my life in a sense. If this goes, I go right. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think part of it is strongly to do with the top-down design element. And then in addition to that, it might there's a chance that it is effectively reminder text, um, in a yeah. sense. That it's, it's still codified in the language of the card, right? Um, because we know that Alpha is, is rife with strategic advice in the rules, <laughs> the rules text. So I think I can't say which of those it really is, but I have a feeling it's sort of a combination of those factors. 
And what do you what do you think would have been a superior design approach among the three that you just laid out? Having one, having the other, or having both? <laughs> I think that being at zero life is the thing about this card that stands out to me almost the most every time. Yeah. It's not just because the card starts with the little words, you lose all life, which is really dramatic, right? It's like a dramatic reading. Um, the other Lich cards don't do that. The other Lich cards note, you know, are of note in that they don't put you at zero life. They absolutely could. They just don't. Yeah. So the, you know, R&D has subsequently inferred that just the card leaving play killing you is the more important part. But I disagree. I actually, I genuinely feel like being at zero life is more flavorful. It makes the card feel more risky. It makes it feel more powerful to me. Just looking at your life total and seeing yeah. that. Uh, I love it. I love that aspect so, of it. So in my opinion, it's more flavorful and more fun to be at zero life and still living. Oh, I don't disagree with you. I was asking which of those designs do you think would be better? Do you think it would be better? I, I guess I'll just, I won't hide the ball. I think <laughs> that the card should just say you lose all your life because, and I, I think part of what you're trying to do is, right, it, when you take damage, you have to sacrifice permanence, which is perfectly mm-hmm. reasonable. I just, what I dislike about it is the th- the fact that it you lose the game if it's destroyed. I feel like you should lose the game only if you are at three life when it's destroyed so that you should have an opportunity, you know, under revised, mm. under third edition rules to you know, sacrifice a land to Zuranor or whatever the case may be. So That's I, your point. Yeah, I think that would have been because then in old school, at least, well, <laughs> you lose you lose the game under contemporary rules at the mm. end of the stack, right? <laughs> mm. And, and in some that. cases, you don't even lose. Does the stack resolve it's, if you deck? It, yeah. Uh, you deck, no, no, it's a, a state-based effect. So you lose, you lose the next time anyone would get priority. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right, which would happen you, at mid-stack. I, yeah. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be that way even if they'd made it that way in alpha today, unfortunately. But they could have made it, as you just as you said. They could just delete the last sentence of the card, basically, and it would still work. And it would give you the out to to gain some life after the card left play. Under third edition rules, right. And I yeah, think that's exactly. important because there are old school environments that play under third to fifth edition rules, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the the Nightmare 99, right, allows you to do the, the, the Mirror Universe trick. So I think I think that that would have been much better designed because it's just, it's just... Now in Alpha, there's only one card, two, what, one card that kills Disenchant, directly Disenchant, and then... I forget. Does Nevdisk destroy disenchants? Uh, you mean does enchantments? it destroy enchantments? Yeah. Yes, yes, it does. Yes. Yeah, so there's and then Chaos Orb, of course, <laughs> can yeah, destroy yeah. anything. But there's only a handful of cards that destroy enchantments in Alpha. I think this would have been just. You a got be- two. You got Tranquility and Disenchant. Oh, of course, Tranq. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it would have been just better if they hadn't done that, and then it would have allowed. And maybe they just wanted to remove all ambiguity. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to beat this this horse. But what I do want to just say is that. This is a highly risky card with a fascinating upside, and it has a very magnetic quality because people are attracted to it. They want to play. Right? Card advantage, once we realize that, this is a card that allows you to draw cards. There just aren't a lot of that in Alpha. That just That's say, true. You can draw cards, and there are plenty of ways to gain life in Alpha, even beyond the most obvious things like the charms we talked about are quite playable in Alpha League. Um, in fact, potentially broken in some ways. Uh, <laughs> you know, Plenty of other ways, of course. But but the point and is, this card, this card turns drain life into a super powerhouse. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that's the thing. In in the mid '90s, in the Invitational Necro decks, there were two types of Necro decks, Kevin. There was the I'm going to swarm you with weenies Necro deck, mm-hmm. but then there was the Mike Long version, which is running corrupt, 
right? Corrupt no. is a pseudo is a drain life variant. Um, so so there's plenty of kind of um, how do I how do I put it? There's a you know look if people can play an enchantress deck in, in alpha, you could pro- certainly play a lich deck with drain lives, drain life unlimited right. number of drain lives. <laughs> you, yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, fascinating card. I, I think that there's a there's a lot going on with this card. The casting cost is daunting. I think perhaps more, almost more than anything, because it really forces you into mono black, even with rituals. I mean, it, it, at least heavy, heavy black. You know, at least in alpha, it's it's mono black. I think in in old in right ninety five, you can easily play three color, heavy three color, maybe four color, even with green and blue is your your primary, your other two colors, your your primary, your secondary and tertiary color. But uh Quadruple black. I mean, there's there's nothing else in Alpha that requires quadruple black, Kevin. Demonic Horde is triple black. <laughs> right. Um, what's the next most heavy in black? Not even Nightmare, which is built upon swamps. That only has like one black in the mana cost, right? I mean, Lord of the Pit and Demonic Hordes are the next at three. And then that's it. After that, it's down to two. There's a handful of cards at two. Wow. That's amazing, actually. I mean, quadruple designated of anything was still pretty darn special up until Legends, when they introduced the Elder Dragons that had six designated, right? That was part of what made the Elder Dragons so so powerful in appearance, was just their ridiculous mana costs. Now, there were other things that had quadruple designated in Legends, too, especially of multiple colors, but the idea that you could have that many mana symbols in a mana cost kind of took a breather after Alpha. That like is- in um. Fast. In Arabian Nights, there were the two triple red creatures, the 6-3 and the 3-6, right. the, uh, the the right? The Jins, yeah. But in practice, Legends really kind of picked up where Lich and Force of Nature left off and started making just incredible designated mana costs. You know what? That's, that's really fascinating to me. There's nothing else in Alpha besides Force of Nature that has quadruple, and there's almost nothing, almost... Is there anything that, outside of the two that you mentioned that have three? Uh, personal Incarnation, Incarnation is three... Dub dub dub, and I think that's it. I think everything after that is two or less. Isn't that two interesting, or fewer. Kevin? Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? Well, it speaks to the meaning of designated mana in Magic, and this is something that I, in my opinion, Alpha gets pretty well accurate. And that is the amount of mana in a mana cost speaks to how much you know in that color, conceptually, flavorfully, and mechanically, the card is. Then why is Nightmare and that's only why one black? <clears throat> well, that's a really good question, and I consider that to be an error. Because if you look at Gaia's Liege, Gaia's Liege has triple green. Forgot that one a second ago. Gaia's Liege has triple green, which owes to its reliance on forests, yes. right? And Dark Pack has and it's triple a, black. That's the closest. Oh, there you go. Dark Pack has triple black. Yep, I forgot about that one. So you make a, a great point about Nightmare. A similar point could be made about Pestilence, for example, yes. which is just strongly yes. reliant on swamps. And a similar point could be made about, say, any blue creature with island home, right? Like a pirate ship. Why does pirate ship have only a single designated blue if it has island home? Um, These are good questions. But the point is, I think on average, I think taken as a a whole, uh, Alpha gets this very much right. The the median designated ratio in an Alpha card is pretty darn good. Yeah. (laughs) It is. I think it's actually pretty spot on. I mean, Shiv and Dragon, though. Red, red. That's it. Yeah. You can make a case for that being more with fire breathing. You yeah. definitely could. One of the things about Herloon Minotaur that we didn't really touch on <clears throat> when we reviewed it recently was part of it. Part of what differentiates Herloon Minotaur from Grey Ogre getting an extra toughness is how further into red it is. Now, you could argue that being more red shouldn't give you more toughness, 
which I would agree with. That's a weird position to put red into. It should arguably have been a 3-2 instead of a 2-3. But the point is, is that's the reason why Hurlin Minotaur costs another designated red. It's that much harder to cast because it's that much better of a creature. Now, you know, more designated doesn't always mean better. That's a that's a balancing issue, of course. But the simple truth is, is that that's part of what that mechanic is meant to convey. And that's why Necropotence costs BBB, even though that is under-costed, of course, we know by today's standards, that I, I just think that the early days of Magic actually didn't get that too far wrong. No, I think I think they didn't, but it, it's interesting. I mean, look, it lays the foundation for what follows, right? Yeah. And the fact oh, that there's this one card that's black, 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 black. Is, Farmstead is, is triple white, too. Oh, yeah. A, a very, the, the that's worst. another very white card, yeah. We would be remiss if we didn't mention the the gamma version of this, which is the same mana cost, is enchant self. It says discard <laughs> which all is remaining a foreshadowing. life. Foreshadowing. Discard all remaining life, huh? Okay. Yeah, got so it. yet another <laughs> use of the word discard that <laughs> amplifies the confusion. Um and it says you are not defeated until your opponent strips you of all your land. For each further damage you suffer, lose a land of your choice. So the emphasis there is on land. Yeah. Not cards in play or permanence. And no upside. Well, I mean, no upside apart from just living slightly longer. Yeah, I'm very, very glad that they chose to power this card up between Gamma and Alpha because the Alpha version has much higher risk and much higher reward. Well, what do you make of that? You are not defeated until your opponent strips you of all your land, which means that as long as you play land, does that mean you cannot be defeated? (laughs) (laughs) it it's it seems like a, a modern day variant of uh, Platinum Angel. You yes. can't lose the game yes. until all their lands are gone. That's really that's very, very different than this. <laughs> I mean, very much so. And also you'll note this doesn't have any clause about uh, you losing when yep. it goes away. Yep. Yeah. I mean which I find interesting. It probably I mean right, so if it goes away and then presumably the enchantment effect is destroyed, which means that you've lost all your life, so you probably die as a byproduct. But Right, it's like Platinum Angel. Once it goes away, you you can be killed. Um, yeah. If Platinum Angel also stripped you of all your life, that that's that. This Gamma version is a totally different card in ways I find to be fascinating. Completely well, agree. Well, Kevin, much more akin to Platinum Angel. I think, uh, yeah, I think this card is. I think Lich is a fascinating card. It's an alluring card. It's one of those cards you look at and you think, "Wow, this is cool." And, it, and I'm so happy it's in the set. It's it's just a fascinating, cool card. Could you just spend a little bit talking, a little time talking about its descendants? So there are basically only two. Now there are plenty of cards that have Lich in their title, and yes. uh, there's we'll lots talk of about, those. But that's, that's most most those. of them are creatures. Let's fork those. Yeah, <laughs> we can talk about those separately. But there's really two key descendants of Lich, and that is Nefarious Lich from Odyssey, and then Lich's Mastery from Dominaria. Nefarious Lich is the the closest to the original, partly because it's an enchantment that costs BBBB, and it's has the, if you would be dealt damage, remove that many cards in your graveyard from the game instead. And it says, if you can't, you lose the game. So it has that same, if you receive damage, uh, drawback with a similar, if you can't, you lose the game kind of mechanic. It also has, if you would gain life, draw that many cards. So it's straight up mirroring the life gain card draw. And it also has, when Nefarious Lich leaves play, you lose the game. So there's actually two different ways to lose the game with Nefarious Lich. But of note... It doesn't cost you permanence in play, so that element is completely different. And also, uh, it doesn't set your life total to zero. They they um, completely eliminated that part of the card, basically, tying your life to the Lich itself. Lich's Mastery, and from Dominaria, 
is a six-man enchantment. Now, this has a lot of knobs that they pulled on this one to make it more powerful. It's a legendary enchantment. It has hexproof. Now, that's a big upside, hexproof. It also has the phrase, you can't lose the game. Now, that is humongous upside as well. So it's got the Platinum Angel bit. Yep. Right. It says, whenever you gain life, draw that many cards. That's the, the through line through all three of these. Whenever you lose life for each one life you lost, exile a permanent you control or a card from your hand or graveyard. So maximum flexibility from what happens when you lose life. And then it says, when Lich's Mastery leaves the battlefield, you lose the game. So Lich's Mastery ramped up the power in the terms of it makes you immune to losing the game completely and also ramped up the power in terms of it makes the the enchantment itself much harder to remove vis-a-vis Hexproof. And Lich's Mastery was actually played in Standard for a little while in in a niche kind of combo control deck when it was legal in Standard. You know what this feels like to me, Kevin? Lich's mastery is the design intent behind Lich. Right? I mean, <laughs> I it's got a lot to that. It 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 has. If you were, if I were to ask you, if I was like director of R and D and you were working in research, Kevin, I said, Kevin, mm-hmm. I want you to look at the gamma version of Lich and see if you can template that from you know design a modern card of that. It would be darn yeah. close to this. It would have the you can't lose the light, you can't lose the game. Right. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. It, which this this begins with, you would want to protect it from being destroyed mm-hmm. directly, right? So that the only way this actually leaves play is through the kind of permanent process, which this has. Yep. Um, now, of course, the difference is this: that would be the original Lich is really around cards in play, whereas this is exile permanent you control or card from your hand and graveyard, which gives it more flexibility, so it makes it bet even better. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. It's this is this is amazing, actually. <laughs> <laughs> The mana cost is very high, though. Uh, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. But one of the things we haven't directly addressed is the fact that we're playing in black and the color of Dark Ritual, right? That's uh, not available to you in standard, for example, but uh, in internal formats, it's omnipresent. Now, you asked me about the, the lineage of the non-enchantment liches, and the short answer is, is they non-lich, are... non-lich liches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are not tied to the original Lich in any real way for the most part. There is a little bit of parallel in the card Phylactery Lich, which is a BBB 5-5 that says as Phylactery Lich enters the battlefield, put a Phylactery counter on an artifact you control. The Lich is indestructible, but when you control no permanents with Phylactery counters on them, you sacrifice the Lich. So this is carrying forward that notion that the Lich is tied to a thing yeah. Uh, just the way that you become tied to the Lich enchantment, in the case of all the enchantment versions, in this case, it's a creature that becomes tied to another object. So it's carrying that thematic part a little bit. Uh, otherwise, these Liches don't really have anything to do with, say, gaining life and drawing cards, uh, you know, sacrificing permanents exactly. They'll have various abilities. So really, it's just the three enchantments with a little bit of bleed over into Phylactery Lich to my eyes. Now... The the Lich card itself, the original, is a textbook reserved card by the ABU standards. It was not reprinted beyond Unlimited. And to my eyes, all three printings of the card appear to have the same language. It doesn't appear that they cleaned anything up between Alpha, Beta, and Unlimited, <laughs> which is alarming to me because this card suffers greatly from its own wording. What do you see, I uh, mean, aside from the, <laughs> the use of the word suffers? <laughs> there are... There are numerous problems, what, some of which are problems with um, how the text was translated into the modern era. So we can talk about that. But there's one glaring problem, which 
I don't know if the average reader or listener picked up on it when I was reading the card. If you're used to thinking about Lich in critical ways, you already know this, probably. But for those of you who are countering the card really for the first time or thinking about it critically for the first time, let me tell you what the four abilities are. The first one is you lose all life. Pretty straightforward. Sets your life total to zero. The second one is if you gain life later in the game, instead draw one card from your library for each life. That's the second ability. You gain life, you draw. The third ability is for each point of damage you suffer, you must destroy one of your permanents in play. Oh, so it's, it's, it's cards. Cards in play. Creatures destroyed this way can't be regenerated. So your damage means destroy your permanents. And the fourth ability is you lose if this enchantment is destroyed or if you suffer a point of damage without sending a card to the graveyard. That's four it. abilities on the alpha card. Steve, in Alpha League, what should happen when you resolve a Lich? <laughs> this is a, That's a hilarious question. Um, well, I would assume that you would go through all the abilities one one at a time in order, just like resolving a balance. So you would begin. So what happens when you what happens when your life total becomes zero? You lose the game, but so, yeah. sorry, you lose all life. Yeah, you would you lose all life. So you would you would lose the game, but you wouldn't lose the game until the end of the resolution of the card, which means until that, the end of the phase. You mean? Oh my God! It doesn't actually. Yeah. The no no the end of the the end of the resolution. It's not a sorcery. The, the, there's not another term. Of the the, I guess this would be then like a trigger. It, it's like a comes into play ability is what this is, right? <laughs> it is functionally yeah. right. It comes into play, the enchantment resolves, and then the effects occur, and it has basically CIPs and it has static abilities, right? Yeah. So the first right. is you lose all life is basically a comes into play ability. Mm-hmm. Today it's templated as a replacement, so it's as it comes in the battlefield. But sure. you're you're basically right. Right, and then the last is. It, you're right. It technically does not say you don't lose the game. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so for those not following, the, the alpha card does not protect you from dying God. due to having zero life. Wow. I there never, is no place on the card where it says you don't lose the game for having zero it's life. It's totally implicit. It's totally implicit. The oracle text of the card, the second sentence now is you don't lose the game for having zero or less life. But that ability is nowhere present. It's purely implied. On the alpha wording of Lich. That's fascinating, but it is on the. Don't play this card in Alpha League. (laughs) (laughs) Let me see what the. Let me see what they say. God, that's that's totally fascinating. It is so powerfully implied by the top-down design and all the other effects of the card that many people, when they read this card, never even notice that at face value it just causes you to lose. Just straight up, you lose the game. Now I'm sure there were plenty. (laughs) I'm sure there are plenty of rulings from the early days of the game where people said, "Hey, does this actually work?" And there were probably, you know, Beth Morrison articles and other things, you know, from back in the day that uh, that clarified that because the intent is obviously there. It's kind of like Jade Statue, which you asked me about earlier. You know, you asked me for my read on the way Jade Statue should function, and my conclusion was that if you take a purely textual interpretation of the rules as compared to the language of Jade Statue, it should never be able to attack mm-hmm. <laughs> because it was never a creature at the start of your turn. Uh, obviously, I don't believe that's the intent or the, the purpose, but this card is just kind of like that in the sense that, well, you have to read a lot into it for it to say anything other than you just lost. Um, the current Oracle text I will continue with, it says, if you would gain life, draw that many cards instead. Pretty straightforward. Whenever you're dealt damage, sacrifice that many non-token permanents. If you can't, you lose the game. This is another one where the card has benefited from some power level errata of a sort. Well, benefited may be the wrong term. It has been influenced by some errata over the years because 
The alpha language says, um, for each point of damage you suffer, you must destroy one of your cards in play. Whereas the Oracle text says, whether, whenever you're dealt damage, sacrifice that many non-token permanents. The difference between destroy and sacrifice is very meaningful, right? You could choose to destroy an indestructible permanent, for example, with the alpha version. And that would, that would work. But here's the problem. Would work? The sa- what do you mean work? <laughs> Wouldn't work? Well, the, per- the permanent would not be destroyed right. is what I'm getting at. Right. Yeah. Um, however, <laughs> the final sentence of the alpha lich says you lose the, the, if this enchantment is destroyed or if you suffer a point of damage without sending a card to the graveyard, which is bizarre because what it means if you, if you pull off that indestructible trick or say re- just regenerate, you could have a drudge skeletons and regenerate it and don't send your permanent to the graveyard. The alpha version tells you that you lose the game because you didn't send a permanent to the graveyard. So it's funny, the net effect of all this is that in the alpha version of Lich, you could choose to destroy a permanent, and then it would not be destroyed either because it was indestructible, like, say, Consecrate Land, or because it regenerated, like, say, Drudge Skeletons. If you chose to do that in the alpha wording of the card, it would cause you to lose the game. Because the alpha wording says, or suffer a point of damage without sending a card to the graveyard. And similarly, if oh you were using God. the alpha wording, now this effect isn't available in alpha, but if you had, if your opponent had Leyline of the Void in play, with the alpha wording of this card, you would lose as soon as you lost a point of life. Because no matter what you did, the card that you sacrificed or destroyed would never go to the graveyard, yeah. and you would immediately lose. So what, what they did with the current oracle wording is they switched the destruction to sacrifice, and then they completely eliminated that clause about losing if you don't send a card to the graveyard. So the card has been it functionally changed in so many very weird. corner and weird ways. Basically, yeah. basically, in a sense, if you're playing a Lich deck and you have, let's say, Darkseal Citadel, right? Yeah. And yeah. someone does, I don't know, plays a land destruction spell on it that does damage like a Thermocarst or something like that, <laughs> right? And you, and yeah. it's, it's not destroyed. Well, you would still well, have you still sacrifice permanence because of the thing. Yeah, you'd still have lich triggers. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Yeah, of but the point is in the alpha. Well, just just think about consecrate land. If yes. you had consecrate land on one of your lands, it is a valid choice to destroy that indestructible land in alpha to the lich. Yes, but Great doing point. so would cause you to lose. <laughs> right, <laughs> because yeah. Well, it's it, it just says you could lose you lose the game if this enchantment is destroyed or if you suffer a point damage without saying card to the graveyard. How would it? Well, wouldn't this Right, because you would be selecting the card that's protected, and it goes to the it, yeah. would, it would not go to the graveyard because it would stay in play. Wow. Yeah, and so the interactions with the card are dramatically different. If they had yeah. if they had just straight interpreted the alpha language the way it is today, it would still be destroy, and would have some rider that says if that permanent isn't destroyed <laughs> or doesn't go to the graveyard, you lose the game, and that would be a, a significantly different card. Because now, today, the, the effect says sacrifice. And as we all know, sacrifice and destroy have dramatically different interactions. Um, sacrifice can trigger cards that destroy wouldn't and vice versa. There are some things that prevent you from sacrificing things. For example, um, I'm, I'm blanking on an example off the top of my head. What's something that prevents players from sacrificing? Like um, uh, The only ones I can think of prevent your opponents from sacrificing. Well, there's a new there's a new creature that was printed just in in Zendikar, uh, Yasharn, the 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 super pig that says, um, 
players can't pay life or sacrifice non-land permanents to cast spells or activate abilities. Oh, that's only activating abilities. This would be a trigger, so Yasharn wouldn't stop it. Well, but anyway, if you had some kind of um, effect that was like Yasharn, but more broadly applied that said your opponents can't sacrifice permanents or whatever, then that would be a combo with your own Lich if, you could, if your opponent had one of those, because it would mean you would no longer have to sacrifice anything to damage you took. And that would be, I think, in, in direct contradiction to the, the way the alpha card is worded, which says if you don't, if you don't pay this price, you lose the game. Which yeah. I think is pretty steep, but yeah. pretty clear. No, I think we get it. Yeah, we get it. <laughs> so anyway, a fascinating exercise in this card. Uh, just uh, at every step of the way, there's something interesting about the, the abilities and how they were implemented, in, uh, both in alpha and then in the long term. Kevin, you said that the first ability is a replacement. Is it are all as comes into play replacement abilities? The phrase "as something happens" is it is a. A replacement ability. That's okay. the one of the identifiers for replacement abilities. Also, the usage of the word instead is a replacement ability. Go. This card actually has like two replacement abilities because the, the draw cards one is also a replacement. It says, if you would gain life, draw, draw that card many cards instead. instead. Yeah. Got it. Um, yeah. Uh, just a couple more footnotes before we move on. One is that I believe that greed and necropotence are also descendants of this card. It's hard to imagine oh, that they would exist yes. if this card had not existed. You know what? You're right. I should have called that out myself. And thereby Yogmoss will and Gristlebrand yeah, and yeah, so on. Yeah, it's completely so good. This this is the the grandparent to Necro. Kevin, the other thing I want to point out is that there has been a concerted effort in Magic over the last I don't know since M10 at least maybe more recently to match the language, especially the verbs and verbiage around Magic, to the metaphorical behavior that is supposed to be occurring. Right, so now combat, like combat's the big example of that, right? Creatures die now, right? Which we've talked about instead of being destroyed. Yeah. But the point I'm trying to make is that the language of dealing damage, of being dealt, is strangely, you know, it goes back to the the whole thing that you had about targeting. That in a in a logical sense, targeting should always precede whatever follows it, just as a matter of logic. But in terms of the concept of dealing damage. Dealt. I mean, it just sounds so neutral. It sounds so, uh, I don't know, neutral is the word for it. Whereas suffering <laughs> or infliction suggests something that's more directed, more more active, less passive, right? And so yeah. I, I wonder if, if someone someday wanted to clean up a larger set of magic language, if you wouldn't go from something like being dealt to inflicted or something like that, that has a more of a, I don't know, something of a stronger connotation to it, <laughs> That captures both, you know, the technical side of the rules of what you're trying to do, but also the import, the the connotation of what's happening. I wonder. If yeah, you... I'd be in favor of that. I, I totally would. Um, and I do think it's passive language, and I also think it's it's probably intentional, right? The the notion of making the game less, uh, I would say maybe violent is a strong word, but less <laughs> violent in the in its implementation of the rules. But se- sending creatures into battle against your opponent is inherently violent. I mean, that is... <laughs> I don't, You're not wrong. You're yeah. not wrong. But I think, you know, it's it's part of making the game a little more family-friendly, perhaps. All there's right. no doubt that, There's no doubt we're attacking, and that you just kind of can't get past that, but... Well, I think this card kind of foregrounds that by making suffering <laughs> twice... <laughs> uh, You're right. The, the, ...the operative verb. All right, well, thank you for this extended discussion of Lich. It's such a cool card. I absolutely love this card um, showing here. 
Oh my, my video God! <laughs> you said you had a few, Kevin. You've got a more. <laughs> he's he's fanning a half dozen at me. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I happen to have six liches. I am I am the owner of an alpha lich and three unlimiteds. So nice, nice. Well, the alpha one's pretty sweet. I think maybe it counts for t- for two or three. So we've got. <laughs> <laughs> well, in terms of monetary sense, it counts for ten at least. <laughs> no, I, not that. <laughs> so cool. uh and i i just must say that i really enjoy this art by dan gallon i don't i've never known how to pronounce dan's last name but he did a handful of iconic arts in alpha savannah lions white knight stone rain wheel of fortune craw worm fungusar demonic attorney yeah this is some some fun arts that he did that have stood the test of time in my opinion all right lots of fun about lich Next up is one we've already partly reviewed, and that's Life Force. Life Force is the uh, green equivalent to Death Grip. Uh, no surprises here. It's an enchantment for GG. It says GG colon destroy a black spell as it's being cast. This uh, this use may be played as an interrupt and does not affect black cards already in play. Now, we've already talked about a lot of the laughable language and some of the effects <laughs> of this when we reviewed Death Grip. The only thing I really want to add to this is a comment about its art. And a comment about the fact that this these two cards are actually a little bit of a lesson in how a parallel design across colors can yield different results. Because in practice, black is the color, especially in alpha, black is the color of temporary mana boosts, short mana boosts, right? Vis-a-vis Dark Ritual. Whereas green is the color of ramp, vis-a-vis mana creatures, land of elves, birds of paradise, etc. And so... The, the practical impact of that is that the, these two life force and death grip cards can play out in slightly different ways. Whereas black could, for example, play dark ritual death grip on the first turn and be countering green spells starting from turn two on, but not as many spells over time, you know, the, the, it would ramp up gradually from there. Whereas green could spend turn one playing a land war elf, turn two playing a yeah. life force, turn three, you could be suddenly countering two black spells a turn. So and then it can ramp that, up from there. You're saying you think that this is much better than Death Grip. They're not symmetrical because of the, the acceleration I'm, I'm sim- that, that Green has. Yeah, I'm, I'm simply pointing out that they're, you're right. They're not purely symmetrical because of the way that mana develops for these two colors differently. And that has become even more exacerbated as time has gone on. Green is far more the color of ramp. And if there were an equivalent pairing, say, in Standard today, the green one would be way more powerful because green is ramping like mad in Standard now. Uh that said, I don't think that distinction bears out too much in alpha just because there's not that much ramp in green and there's not that much explosive mana other than dark well, there ritual is, and black. Yeah. And well, I mean, there is wild growth and Lanawar and birds of paradise are green. So. That's true. It does have far more than black has, um, has uh, burst mana. So I think probably in practice, the green one is maybe a little more powerful in general due for that reason alone. Oh, yeah. Also, another, the flip side of that is that death grip is, um, I guess you could say a little unnecessary for black in alpha because the thing you're going to be countering more often than not is creatures and black already can kill creatures, right? Black has terror in alpha. Yeah. Whereas green doesn't for have green to be able to counter a black creature. Imagine green countering a nightmare, for example. Yes. That's a big game. That's actually a huge swing because green has a hard time dealing with that permanent. Otherwise, I think you're, you're nibbling around the edges, Kevin, but I think the point you're making is that life force is just far more powerful. And I think for, for two reasons. <laughs> I think it is. Well, I mean, you, you talked about it in terms of castability, playability, speed. I think the larger point is that just the, the black spells tend to be more powerful than the green spells, number one. Mm-hmm. And number two, and perhaps even more importantly, Kevin, is the simple fact that there are more mono black decks than there are mono green decks. 
that oh, that too that sure. you're far more likely in, to face like a green red or a, or a, a green blue or a green white or whatever the case may be than you are you know uh, um look you're playing against a green deck death grip is going to have a, a smaller radius you know smaller range yes. whereas life force when you bring it against a black deck I, I think I've seen this in sideboards against in old school yeah I mean I think this is just could a, be backbreaking yeah just a playable card against the mono black decks period. Yeah, it doesn't I do anything. It doesn't do anything about things that are in play. However, we should note that the the gamma. I think we've already have mentioned this, but the gamma version <laughs> <laughs> says cancel a black spell, or remove a black enchantment or creature for G. So <laughs> it's ambiguous yeah. as to what it means, but it certainly sounds like it's a you can remove a black enchantment or creature in play for a simple green, which is absurdly powerful. <laughs> yeah, the the out uh, sorry the gamma versions of these cards were just ridiculously powerful. There's not too many gamma versions where the gamma version was just way but better than the alpha version, but these are an example of that. Thankfully, they powered those down. <laughs> yeah. This is a card, though, you I also just want to point out... Just see a couple of inside boards routinely. Go ahead. I also just want to point out that this this art is simple and beautiful, in my opinion. It's uh, another one of the many uh, alpha arts without context, right? The background is just a gradient from green to black. But the image of... Uh, a young creature, you know, a, a pre-birthed creature in an egg of sorts is it's just simple and elegant. And it, it equates directly with life force, although I have no idea what that has to do with destroying a black spell. <laughs> but be that as it may, it's pretty. I agree with you. I think oh. it's, it's it's a strangely compelling piece of art. It's compositionally simple. And the coloring is is entirely green to black. There's no yeah. dynamic coloration here. There's not even like, I don't know, you could, I guess you call it Kioscuro, you know, the shading, but it's just very simple and somehow strangely compelling. And more effective in alpha and beta with the black borders where the whole card then takes on sort of the effect of the art, which is quite nice. Actually, this card's art compositionally is just incredibly simple. It effectively very. has three things. It has a background gradient, it has a an egg, and then a, a creature inside and almost nothing else besides it. Incre- <laughs> and I mean, the creature is it, also very simple, right? It might be one of the simplest piece of arts in, in Alpha, honestly. Yep. And and still very effective. Yep. Okay, next up, another one we've basically already reviewed. That's Life Lace. This is G for an instant. Interrupt, sorry. <laughs> G for an interrupt. It says change the color of one card, either being played or already in play, to green. Cost to cast, tap, maintain, or use special abilities of target card remain entirely, entirely unchanged. Hmm. And uh, it's got some interesting Amy Weber art. This one, I think, stands out for Amy Weber. I, I, this one is noteworthy, I think, and it's different from her other pieces. But um, some, some ostensibly insects, I guess, gathering to some plants with a really weirdly ambiguous horizon and then some yeah. blue sky and clouds. I mean, it's, it's very green, I guess, but pretty ambiguous as to what's going on. Yeah, it's really hard to tell what is happening <laughs> there. In the gamma art... It's the image is a kind of a uh, it looks like dead trees with birds nesting, like cranes nesting. So very much just evoking nature, the nature and, and growth, I guess. Yeah. What do you think about life lace in terms of utility? In my estimation, it's actually pretty far down the list of utility. Yeah, we covered uh, in terms of the five laces. We covered the list. I think it's probably near the bottom. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to life tap. Here's another in the long line of enchantment color hosers. Life Tap is an enchantment for UU that says you gain one life each time any forest of an opponent's becomes tapped. That's actually not terrible wording 
from an alpha perspective <laughs> and a pretty pretty straightforward card i mean i can honestly say that life tap was one of those cards that i got gobs of when i was opening revised boosters back in the day and i hated every one of them i never <laughs> cast one never did anything with it well as far as color hosers go in alpha this is probably one of the weaker ones i mean mm-hmm. you've got immensely powerful color hosers like gloom and life lace and red elemental blast and then you've got things kind of in the middle and i think this is probably near the bottom right yeah. i mean you may gain a lot of life from one of these in the course of a game if mono blue versus mono green for example you really might but at the same time, it's not doing anything strategically to fight green's powers over blue. Right. It's just delaying the inevitable. <laughs> yeah. Once we're done, we can probably list the the you know the worst of the best. But uh, it does it doesn't disrupt your opponent in any direct way. It just slows yes. their clock, and it can be easily mitigated. I mean, you could put all your wild growths on a single forest. You know, play out a bunch oh, of tap point. your Llanowar elves instead. If you want that's it. a good point. It's especially weak against green. Against any other color, this card would be inherently better. Especially like, this red. would be a much better hoser against red. Yeah, exactly. it would be maximally but it's powerful. But the weakest against, against green. The yeah. colors that have X spells. <laughs> yeah, the design of this card, I think, begets a fundamental misunderstanding of the way blue should fight green, and this is not it. Agreed. I don't even think I would it's also as good. Note, Sorry, go ahead. I would also note that this art makes just no sense to me. It's cool, though. You got a blue it's card really fighting cool. green, and all the colors in the image are yeah. red, black, and white. Well, so number one... <laughs> the, the other four colors of magic comprise yeah. the image. <laughs> it's true. Number one, you've got a kind of Anson Maddox, you know, mid-90s kind of goth vampire is the is mm-hmm. the foreground character. And and this character is quite cool, I have to say. It, it's a cool It looks character. like almost like yeah. a Sith a Sith character. Um, yeah. And then you've got this even cooler, like, strange aquatic amoebic uh you know uh protozoan is that a creature? It, it it's looks, got a face looks like it's stuck in it though like not yeah it's not isn't its that face. awesome well i think what's happening is that's the i think that's the creature i think that's um, a reflection of the the vampire it's facing maybe i huh. i don't know it looks like to me like an amoeba like an amoebic uh, like an aqua amoeba type creature you know a water creature um on the other side so but yeah, what do these have to do with green creatures? I mean, so it looks like a kind of a, a maybe a black vampire, right? A, a black magic vampire against mm-hmm. a kind of a blue magic uh, amoebic creature, you know, like a protozoan type creature doing battle against a completely blood red background. I can't tell you what that has to do with green or, you know, green at all. But, <laughs> you know, I hate to say it, but this really smacks of slush art to me. I, <laughs> what? the more I see this, I think that this is not the art for this card. I think this is some other piece of art for a different card, and they ran out and ran out of time <laughs> and just slapped this art on this card because there is just there is just no defensible connection between these things. There is some vague reference to interaction here, but it's hard to tell if the figure the vampire figure on the left is attacking this thing or subduing it or vice versa. There's no relation to life gain, as far as I can no. tell. There's maybe some Im- implication of violence here, but ugh, the, geez. The, yeah, I think I think this art is was for some other purpose, and they just slapped it on this card. You're probably not, you're probably right. the The Gamma comic art or magazine art for this was just a, a high top rainforest or treetops forest image. Yeah, but you couldn't just put a, you couldn't just put a for, forest image on this though without it, you know, being conflated with. You'd forest. have to. 
Yeah, you'd have to put some kind of connection to a, a creature or a wizard drawing energy from the forest. It would very much look like a green card, I would grant you that, but I think you could wash that energy in blue to make it clear. Either way, it's not this. <laughs> so, not this. Uh, just to yep. put a, a little yeah, not this, just to put a little bit of a bow on Life Tap. It has been reprinted a couple of times. I mean, it went through ABU and revised in 4th edition and then it it made its way into 5th edition and then died on the vine. It was reprinted in 5th edition and the, that was the only time it had a different art and that art is far more defensible in terms of blue interacting with green at least um but yeah it hasn't been reprinted since and i think rightly so this card is just far too weak all right let's move on then to a classic classic card lightning bolt it doesn't get more elegant than this r for an instant lightning bolt does three damage to one target now that alpha wording while very uh, concise and i would argue accurate is also ironic in its accuracy by today's standards because the targeting capability of Lightning Bolt actually went through a number of derivations over the years, and the fact that it can just hit any target again is is only due to evolution of the rules vis-a-vis Planeswalkers, and it puts a nice kind of arc on the history of the mechanics of the card, which is I find very satisfying. I, I love these alpha cards that, through no foresight of their own, happen to basically have the an accurate wording by today's standards. <laughs> <laughs> there have been a handful that you've noted. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I just love that that sub theme here. I mean, what can we say about Al- well, uh, about Lightning Bolt? It's just well, let's start, it's just the progenitor for so much. Let's start with this. Someone tweeted, I think about a year ago, which card in Magic's history has done the most damage or won the most games? I can't remember which phrasing it was. And uh, I think LSV said he thought it was Lightning Bolt. And I think there's a good bet that that's, that may be the case. I mean, it's certainly not one of the cards that has the most reprints. Like Giants, what was the two cards? Giant Spider and what was the other one, Kevin? Uh, giant Growth. And which yeah. was the winner between those two? Uh, giant Growth was the one, I think, that <laughs> got the nod over Giant so, Spider. Someone had tweeted out, I think it might have even been Star City Games, an image of someone who had collected every version of Giant Spider, which was pretty funny. <laughs> Because um, there were so so damn many of them, so so here's where I want here's what I want to think about, Kevin. The mathematical elegance of magic that that mm. Richard Garfield designed a card that would just do 15% of the damage of, of the life, 15% of the life that you start the game with on a single card at a single mana. That just there's just such a kind of like perfect mathematical elegance to that ratio that I don't even know how to describe it other than perfect. It's just, it's just <laughs> perfect, right? I mean, it's, you, you can't yeah. quite get, I, I, don't, I don't know, it's just, it's amazing that the, the math and magic is, is fascinating to me. And I think one of the things the set review has really done is emphasize to me that magic was not designed to be capped at four, right? It really wasn't designed to have, a, at least alpha was not designed with a four card cap. Otherwise, Plague Rats would be, I mean, Plague Rats isn't even playable in formats where it's capped, right? I mean, it's just, (laughs) it doesn't even make sense as a card in that context. But similarly, to a lesser degree, things like Banalish Hero, right? And and this being common suggests that, right, if you, it it really depends on how you conceptualize what the fundamental alpha experience is. You know, is it the silver showcase where, what was that, Kevin? Was it drafted? Were they drafted? They opened a certain number of packs and they were drafted? Or is it like a starter deck and two boosters was the original sealed experience? 
Yeah. Do you recall what the silver showcase was? No, I can't remember offhand what the product but, was. Sorry. But let's say you show up at Gen Con in 1993, and they they cap, you know, they put a cap on how much you can buy. Maybe you get a cup, maybe two, let's say two starters and a handful of boosters, right? Mm-hmm. You're probably going to get like commons are very important. You're going to get a couple of these, so they're going to be part of your deck. Um, just one of the most fundamentally broken things you can do in just Alpha Card 40 without spending a bajillion dollars is just have, you know. 15 mountains and 25 lightning bolts. There's, I don't even know if there's a strategy built out of commons that can beat that, Kevin, on a theoretical basis. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, if you yeah. had, a, if you had just out of common, just out of the common carpool, swamps, yeah. dark rituals, and plague rats, I don't know if that can beat the lightning bolt deck. I mean, maybe they would deck each other at some point, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean, it, what, what, how many bolts do you need? You need seven to win the game. You need seven. Yeah, yeah. and your opening hand. Assuming you don't draw on the play, which you probably do. I mean, let's say it's four and four. You're going to win by turn four or five, right? Yeah. Consistently. It's true. It's probably... Yeah. Like, it's better if you work in any non-commons, of course. Like, Wheel of Fortune helps that deck a lot, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> right. You, you don't even need it. Anyway, yeah. um, I guess I'm still making a number of points, though, but why don't you go ahead? Well, you brought up the comparison to the other um, boons, right? And we've talked about it already. The boons spread, you know, run the gamut from terrible in the alpha context, like healing salve, to completely broken, like ancestral. And dark ritual and lightning bolt. Uh, sorry, I would say, an argue, I would argue that giant growth is the sweet spot. That's the median, the one that's the closest <laughs> and it might to be the ideal. Best. And, giant growth, right? <laughs> and well, there's a reason for that because the other two, which I'm talking about, which are lightning bolt and dark ritual, they have a lot in common in that both of them are just on the high side of the right the sweet spot, right? They're both just a little too good. And that's why Lightning Bolt hasn't been in standard for quite a while. And it's similar to Dark Ritual. They took slightly different trajectories. Dark Ritual was printed a few more times because they felt like it was a core identity of black. Whereas it was a little earlier on in the history of sets that they realized that Lightning Bolt was too good. I mean, we got shock in Tempest. Well, it was actually in Stronghold, but in Tempest block is when Magic R&D wow, made a very strong statement. Yeah, exactly. That's that's how early R&D said Lightning Bolt is too good. Now, Lightning Bolt was... So, let me talk about the lineage real quick. Alpha Beta Unlimited Revised, 4th Edition. And it doesn't even go past 4th Edition until 10th. So, this card missed 5th Edition. That's a red flag right yeah. there, too. So many cards that were in 4th well, were also in 5th. Before you go on, there was a partly a reason for that. And part of the reason for that was because Incinerate existed out of Ice Age as the kind mm-hmm. of the revised... The, the different version of this. And I think incinerate took over for a while right that's true that's absolutely true and i think incinerate's development which was purposeful right it was the it was the uh disintegrate to lightning bolts fireball kind of yeah. right it was that playing on that pairing from alpha um and that, you're right that's a contributing factor but i think the presence of shock makes a big difference we never got uh, a slightly less dark ritual that was back at B- at BB, right? Yeah, <laughs> we never got the shock equivalent of dark ritual. It was a long time further. That's a great point. Before actually. dark ritual yeah. was acknowledged, I yeah. mean, the closest thing is sort of cabal ritual, but we never got. Right. Maybe we should have a <laughs> we should have a uh, shock dark ritual. Yeah. Um, Kevin, how so, far did shock anyway, go before you finish your lineage? How far did shock go? Is it still in standard? How far did, do you mean shock or bolt? Shock. Sorry. Oh, how far did shock go? Let me let me pull that. I up guess what I'm quick. wondering is is shock too good? Or is it still... No. Shock is, is almost certainly not too good. So Shock starts in Tempest, 
And then it went straight into the core set in 6th edition, basically, which is noteworthy, right? That's another recognition of Shock over Lightning Bolt. Shock's in 7th, Onslaught, 8th, 9th, and then, interestingly enough, Shock is in 10th, but then in M10, they brought Lightning Bolt back. And do you remember what was so noteworthy about M10? No, remind me. M10 was meant to be a callback to Alpha. Right. As wow. a, from a set from a set design standpoint, so they put lightning bolt back in over shock. Lightning bolt was in ten and eleven, and then they went back to shock for M twelve. <laughs> so there's a very clear recognition from Wizards. They were willing to power up that slot briefly, and then they went back to shock. Now shock has then been the kind of the mainstay in in any application of this type of card since then. Is it still it's in fourteen? Keep going. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's in it's in fourteen. It's in Aether Revolt. It's in M nineteen and M twenty, and most recently, what's the latest M twenty one? Yeah, so it's in this year's core set. So ten percent of damage actually is the sweet spot, not not fifteen. No, but part of what gives Lightning Bolt its power is its incredible versatility, right? Being able to hit oh, yeah. every target. There was a period around nineteen ninety five, nineteen ninety six, really around ninety six, where in Type One, Kevin Zudex just took over. And they won yeah. the, the the one of the few times Type One was played on the Pro Tour was in Pro Tour New York at the end of nineteen ninety six, Kevin. The top four was all Zudex anchored by Lightning Bolt, right? Mm-hmm. That you have Lightning Bolt of efficient creatures and they kind of the the bolts can both finish the game by hitting the opponent directly or clear the ground clear some space on the ground to allow your small critters to come through. I mean, Lightning Bolt has done a tremendous amount of work over the years. That's fascinating, though, that it, it popped back up in M10 and M11, so it probably was used in a bunch of standard formats over time. People who play standard probably remember all the different versions where Lightning Bolt existed. I, I guarantee you, I yeah. mean, I assume that every standard format where Lightning Bolt was legal, it was played, right? I assume. Yeah, that's that's almost certainly true. I, I mean, I can't prove it right here and now, but I would agree with you. And also, it's a key reason that, that brief return to lightning bolt from an intentional standpoint from a set design standpoint is also the reason why it's in modern and it's very impactful to modern if it hadn't been for those two core set printings 10 and 11 it shouldn't it wouldn't be and i would argue shouldn't be in modern but it's kind of the linchpin of modern uh, mono red aggro burn well the other thing to point out about lightning bolt in terms of vintage is that lightning bolt again was great in zoo and and slidex which pretty much tapered off around 2000 2001 but they were also very good against Necro decks. So as long as Necro was a thing, yeah. Bolt was going to see play. Uh, the thing, though, that brought Lightning Bolt back out of the nether void of <laughs> vintage unplayables <laughs> was the existence of creation of Planeswalkers. That, mm-hmm. that pl- Big time. Once Planeswalkers came into existence, Lightning Bolt started appearing everywhere and still is good. And we talked about how great Lightning Bolt was with Snapcaster Mage. But, um, yeah. but that's what brought Lightning Bolt back. And I would argue that it was basically World Wake that cemented that transition because not only did Jace the Mind Sculptor burst onto the scene but, <laughs> as just super dominant, but Lodestone Golem having three toughness. Yeah, the intersection of those two concepts really brought Lightning Bolt. Now, granted, you could Lightning Bolt a Tezzeret too before that, so it's not like it just started there, but that was a really powerful pivot point because shops became enormous, uh, one mana to kill a Lodestone Golem and be able to threaten a Jace. There, there are whole treatises of strategy in certain matchups in, in historic vintage about whether or not you brainstorm or fate seal right. with Jace on the, on the turn you play it, and Lightning Bolt is the reason for that. Yep. I mean, basically, if your opponent had a red up, you had to fate seal first to get around the bolt. Right. 
And I would argue that Lightning Bolt is probably a strong reason why Planeswalkers gain their loyalty as part of the activation of their abilities rather than an effect of it. Uh, now, I, I'm not saying it's the only reason. There's, I think there are other good mechanical reasons. But just the notion of being able to bolt that Jace the Mind Sculptor with its, even with its Fate Seal ability on the stack, uh, I think was probably pretty... It was something that, that R&D wanted to avoid. Then you're probably right they considered that. Great point. Yeah. So Lightning Bolts, you know, from that point that you just mentioned, uh, it, you know, it ebbs and flows a little bit. There was a period where, say, Jeskai wasn't really very good, or maybe Bug was dominant, but any time that Jeskai or Rug is even remotely playable in Vintage today, Lightning Bolt is the go-to. Well, this card still sees The go-to play. card. Yeah. And it just so happens that it can be part of a combo win condition with Underworld Breach. So where do we go from here on Lightning Bolt? Um, well, we've talked about the lineage. Well, no, we didn't talk about the lineage too much. We talked about Shock. You mentioned Incinerate. There's the countless other uh, burn spells that are modeled after Lightning Bolt in one way or another. In some cases, it's to uh, power them down a little bit. In some cases, it's to try and find a similarly powered alternative. I'm thinking things like Forked Bolt, which allows you to divide the damage for one mana. And I'm thinking things like uh, Flame Slash, which does four damage, but only to creatures. Like They've been trying to relive, basically, the thrill of Lightning Bolt in R&D for, well, basically since its inception. <laughs> and I'm, I'm here for that, too. I really think they should continue to find clever ways. Like when Cycling was introduced and we got, what was the two-mana Cycling one? I can't remember the name of it offhand. But then we eventually got a three-mana Cycling one, and now we've got... Things like Jaya's Greeting and just, yeah, they're just, Lightning Bolt is the progenitor for almost every red burn spell. Um, it can, they can all trace their lineage back to Lightning Bolt uh, when they're not X spells, I guess. That was great, Kevin. And what can we say about the inimitable Chris Rush? I mean, this art is very simple, mo- almost monochromatic, and incredibly evocative and action-packed in the sense that it very actively just depicts a lightning bolt and also very beautiful in the sense that it has a whole bunch of context and setting that many, many alpha cards are lacking. It's incredibly simple design. I hesitate to, to praise it too much because I feel like, you know, great artists can do a good job with lightning bolt, but it certainly is. I mean, the card is, it, it's an iconic card. And so I think that partly makes it iconic art. Yeah, I would agree. So let's uh, talk about alpha versus beta. What's your preference on this card? <laughs> well, they really didn't change the the nothing was really changed on it, so it doesn't have the that, one's more saturated. It doesn't, but it's not it's not as contrasting as like red red elemental blast or icy manipulator, the cards that have the template True. change and therefore are much darker. So I I think I go I go alpha on this one. What about you? Due to the very close similarity, I actually go beta just because when all things are being equal, I like to increase saturation. Fair. Let's talk about gamma. But our gamma. things are not equal Did... because the the corners are. <laughs> That's true. Not all things are equal. Uh, this is one of those cards that was exactly the same in gamma. In fact, the gamma wording is incredibly terse. It's just does three damage, <laughs> <laughs> which is really fantastic. I like it. All right. Anything else about lightning bolts? No. Thank you for sharing yeah. the history and the and also the lineage of this card. Love it. Love me some lightning bolt. All right, next up we have a card that's far more obscure and just bizarre, Living Artifact. It's an enchant artifact for G. It says, put a counter on target artifact 
for each life you lose. During upkeep, you may trade one counter <laughs> for one life, but you can only trade in one counter each turn. So, so Kevin, so, I know you've been focusing on the text is the first thing. This yeah. follows that problem of which upkeep. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. In, in my opinion, it is... It's, it's, and the alpha text is unambiguous. It says very clearly, during upkeep, you may trade one counter for one life. I mean, there's no... It's like the copper tablet problem. There's yes. just no ambiguity there. It should happen every turn in alpha. Yep. I also enjoy the notion of the fact that... <laughs> what we talked about the word target and the, the many ways that it's used in alpha a number of times. It's pretty clear that the auras in general, when they refer to target, are meant to refer to the target of the aura. But at the same time, the oracle, um, ver- the oracle wording of living artifacts says whenever you dealt damage, put that many vitality counters on living artifacts. Yes, yes. And I don't think that truly matters a whole lot. Well, if you have multiple, but yeah, that's the thing is that it's the oracle wording says at the beginning of your upkeep, you remove a vitality counter from living artifact. If you do, you gain life. Do you think that the alpha wording, because it puts the counters on the artifact? Would if you put two living artifacts in the same artifact, would it restrict you from removing more than one? So that's a great question. the The way that League has handled this is they say that mm-hmm. if multiple living artifacts are in play, they each receive counters for each point of life you lose during your upkeep. Mm-hmm. One counter may be traded from each living artifact for one point of life. But and by the way, they do read it as your upkeep rather than each upkeep, which is yeah. weird because in well, some I figured cases, they would. <laughs> well, in the case of Copper yeah. Tablet, let me go back. Uh, I thought you said that they interpreted it as your upkeep. Uh, and on on terms of copper tablet, they say does damage to both players during each player's upkeep. Yeah, so that's obviously slightly different language. So that we would be looking I, at more like like warp artifact or well. Yeah, yeah, we'd be looking yeah something land. like that 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 says during upkeep. Uh, pretty much every one of those, I think, I, well, we haven't finished our review yet, but I'm pretty sure every one of those has been changed to the upkeep of the either. Your upkeep or the controller of the permanent that's enchanted, yeah. So what are all these? There's cursed, there's cursed land, cursed land, warp <laughs> artifact. We we read the list recently. Wanderlust and uh, feedback and God um, power leak. Yeah, there's a whole there's one for every permanent type. And this is kind of just inverting that. Yeah, so, exactly. I don't know. I think the league is is just making this an, an exception for this because I think in the other cases it's each upkeep. Which is weird and inconsistent. But we, look, this is an obscure <laughs> card. It doesn't see play. It's not. It's not. It's just very underpowered, right? I mean, this is just. I. Well, I would agree. In, in, within the context of Alpha, broadly stated, this card is underpowered. I mean, it's it's just a way to slowly mitigate damage. But if you've got the kind of deck that's intentionally trying to prolong the game, it gets way more powerful, right? In a stasis deck, this. You yeah. can take a beating early and then just kind of gradually regrow that life. That's a good point. I was thinking, why would you? Place in I, th- I was thinking, why would you play this over a charm? But in st- stasis is a good example. There's no mana involved, and it's also worth noting that they're not just good in multiples. In multiples, there comes a point where your opponent will be disincentivized from damaging you if you have a certain density of these in play. If you have two of these in play and I ping you with a prodigal sorcerer, you're going to go down one life and up two. (laughs) 
And so I, I have no incentive to do one damage to you if you have two of these in play. Similarly, if you have three of them in play, I have no incentive to do two damage to you or even three damage if it's only going to be like once at a time, especially with stasis out, right? Like if you've got two of these in play and I, and I resolve a grizzly bear, if I attack you for two, you're going to take two and you're going to gain two and gain well, two. Well, you're putting a lot of <laughs> eggs in, in your basket because if someone shatters the, art, the artifact, you're, you've lost well, if you have the capability to do, you, sp- you spread these out across different artifacts, of course. Yeah, you don't, you don't yeah. want to do that. But Alpha, fortunately, is riddled with artifacts to put these on. It's also I'm a- simply making the point that the longer the game goes, the better this card gets. It's also an incredibly misleading title. I mean, it, it seems like it's Animate Artifact, <laughs> right? Really I was going to say exactly that. Have you looked at the Gamma version? No. If I, don't look yet. Don't look yet. If I was to guess, if I was to tell you that this is actually, the Gamma version is actually uh, a totally different magic card that involves artifacts could you even guess what it is if it's not animate artifact it's not this card at all uh, um maybe it's like boost an artifact somehow yes it is this card in gamma was actually power artifact oh the gamma version called living artifact says artifact costs one less mana to use but not less than zero wow this was the original power artifact in gamma wow 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 a completely different card. Well, that would have made <laughs> Basalt Monolith <laughs> an immensely powerful would, combo. Yeah, you would have had the Basalt Infinite Mana combo in Alpha if that card had been printed as designed. Wow. I also have Kevin, to say that I just I love get, this my art. My food just came. Okay. Yeah, let, go ahead. Talk about the art. Go ahead, and I'll grab my food. Okay. I I just have to say that I really absolutely love this art. It's for those who can't picture it in your mind's eye. Imagine kind of a a crane, like a you know a high fantasy crane carrying a, a creature cage, but the cage is just egg shaped, and the creature inside is like larger than the cage. So it's it's it reaches right to the edges of the cage, and then exceeds it in many cases with all these different appendages. And I think. Maybe one of them's meant to be like a tongue and, and an eye on a stalk and then some tentacles. I just think it's hilarious. It's, it's like someone captured this creature maybe when it was young and it's outgrowing its cage or something. It, you know what it reminds me of, Kevin? It reminds me of uh, a creature design that never made it into Return of the Jedi. <laughs> it's, it's very much like a Star Wars, that. you know, well. It's, space it's, fantasy. It's, it has a lot to do with the big, the big rolling creature from... The, um, from the Force Awakens that that Han and Chewie had on their ship. I forget what that thing was called. Um, oh, come on. What's that thing that, that they said? Tell me you're not transporting this. What was the name of that creature? Oh, yeah. I remember now. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, it'll come to me later on in the show. But yeah, it reminds me of that kind of amorphous, you're not sure which way is up kind of creature that it at least has one eye and presumably a few more somewhere. I think it's hilarious. It's also cool. another humorously, most, mostly devoid of context yeah. piece of art because yeah. it appears to be floating in the sky, yep. but it's bizarre looking sky. Is that is that clouds? Well, it looks like it, look it like looks clouds. to me like kind of, kind of a white. mountain range in the background, an aerial view. But, but oh, that's weird. Yeah, like the Himalayas oh, or that's something. That's weird. Yeah, interesting. Well, it's uh, one thing I find highly ironic. This card, <laughs> Alpha Beta Unlimited, revised fourth edition and then fifth edition. This card outlived lightning bolt in the core sets <laughs> it actually made it into fifth edition <clears throat> it's only ever been printed with this art and never since fifth edition i think this card is actually really cool and i think that uh edh players far and wide should take a look at this card because it's simple it's easy uh to cast it's easy to resolve and it's innocuous 
you put it out early in the game and you, you know where it's just one life here or there right and your opponents aren't going to notice it but come turn seven or eight or nine you're going to have gained a lot of life from this thing theoretically and also it's worth noting that this counts damage from any source so if you're damaging yourself for any reason like with an ancient tomb for example or something else that does damage to you lands that do it right this counts that too Good anyway point. i think this card's really cool i, I think it, I, I used to play this a bunch in my casual decks oh really I think yeah. I think it's just hampered by the fact that it's so slow. I mean, you can imagine a design oh, yeah. that could have been a little... What if it had said, put a damage on target... Art, so it, it says, for each life you lose. During... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to fix it, honestly. <laughs> because you don't want to get all the life back at once, otherwise it's just it's just like a COP or something. But, but one is just too slow. Maybe it's like... Maybe it, if it accumulated, so it's like... You know, one, you can get back one the first turn, the second turn you get back two, next turn you get back three, maybe something like that. Well, I do think there are some variants on the design that you could come up with, but it's worth noting that this card actually did start a lineage of different kinds of cards. It's hard for me to trace all of the cards that are in this line, but this card definitely started a bit of a lineage. And I think there was a little bit of a delay between when it really picked up again. But the things I'm thinking of are cards like, in Odyssey, there was Delaying Shield, which is a white enchantment. It says, if damage will be dealt to you, put that many counters on Delaying Shield. At the beginning of your upkeep, remove all the delay counters. For each delay counter removed this way, you lose a life, Otherwise, unless you pay two mana. That's what I was trying to... That's definitely... That's what I was getting That's at, definitely... Of a different design. Yeah. yeah. That's definitely in this lineage, pretty directly inspired, in fact. There's also Force Bubble, which is a similar white enchantment from Scourge. It says, if damage would be dealt to you, put that many depletion counters on Force Bubble. When there are four or more, sacrifice it. At the beginning of each end step, remove all the depletion counters. These have different designs that incentivize different interactions with your opponents. But either way, they're all about storing up the damage that's dealt to you in a way and either giving it back to you as life or creating some other condition, some other hoop you have to jump through in order for it to be removed. <clears throat> There's also the uh, the X spell version that was like, was it Soul Echo, which was from Mirage? Yeah, XWW. It enters with X Echo counters. It's you don't lose the game for having zero or less life, but basically at the beginning of your upkeep, sacrifice it if there's no counters on it. Otherwise, that your opponents can choose that every time they damage you, it takes a counter off of it instead. So lots of variations over time on enchantments that buffer your life total and remember when you've taken damage or or mitigate future damage, that kind of thing. So it definitely produced a, a lineage, but uh, interestingly, entirely in white. As far as I can tell, entirely in white. This was not Green's thing after Alpha. But Green and Alpha does have white. Yes, absolutely. And we've already alluded to that. I mean, Green is still the color of directly gaining life for quite a while in Magic, but that's over time been far more handed over into white. I don't know. I don't know if Green's, I don't know the last time Green had a just like a direct you gain X life card. In the, in the vein of stream of life. I don't know how long ago Green fully handed that over to White. Anything else on Living Artifacts, Steve? All right, let's move on to Living Lands. Now, we've alluded to this one already in a couple of different contexts. Living Lands is a cool one. So for 3G, you get an enchantment. Treat all forests in play as 1-1 creatures. Now they can be enchanted, killed, and so forth. And they can be tapped either for mana or to attack. The Living Lands have no color. They are not considered green cards. Some 
satisfying strategic advice in there vis-a-vis that you can enchant and kill them and so forth and that they can tap for mana or attack that's all strategic advice there interestingly the notion that the creatures have no color and aren't green is just implied by the rules by today's standards doesn't need to be stated because making something a creature doesn't impart other qualities on it unless it's stated so the oracle text is just all forests are one one creatures that are still lands which is much simpler now and devoid of strategic advice I think this is. Pro- I think being an enchantment makes it a little bit better than the Cormus Bell. In terms of reliability, I would completely agree. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, we don't really have to add much more. This art is really cool. Jesper Mirfors, mm-hmm. once again. Uh, it, this is uh, how many green cards did he do in Alpha? I think the answer is not very many. He did camouflage, for which the art is almost entirely red and brown. And what else? He did fog. Oh, he did more than I can remember. He did fog. Which is, again, that art is almost entirely gray and white. Ironroot Treefolk has lots of green and brown in it. So while he did a lot of black cards early on, this one is noteworthy in that it is just really, really dominated by the color green. The background is a green wash and the, the well, there's one ostensibly figure that's kind of born out of the brambles that is all green and brown. I think this is cool. It's also it's got interesting. Oscar the Grouch quality to it. <laughs> it very much does. <laughs> I can very much see Oscar the Grouch in this character. The head is even shaped really similarly. One of the things I'm not quite clear on is, are we meant to infer scale for any reason here? I mean, mm-hmm. they're 1-1 one, one creatures, so they, they shouldn't be too big. I'm guessing this is just meant to be brambles, and we're up, kind of up close mm-hmm. to what is otherwise a humanoid bramble creature. Yeah, if this card had been made in Legends, it would be an enchant world, undoubtedly. <laughs> And it's noteworthy that it does uh it is symmetrical and does animate your opponent's forest as well. Yeah, there's not too much else to say. This card was reprinted, Alphabet Unlimited revised, then it was in fourth edition and fifth edition and sixth edition, and never again. Hmm. So yeah, curious that this card was viewed as apparently a bit of a a bit of a staple for green for quite some time in the early days. Not really sure why. I never really saw it played very many places. Right. Um, it's it, it always seemed more of a liability than anything. And also, when you want your creatures to tap for mana, Green was already really good at doing that vis-a-vis Llanowar Elves and other subsequent Elves. So by the time 4th and 5th edition rolled around, Green just didn't need this effect. I'm surprised it lasted as long as it did. Well said. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to another living thing. We've had three in a row now. This one's Living Wall. This one, you know, Stephen, I think you and I are guilty a little bit of forgetting this one, kind of thinking past it when we talk about the artifact creatures in Alpha. Mm-hmm. But this is an artifact creature that's four mana. It says, counts as a wall. One, colon, regenerates. And it is a zero six. This one, uh, you know, continues the wall theme in Alpha. And it, we have so many four mana artifact creatures in Alpha that are so formative to the set that it's it's kind of easy to forget this one a little bit. But in terms of efficacy, this is actually a really, really great wall. Yeah. 06 is huge, and regeneration just is the icing on the cake. So even if they're coming at you with a crawl worm, it doesn't take anything to survive that, really. One single generic mana. And otherwise, this is just a really disgustingly <laughs> awesome piece of art sitting across on the other side of the table. <laughs> and I don't know why it is so visceral. It, like, it really why, is horrifying. Why does it need to be this visceral? I mean, it's grotesque. It's definitely, I think, the most grotesque, <clears throat> hard to kind of enjoy, you know, art in in Alpha. Yeah, I can't argue so with that. Intense, really, with the I teeth think they're and have... everything, flesh in the eyes. Yeah, 
And it's also just so warped that it gives you that impression that maybe you're not perceiving it correctly, right? Yeah. That maybe your perception is warped by some funhouse mirror action as well. And also it's it's glistening. There's some really good use of, of light reflection here to convey the notion of moisture, I would say. Anson Maddox this is, definitely had some relish in doing this one. He can tell he, yeah. he took this on this project with this assignment with gusto. <laughs> Absolutely. I wonder I wonder where the original art for this lives. I've never really heard anybody talk about it. Well, it's it. not the kind of thing you put in a showroom, I tell you that. <laughs> in terms of printings, this card was in ABU and revised and then it, this is another one of those ones, Steve. It's on the short list of cards that were in summer and then not in fourth hmm. edition. Remember how I listed yep. there was a short list of those previously? Yeah, this is another one of those. So fascinating. I don't know what would have caused a card to be in summer and then pulled, but whatever the reason, this is one of them. So the summer printing of this card is actually the last one ever. It's only ever been reprinted with this art, and the text is also (laughs) ironically completely unchanged from alpha to summer. Every version of the card not only uses exactly the same language, but also ironically keeps it on a single line, which is uh, which is noteworthy by today's standards. It has counts as a wall, period, one colon regenerates on one line in every printing of the card, which is funny. Not really a problem, just not the way it's done today. Well, I suspect this card just suffered from the fact that they moved away from walls, you know, as a general matter. But, I mean, everything you said at the top <laughs> is true. Four mana can go into any deck, right? Complete color, flexibility, fast defense, some some resilience and, and imperviousness there with regeneration. Mm-hmm. All true. I just think being a wall is just, at some point, competitive players said, I don't want walls, you know? <laughs> um, this card, unlike many, like I mentioned Life Tap earlier, when I was opening revised boosters, because this is not common in Alphabet Unlimited and revised. When I was opening revised boosters, I had a lot of uncommons. I happened to open several, and I had piles of things like life tap which i hated (laughs) this on the other hand i was almost always happy to open this (laughs) because even in my casual you know timmy kind of glee early on in the game i recognized that any artifact that was this big and this powerful could just go in all my decks and so i legitimately just had a bunch of living walls in different decks and was very pleased to draw it every time because it was easy to cast and it really provided me a whole lot of defense so i have a lot of affinity for the revised copy of living wall nice Yeah. Also, I have to give some credit to this flavor text. Let me read it really quick. Some fiendish mage had created a horrifying wall of living flesh patched together from a jumble of still recognizable body parts. As we sought to hew our way through it, some unknown power healed the gaping wounds we cut, denying us passage. Now, that strikes me as something that someone wrote in a very D&D kind of style after seeing Anson Maddox's art. <laughs> yes, I would say. <laughs> because that just serves to further reinforce this, the completely grotesque and daunting nature of this card. That's just really impressive in all, in all ways, I would say. <clears throat> Steve, did you ever play Living Wall in any context? I, have, I, I'm, I, like you, have memories seeing it, seeing it in my card collections and my in packs I opened, but I have no memory actually playing it. It's possible I never never played with it. Well, you were competitive earlier on in your Magic experience than I definitely was, and so it was probably just not good enough for you in your early tournament kind of decks, and that makes a lot of sense. All right, let's move on from Living Wall 
Oh, hold on. I want to see, is it in gamma that I forgot to look before? I want to check to see if living wall is in gamma. My guess is yes. And my guess is it's about the same. Let's see. All right, here we go. Living wall four mana. Uh, yep. Artifact zero six regenerates. Yep. Sure enough. Unchanged from gamma completely except for the addition of counts as a wall. But I think that was implied in gamma. All right, let's let's move on to the inimitable Llanowar Elves. Oh, it's quite We've imitatable. It. <laughs> We've talked about it in uh, many contexts already. So the alpha version is a G, summon elves. Tap to add one green mana to your mana pool. This tap can be played as an interrupt, and it's a 1-1. One, one. Yeah, we've already touched on Llanowar Elves. The things we haven't touched on really are its its artwork and its lineage and other things like that, but... You know, it, this card is a deceptive powerhouse mm-hmm. in Alpha and many other formats since. Steve, could you talk a little bit about this card's place? I know we've already alluded to it in Alpha Card 40 and other old school formats. <clears throat> well, today. yeah. So I'll start with with 93-94 decks. I, when I was at NoobCon, the Russians had designed an Alpha uh, Elf Swarm deck that was actually terrifying and very difficult to deal with. You needed an earthquake, or you were just dead. Because there were a surprising number of, of elves in just, you know, up through Fallen Empires. There's, of course, Dark Heart of the Woods and Llanowar Elves. But then there's also, let's see, there's, oh, they played Scavenger Folk and they played, mm-hmm. oh, God, there was other ones. I can't remember them all. But there's also Pendlehaven, which gives them a little boost. And it was just, right. it's just hard to deal with them. You know, you, I, I could get out of Serendipifreet. But if I had four elves and that, you know, maybe a giant growth and Pendlehaven, I was never going to win that war. And I, I couldn't like put a psionic blast on a, you know, on an elf. Um, <laughs> I, I have lots of experience playing this card. I also vividly remember one of the last times I played standard was in, uh, with the fires of Yamavaya deck, which was hilarious and awesome. And it had is, is the mana base, four Lenore elves and four birds of paradise. And the goal was turn one, Elves or birds, turn two fires of Yamavaya, turn three bla- Bastard- Blastoderm, and turn four Sapperling Burst and win the game. Um, mm-hmm. Elves is obviously quite important in that, but it really is just immensely powerful in Alpha League. In Alpha 40, it's still not bad, it's, but in Alpha League in particular, um, I think it's the, I think it might be the third or fourth best creature in the entire format, simply because. Nice. Well, number one, in Alpha League, it's very hard to play like a four or five color deck. Like you can easily do, uh, you know, if, in, if, if dual lands weren't restricted. Um, or if you had access to City of Brass. But the second thing is that, and so because of that, it actually tilts the balance in favor of Llanowar Elves over Birds. Because the power is what matters. But the second thing is there's no cap on commons. Four of cap. There's no max cap. Which means that you can build a deck. It has 13 Lenore Elves, and that's exactly what, what Alpha playtester Joel Mick did in the Alpha League 40 finals uh, this past summer against me. And uh, he had Kevin, what was it? It was 13, I can't remember specifically, I think it was like 13 Lenore Elves, and then like 9 Giant Growths in his deck, 11 Forests, and a number of other miscellaneous things, like a couple which we mentioned. But the point is that <laughs> with that kind of configuration... You can basically go turn one Llanowar Elves, turn two double Elves, right? Sorry, yeah, turn two double Elves, which means that on turn three, you already have, um, depending on how many forests you played, you already got four Elves in play. 
Mm-hmm. And then you can either then just go on offense, play more elves, and with offense he had in the giant growths I mentioned, it doesn't take that long to swarm your opponent. You can pick your spot. You can trade with a bigger creature if you want, or you can just use the giant growths to boost and berserk. You know, giant growth, giant growth, berserk, berserk is game. Um, but Lenore, I think here's the critical thing. I played a Lenore Elf deck. I had six Lenore Elves. Lenore Elves does something very important, which is that it gives you three mana on turn two. And there's very little yeah. that's, that's you know, outside of the artifact accelerants that can do that. There's Wild Growth, Lenore Elves, and Birds of Paradise. And they're all in alpha. And Lenore Elves is the best of all three of those, generally speaking, because of the power. Wild Growth, you know, is susceptible to getting Sinkhold or Stone Rained or whatever. Just Chaos Orbed. Um, don't have that problem with, with this. Now, in regular alpha, I prefer Wild Growth to Lenore Elves because you get the mana immediately. So if you play, you know, Black Lotus, sacrifice it, you can put the Wild Growth on a land immediately. Um, naturally. But Lenore Elves is just, I mean, it's an amazingly, it's an amazingly endurable, endurable card. I mean, this card, I assume, has been reprinted many, many, many times. I know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it has. Um, and I was just whittling that list down to just the things that are like in booster products and, and legal and standard, for example, and that's still 15 times. <laughs> nice. And how many of those have That's not have counting art master that... sets and other box sets and things. And how many of those have art that's better than this one? Uh, that's not possible. <laughs> okay. Well, why don't you say, talk about that then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is just one of those arts. The, um, uh, this is one of the art that scores very highly on my list personally in terms of its iconic nature. Uh, it's really interesting to me. I wonder what some of the art direction was here because this is not something that I would have thought of as an elf. Uh, you know, the characteristics of this creature, uh, white skinned, uh, you know, bright white, like albino, albino skinned with apparently albino features too. Cause there's some, some nice pink lips and also pink hair and pink, um, what appear to be tattoos on the side of the head, shaved head, but with a, I guess that's a, a mohawk or maybe just a, a large ponytail at the top with a really strange headpiece. It's kind of hard to interpret because it, it's, it's only shown in, in the uh, profile that wraps around the eyes apparently too. And then down below the chin, like a really, really strange headpiece. And then just this menacing grimace on the face. So it's a very menacing figure, even from the, the profile and then also the background, strangely um, abstract yet pointed, uh, literally and figuratively, uh, graphic design in the background that who knows what that meant, meant to convey. It's just meant to accentuate the face. Uh, this art is strange and compelling and and colorful, yet mostly devoid of context for me in terms of what it means to be an elf other than say humanoid with pointy ears. <laughs> it's bizarre. Yeah, I I I have to say I think this this art is is phenomenal as well. Um I haven't studied it too closely, but it leaves a it leaves a powerful impression. <clears throat> it leaves an impression that there is a yeah. a race of elves that live in Dom- Dominaria that this race has a detailed and sophisticated culture, that it has their own kind of designs, their own kind of like tribal markings, you know, their own kind of um, style and so on and so forth, headdress, hair, headgear. Um, and yes, for the most part, it does appear just to be a kind of portrait in profile of a Lenore elf. But we don't know what Lenore elves is. Is it a race? Is it a tribe? Is it a, uh, you know, is it a uh, a, a place? 
Is it is right. it is it referring to an individual elf, like the name of an elf? We we just don't know. But what we do know is that well, it does say in in the flavor text it gives a little hint that maybe it's a tribe or or something. But what's yeah. but, but what the the contrasting yellow is doing is giving you a it, it's 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 yes it's highlighting the face for you, but those jagged edges almost give you the impression this Lanowalf is in some sort of torture device that these he or she is about to be tortured or or they that's really or interesting. about to be tortured. That's a really interesting interpretation. Um, I never really thought about it that way, but it it absolutely does not look pleasant. It absolutely does not look functional either. And so I really don't know what to make of it, except that it clearly exposes the side of the head, which again, I assume to be a tattoo. And it apparently in uh, makes a way for the hair, which I interpret to be a bit of a mohawk or an elongated ponytail. So I, in my eyes, I think the implication is strongly that it's functional headwear, but it's really bizarre and it looks highly uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> Well, some of those, you know, tribal things are are not necessarily designed for comfort. <laughs> <clears throat> well, no doubt about that. You mentioned the implication of Lanawar as a place or a people or something else. The, the word Lanawar is used in 21 card titles, but after Alpha, it's not it doesn't appear again until Weatherlight, where we actually get three cards. Is there any other references to it in Alpha or just on this card? In the flavor? Not chart? that I can see. Okay. But let me see, let me just do one more check to see if Lanawar is mentioned in the flavor. Just a moment. No, this is also the only reference to Lanawar in any flavor text in Alpha. There's other references, well, there's actually only one, but there's the next time Lanawar appears both on cards and in flavor is both in Weatherlight. Got it. Has it become a thing or is it just something that appears every now and then? I would argue that it has become a thing because when you look at card titles and references to Lanawar, the the lore and the mythos of Lanawar was definitely um, fleshed out far more around the time of the Weatherlight saga. So not only were there more Lanawar cards in Weatherlight, but there's a quote, for example, from Miri of the Weatherlight. Uh, it's actually a couple of them in Tempest. There's one card, Heartwood Treefolk, that says, In all my years in Lanawar... I never understood where trees fit in. They are revered by elves and watered on by dogs. That's not a very auspicious uh, flavor text. The other one is, just as you see the grave and remember the friend, I see this forest and remember Lanawar. So clearly, Miri has a strong connection to Lanawar. And there have been many more cards throughout the years that reference Lanawar or are titled with Lanawar. I mean, uh, again, this is the several in Weatherlight, but there are several in Tempest and Urza's destiny and invasion and just many many things in fact it was in the most recent set i think yeah the core 2021 that had lanawar visionary which is a lanawar elf that draws a card when it comes into play for three mana so i mean they're they're still going with this lineage well that's that's good that they things planted little seeds planted in alpha can can grow into something interesting kevin where have you what's your experience with this card have you played with it before and if so which formats you know, it's funny. I, I was thinking about that right before you asked. The Early on in my days, I definitely played these. Like, I, I saw them and I saw the utility. I thought, hey, well, this will let me cast my Living Wall turn earlier, right? So yeah, I put them in some decks when I was young, but at the same time, I didn't really understand what I was doing. I was intuiting some of the value of accelerating on mana, but it's not like I realized, oh, I have to have a mana curve, right? That didn't come until much later. So early on, yeah, I just played these, but they were just kind of ubiquitous because they were commons and I had a bunch of them. 
then a whole bunch of time passed, and I, I fell in love with Land of War Elves again, actually, just a couple of years ago when, when I was getting more into lowering my mana curves of my EDH decks. <laughs> and I know this is, it might be sound strange to some, but um, my progression in EDH has been all over the map. I've gone through all the phases of grief with that format. But, the, um, but in practice, what it meant was I realized, oh, I used to shy away from elves. I thought, but why would you play an elf? I mean, it's such a low-power thing. I've gone around to the other side of the coin, which is that one mana acceleration is very precious. Even in a format with the, ostensibly the vintage card pool, mm-hmm. uh, save the restricted cards, you know, the, the, that are all banned in EDH for the most part. Um, once you get past Moxen of a couple of types that aren't banned in EDH, one mana acceleration is precious. Really? There's not a lot of really good, because it's a Highlander format, yeah. there's not a lot of really good elves. Well, there's Finehorn Elf, Lenore so, Elf, Dark, Har- Darkwood. What mm-hmm. what else? There's is that... There's, there's Boreal Druid and the Avacyn's one that taps for white, and then there's like Birds of Paradise is ubiquitous. Oh, yeah. Now there's Gilded Gilded no, Goose, which is ubiquitous. Yeah, Deathrite Shaman. The, that the list seems like of a good lot, ones, actually. It's not, uh, yeah, you, keep in mind, you can't play those in all decks. So you can't play the Deathrite in a deck that doesn't have black. You can't play Noble Hierarch in a deck that doesn't have blue and white. Why not? You can't play Avacyn's Pilgrim because of color identity in EDH. Oh, because Avacyn's Pilgrim is a green-white uh, card, and Elves of Deep Shadow is a green-black card. Oh, my God. So in terms of just mono-green elves, the, it actually peters out after three or four of them. There are legitimately four <laughs> good ones, but after that, it, it falls away. There's there's not much so, more. So, so continue your the, story, though. Tell, did, did you? Well, just it's really not more than that. I just have had a, a, a renaissance with one-mana creatures in EDH and have started putting them in more decks again. And it just so happens that I was fortunate enough a number of years ago, back at, uh, this would have been Gen Con, back when Vintage Champs was still at Gen Con, one of the last one times that happened, I took my set of Beta Llanowar Elves and met, for the first and last time, one Anson oh, Maddox. Boy. And so I have that a, was a, a great set day of for signed... You. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> you had a, I have a set of signed... Absolutely massive stack for him to sign. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really did. He's, uh, yeah, uh, Maze of Ith and just so many things. A uh, whole bunch of um, snow-covered islands from Ice Age. <laughs> anyway. Um, I'm yeah, so I have a set of Beta Lana Worlds. Your, your <laughs> <laughs> opening your, your bag and just presenting this... <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was, I, you know, I was, um, I restrained myself. Okay. Let's put it that way. How many the, the cards stack could have been much larger. <laughs> well, there was a lot of islands. I think okay. I got a dozen or more islands signed, uh, and then Maze of Ith, Elves. Right? <laughs> yeah, a, a handful of other, you know, key things. But it wasn't every possible card that I owned. No, anyway, what? point of the point of the matter is, is I I now happen to have a set of Beta Lenore Elves that are signed, and the card is That's so awesome. beautiful. I'm it's so I'm that so happy so that I got cool. that set signed. And so I take every chance I can get these days to put them in EDH decks and I love it when I do it. You know, I it. think one of the things that I've appreciated going through this review, but even more so is that there is and we said this I think I've said this several times, but there is both a coherence to all the art in alpha as well as a distinctiveness. And Anson Maddox, you know, mostly for good, but for good for all the way around, has a very distinctive style. You know, I called it '90s goth, but it's it's unfair because his yeah. his art is not dated. Lanor Elves doesn't look like a dated piece of art to me. It looks like just an awesome piece of art. Um, but but Kevin, I'm speculating here, but since we've done such a close analysis and study of this piece, I think I may have solved the life tap problem. I think that that is an elf there, and I think what's going on. I mean, it's, it's got the oh. it's got the ears. It's got the the 
porcelain skin. It's the pink the hair. The pink hair. Yeah, and also behind the elf may be a kind of spiky cloak uh, head head thing. Yep. You're right. There's a lot of similarity between the Life Tap character and this. The Life Tap character has a full head of hair. And by the way, it's enzymatics. But keep going. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's why part of the reason why you're making the comparison, right. obviously. Um, yeah, so I think there's something to that. At the same time, if you look at Anson Maddox's other cards across Alpha, of which there are a few dozen, he happens to use the light-skinned character more than once. Like, Creature Bond has a, has a white-skinned character, and Siren's Call has a white-skinned character, and... Well, Elvish Archers also does too, but that's an elf. You could be understood to have that. Uh, Throne of Bone has a, has well, a again, apparently a white the, skinned it's character. Well, again, the goth thing. But I, yeah. I think that I think in the particular case of Life Tap with the red hair and the and the pointed ear, strongly suggestive that this is. I mean, uh, there's no other connection to green, right? Yeah, that's fair. You're right. That strongly suggests but... that that's a Lanawar character. Yeah, there might be something to that. You're right. Well, and, and you're right. Anson is awesome. Anson did just a ton of pieces in Alpha. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it looks like it looks like about 20, 25 maybe. It's hard to say. And then continued to for the other early sets in Magic, which is awesome. And this one is just, I mean, this one's, we haven't gotten to Sanger Vampire yet, oh, which no. is obviously another <laughs> just incredibly iconic piece of his and probably number one on my list yeah. for him. Yep. But it's a close one and two between Sanger well and Lanawar. Well said. And both of those, yeah. by the way, are headshots in portrait and in profile. Yep. Yep. But then again, we talked about Herloon Minotaur, and he did Herloon Minotaur. And oh That's boy, phenomenal. is that a wonderful piece of yeah. art. Yeah. Uh, let's talk briefly about Gamma. There's not much to say. This card uh, survived exactly as intended from Gamma. In Gamma, it was simply called Elves. Uh, one mana, may tap for one green mana. It's a 1-1. One, one. Yeah, the only thing that changed was the name. Between Gamma and Alpha, which is cool. There you go. And let's talk about reprints really quickly. This card has been basically... It was in every core set up till 7th edition. So ABU, revised, 4, 5, 6, 7. For some reason, it skipped 8th edition. I'd have to study why that is. I don't remember offhand. But then it was in 9, 10, 10, 11, and 12. And then it stopped until Dominaria and hasn't been seen in a, in a, you know, a format-defining set since. I think Wizards has shied away from this card now for a while because, well, for a couple of reasons. One is like in Innistrad, uh, not Innistrad, in uh, Eldraine, they had Gilded Goose, which is obviously eating a lot of Land of Elf's lunch. But at the same time, they got a lot of flack in Standard for just how overpowered Land of Elves was when it was in Dominaria. It was, you know, the, ex- the example that you gave of your Fires deck back in Invasion era, mm-hmm. right? It, it happened again in Standard, where anytime you could get that turn one elf, it, just, it was kind of like Time Walk. It just <laughs> put you a whole turn ahead, and you just kept casting Haymaker after Haymaker, and it was actually actively criticized. The format was bad for that reason. And then the London Mulligan made that all the worse, right? It made that turn one elf God, that much more reliable. Can you imagine how good Fires would have been with the London Mulligan? Good Lord. Yeah, exactly. And so it's going to be interesting to see, and I'm no expert in this, but it's going to be interesting to see where wizards goes in terms of one mana creature, sorry, one mana mana producing creature design in the long term, because they got really burned by Deathrite Shaman, right? And I think there, I think history is not going to look favorably upon Gilded Goose. Gilded Goose is a linchpin in a lot of decks, and it just does too much. And so 
I think they're going to dial that back in the next couple of years of set design, but it might just be that they just simplify and go back to Lano Elves in the next couple of sets. I really don't know. I'm no expert, like I said. And they're not showing any signs of restraint really lately either, so my point could be moot given modern set design. We'll see. We shall see. <sighs> Anything else on Lano Elves? No, that was quite a lot. A bit. Yes, that's a lot. Next up is one that we've already alluded to vis-a-vis uh, -vis Lords, and this is Lord of Atlantis. For UU, you get Summon Lord of Atlantis, which I love as creature types go. It simply says all merfolk in play gain Island Walk and plus one plus one while this card is in play, and it's a 2-2. Now, we already alluded to the fact that the Lords in Alpha have interesting interactions with themselves, right? <laughs> and Summon Lord of Atlantis is an awesome creature type, but it's very specifically not merfolk. The current organ of the card changed yeah. the creature type to Merfolk, but then changed the text to say other Merfolk. Yeah, plus one, plus uh, one, an island walk. So it still doesn't pump itself. God. But it does benefit from other Merfolk lords, which is part of the reason why the deck was so potent in modern for a while, because other Merfolk lords, like their, their Rejury and others, um, interacted positively with this otherwise Merfolk grizzly bear. It's also the most efficient of the Grixis lords, as you put them, Kevin. Yeah, being yeah, compact two mana. Too. Yeah, I mean it's phenomenal. Um, yeah, it's give, giving a power boost and being a two mana creature itself. Yeah, it's highly efficient. It, it's hard to know where to say, I mean where to start because I have so many memories of different Merfolk decks. Probably the most powerful impression <laughs> though is of the Merfolk decks are the are the decks. There, there was a guy who on Magic Online since I started playing Vintage on it what was it around 2014 just would appear every so often with his Merfolk deck. And he would often spike a vintage challenge or a power nine challenge, um, yeah. you know, top eighting, sometimes doing even better. And it's just, you know, with Cavern of Souls and just a countless number of lords, of <laughs> merfolk lords, it really did get yeah. out. And then turn one curse catcher and Nullrod, it really did get out of hand fairly quickly. Um, but the thing that, the thing that I think may be even more important than the, oh, we should, I would be, Foolish if I forgot to mention, Joel Lim won a vintage championship <laughs> with Merfolk. You know, yes, in yes. 2000, what year was that? 13? So yes. that, that was obviously a high point for the archetype. But I think perhaps, so clearly has a huge effect in vintage. I mean, it, for God's sakes, it won the vintage championship, which Goblins has never done. The Goblins has certainly done well in kind of the Waterbury and, and, uh, Star City Games Power 9 events. But Kevin, I think Merfolk, there's a debate about this, but there was a, but there is some indication that Merfolk may have been one of the first kind of agro control archetypes in magic history. At least one of the first oh. identified as such. Um, and I remember <laughs> my, my roommate, uh, from years ago from, um, you may remember Kevin. I think he was the one who took Chris? that position. Yeah, he took that position. And I think he criticized Darren D. Batista, who was a type one writer, for saying that Slivers was one of the first <laughs> agro control <laughs> archetypes. So I don't want to resolve that nice. dispute now, because of course there's <laughs> it depends on what you mean by that and what sort of historical evidence you can develop to support that point. But I don't think it's deniable that that look, there was there have been many instances. Let me just see if I can find a Pro Tour Merfolk deck. Um there's a, it looks like, wow. It, it looks big and modern. Yeah, for a while. it looks like it's in Pro Tour finishes in modern. Pro Tour Born of the Gods, et cetera, et cetera. 
Got second, third. Oh, my God. I'm looking at this Pro Tour top eight. If I'm getting this right, okay. It looks like there was just – Paul Rietzel even played this in 2015. So so Merfolk has a long tail in the in Magic's history. And, yes, Paul <laughs> Rietzel's deck um, has four Lord of Atlantis. So, Kevin, that's a lot. Why don't you, yeah. why don't you weigh in? Well, the card is awesome, as you said, highly efficient, and it benefited a lot from the combination of its efficiency that's placed on the mana curve was really mm-hmm. critical to the success of Merfolk, meaning you said it, Curse Catcher. Now, keep in mind, in the Alpha context, there's only one other Merfolk, right? Merfolk of the Pearl right. Trident, which is as weak as it gets for it's just a 1-1 to no abilities, the only ability being a Merfolk, right? And so you couldn't build the Merfolk deck in Alpha. It's just, it wasn't reasonable. Turn some Merfolk into... Uh, grizzly bears at best and so it took a long time for and and the next wave of merfolk that were printed i mean you and i probably remember pretty well how potent river merfolk from fallen empires felt in in context because it was the next like merfolk that felt like wow i could really attack someone with this it's a it's a two one for two and it has evasion of the type you know and so it's, it's it's laughable by today's standards to think of River Merfolk as a watershed moment, but it really was because Merfolk of the Pertrion went is so weak. But in practice, Merfolk, Lord of Atlantis, I mean, was printed in all the core sets up to 7th edition. And so it was just a mainstay. It was always, it was omnipresent, but I couldn't do anything with it. I remember having a couple copies of this in my early days, you know, like I said, opened a lot of revised packs, got a couple Lords of Atlantis, couldn't do anything with them. Unless you were just trying to be quirky and weird. And it was only a couple of sets later, and they introduced, you know, some things in Homelands. They introduced some things later on, and it started to catch some some wind behind its sails. But Curse Catcher, Curse Catcher is really the thing from a vintage context yeah. where you say, okay, <laughs> now I've got a one drop that's really interacting with my opponent, and if they don't kill it, they're going to start taking two, then three damage from it because I've got all these lords. Yeah. It- so the intersection of Curse Catcher and the lords and then uh, Cavern of Souls. Cavern of Souls, I think, was really critical to the deck. But also, the Curse Catcher gains a lot of its power with Null Rod. My oh, God. yes, lots of synergy. The ubiquity sure. of days, and these days these days. I mean, it's amazing to me that days is now like a vintage staple. <laughs> it's kind of incredible, <laughs> actually. It's all the downward pressure on efficiency. It really is remarkable. Um, yeah. But Kevin, I don't... The point I want to make is that the feature of this card that we should not lose sight of is the Island Walk. And so part of what positioning from yeah, a metagame yeah. perspective makes the merfolk archetype so threatening is that from an aggro control perspective you don't need to you know have you don't need to deal with your opponent's creatures you don't need to remove a psychotalk you don't need to remove aquarian dryad or hell a countless amount of perhaps more importantly monk or pyromancer elemental tokens right the mere Tarmogoyf. Tarmogoyf. but the mere fact that your opponent has islands and and not enough to gush up, which I've done plenty of gushing <laughs> against Merfolk um, for that exact <laughs> right. purpose, but the mere fact that it gives them island walk evasion. I mean, plus one plus one and evasion against blue decks, which is a huge chunk of vintage. That is power. That's very powerful, and that's partly what made I think Merfolk such a good aggro control strategy is because it really did put a tremendous amount of pressure on the control deck, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the gushing in response to an attack was a, a play that uh, Merfolk players, the worldwide, became very you know hesitant and aware of was the notion of what happens if my opponent has gush because the returning of the islands is 
the uncounterable part of the gush that really matters in a combat context mm-hmm. like that. So that was kind of a bit of a fun uh, give and take and, and in imbalanced information war mid game that was a, a little bit satisfying. But do you agree with the point that the agro control position against control and like a generic you know metagame archetype box meant meant that the island walk yeah became very central to oh yes and in the modern context where that was a little diluted because not every deck in modern is just a three or four color blue deck right that's contributed to the fact in the power of spreading seas right spreading seas a a a, a kind of card advantage neutral card that you can cast and replaces itself and a slight bit of mana re- uh, disruption in turning your opponent's best land into an island when they didn't want it to be combined with the, subsequently making your creatures mostly unblockable went meant spreading seas was the staple of the modern version in a way that it didn't need to be invented hmm. the other thing i was was going to say steve was simply that this lord was reprinted in every core set up to seventh edition which is noteworthy for a lord to to do that but then the only other time it was printed was strangely in time spiral in the time the time shifted sheet so it was reprinted in time spiral but not in the, the normal set in the time shifted sheet as a callback to alpha which time spiral was a bit of a love letter to the early days of magic and it's that printing that made the card legal in modern wow so think about huh. that back when time spiral was being conceived of as just this crazy callback you know, love letter to old school players kind of set. Let's reprint some old cards. What do you think about, what do you think about Singer Autocrat? Sure. What do you think about Prodigal <laughs> Sorcerer? Yeah. Oh, I like Lord of Atlantis. Let's put that in there. That, that simple decision to just reprint Lord of Atlantis on that special caveat sheet then spawned a Pro Tour top wow. eight deck, basically. Cause there's no way that Merfolk exists at that level in modern if that one reprint isn't made. All for want of a nail. It's so interesting. <laughs> exactly yeah and i just want to finish up by saying i love this art I, I mean i'm not a big um merfolk fan so to speak conceptually or as a tribe but this art is so compelling it's so uh, bright and and just this this character is so vivid and and ostentatious with giant fins on the shoulders and the head and the tail and the tail is super long and and being you know bandied about in this art as the, the the character poses for the camera so to speak it's just such a cool art by yeah, Melissa well, i was gonna say let's credit the artist here let's name her name her <laughs> sorry i didn't need to bury the lead <laughs> it melissa benson has so if jeff mengus has the the kind of thick brush style you know that creates like almost impressionistic in terms of how thick his brush is melissa benson is like one of the most hyper you know finely detailed rendered artists in alpha that her line is yeah. so thin as to be almost imperceptible, and her her drawings and art are so precise. And yeah, you, I mean, I don't think I'd ever really studied this, but the waist down part of the Lord is just incredible. You know, I mean, <laughs> it really it's is. like it's just incredible. It's awesome. Yeah, it's the fin is is regal and gorgeous. The 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 purple and you know obviously purple being historically a color of royalty. The reds, it's it's incredible actually. Right. Yeah. Well, and she, unfortunately, Melissa did not do many cards in Alpha. She only did seven. And they're all iconic. But we've already recent, for the most part, we've all already talked about, especially, especially Holy Armor. Just the amount of detail in Holy Armor is just incredible. And we have yet to get to, in my opinion, her two best, which are coming up yeah, in the near future here. So, yes, 
big big credit to Melissa Benson for this awesome piece. Let's talk a little bit about was Merfolk, uh, Lord, sorry, was Lord of Atlantis in Gamma? Let me double check. So, yep, the Gamma version of the Lord is called Lord of Mu, which I don't fully understand. Mu, uh, same mana cost, UU, uh, except this one is an enchantment. And it says, caster may take opponent's merfolk for UU. Merfolk starts tapped, returns after game. All merfolk have island walk. What an interesting thing. So if it weren't for... I don't understand why this card was even designed this way. If it weren't for the Lord of Atlantis becoming a merfolk later, this Lord of Mew card appears to only have one target in alpha. There was just merfolk, which became merfolk of the Pearl Trident, and that's it. So I really don't even understand this design, even though I get the mechanics of it. And I'm very grateful that it became Lord of Atlantis instead of yeah. this. Strange. That's a real head-scratcher. I just did a quick find in the blue cards in Gamma, and sure enough, there's only one Merfolk. So I don't understand why you would devote a whole card to gaining control of Merfolk of the Pearl Trident, well, which is also one of the weakest creatures well, in Gamma. Well, it does give all Merfolk island walks, so... I guess it allows you to take their Merfolk and then... Use them against it, them. And ostensibly, they're going to be unblockable when you're attacking back. Yeah, so... that's a, a. But who are you trying to kid? I mean, are you ever going to play that card? I would play against somebody that had 18 Merfolk of the Pearl Trident. I still wouldn't bring in Lord of Mew. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there's more to it than that. Uh, but anyway, Lord of Atlantis, awesome card. By the way, card, it says Lord of, of Mew power, is an enchantment. History. Yeah, exactly. It's an enchantment. It's not even a creature, which is weird. Well, speaking of Lords of Things, the next card is the coveted Lord of the Pit. Four BBB, <laughs> Summon Demon, Flying Trample, you must sacrifice one of your own creatures during upkeep, or Lord of the Pit does seven damage to you. You may still attack with Lord of the Pit, even if you fail to sacrifice a creature. And it's 7-7. Seven, seven. Well, this creature, Steve, is incredibly compelling in a number of ways. So much so that it has inspired a whole group of old school <laughs> players that have taken this as their, as their moniker, the Lords of True. the Pit. And... I must admit that I have a strong affinity for this card. I think I've partially told this story already, but this was the first and best rare that I ever opened in Revised. This is basically the first rare magic card that I ever opened and truly identified with. You never forget your first. Um, That's right. The irony being that I had already played against Lord of the Pit because my cousin, who taught me to play the game, hello Andy if you're listening to this, he played Lord of the Pit against me. And showed me the power of it, you know. Yes, he's sacrificing cheap creatures, but this creature is really, really hard to deal with. And so I had already knew the card, basically, a little bit, but I was very excited because it was just humongous. And I also didn't even know all the cards in Revise, so I've told the story about Force of Nature already. So I have a strong affinity for this card, and it's got some fantastic art that we can talk about. But by today's standards, I haven't cast this card, basically, since 1994. <laughs> and I don't see that changing yeah, anytime fortunately. soon. So... Uh, yeah, I view this card as a as a beautiful historical artifact and, uh, and not much more than that. I, I acknowledge that I may be missing out a little bit. What's your relationship like with the Lord well, of the Pit? I don't have this, you know, uh, charged memory, you know, aff- affectionate memory that you have with it, which is pretty cool. Um, but I, I have to say, in the old school community, one of the things that's funny about this card is for some reason it's become encased a kind of popular... Uh, what beer stand <laughs> coaster <laughs> that's right that's right 
I mean, yeah. For those who don't know, the if you go on Twitter and follow the old school folks, it's very common to see pictures of Lord of the Pit being used as a coaster for a beverage, usually alcoholic. <laughs> I think that both speaks to the fact that it's a card that people enjoy aesthetically and thematically, but an acknowledgement mm-hmm. that it doesn't have as very much practical applications, which I think is sadly <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. The card is is really sweet. And the the Mark Tadeen art is just just really really compelling, you know. It's although there's no real context in terms of the setting, it still to me conveys a menacing size and menacing figure, also grotesque. Not not maybe living wall grotesque, but still pretty grotesque. Mark Tadeen uh, just has cornered the market on this fleshy, you know, H.R. Giger <laughs> kind of <laughs> drawing style for for bodies and. The fact of the matter is, is that I also think this card is a little bit of a lesson in magic mechanics and card evaluation. Yeah. Like, there, we've we just finished reviewing Lich, which has pretty much the pinnacle of you know risk reward, right? But this one's still pretty high up there in terms of the risk reward that it gives you, and so much so that there's that bit of strategic advice written right in the card, right? That says you can still attack if you didn't sacrifice somebody. That's kind of giving you that wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know. You know, you really kind of only need maybe one turn without the seven damage, and then you just kind of go to town, <laughs> which is I find pretty funny and is, is a very black thing in, in the magic context. So I find this card very satisfying from a number of different lenses. No, I, I do too. I mean, lines. it's the art is – I love even the kind of demonic um, – what do you call it? Hieroglyph or in, in, embedded in – Oh, yeah, in the yeah, upper right. And then the yeah. notion that this is – you know, the Im- implication – of the card text is that you are provisionally in control of this threat. But if you don't, if you don't do what you're (laughs) supposed to do, it's going to turn on you. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it has two different, it has two different abilities, both evasion, right? It's enormously powered. I always felt the breeding pit from fallen empires was created to pair with this card. But I mean, at the end of the day, all of that power, I mean, if you, again, are new to magic, you might think like, God, this does, Everything, everything you would want in a threat, but the fact that it's basically unplayable, I think, epitomizes the, the 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 depth of magic. Right, that what is superficially powerful is often what appears to be at the superficial level powerful is often the very opposite, or occasionally the very opposite. And this is probably the thing that it that expresses that in the most extreme manner. So, yeah, yeah. Completely agree. And to put it a little more simply, this is a kind of a big Timmy card. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's got a little bit of Johnny built in there because there's some some deck construction to be considered and some risk reward. But the the fact of the matter is, this is just a a big dumb creature that's really fun to have in play and and can make you feel pretty powerful as a mage. And there's another, I would say, subtle maybe bit of the lore for this card. So okay, one first things first. Reprints. This is Alphabet Unlimited revised. And then it was in summer and subsequently in fourth edition, fifth edition. And then it took a huge break. It wasn't printed again until uh, 10th edition. And then it wasn't in a core set after that. But there was one noteworthy, well, actually a few subsequent noteworthy printings. And that was because it was in, it was kind of the one of the title cards of the dual decks, Divine versus Demonic, which ostensibly sought to pit this as the title demon against the angel deck. And it had, for the first time, reprinted Lord of the Pit with new art. Not not the first time. 
it was the first printing of Lord of the Pit with this third art uh, by Chippy. And this third art is noteworthy because it really cements this character and its similarities to the Balrog from Lord of the Rings. Mm. And to me, it cements the fact that it's pretty clear that Lord of the Pit was envisioned as a, a bit of a homage to the Balrog even though we didn't have as much cultural familiarity visually with the Balrog until the movies came out, mm-hmm. right? But but then in 2009, when the dual decks came out, this dual deck version of Lord of the Pit is just undeniably an homage to the movie Balrog. And I think that that's pretty sweet. I think it's it's not exactly the same, but it has all the earmarks of that creature and really cements the comparison in my eyes. The... I wouldn't be surprised. I haven't looked at it yet. I wouldn't be surprised if the Gamma version of Lord of the Pit didn't actually contain a Balrog <laughs> reference. Let me see. I bet it does. Actually, I'm not seeing a card is called Lord of the Pit. Is it just called Balrog instead? In... <laughs> oh my god, it is. <laughs> it's just called Balrog. You, you... <laughs> wow, we both called it. Yeah. Well, there you have it. I did not know. I, I promised the audience I did not look that up in advance, but the, the gamma card is called Balrog. <laughs> 7 BBB. It says flies. If Balrog destroys its blocker, excess damage is dealt to the opponent. That's trample. And then during upkeep, sacrifice a creature, not the Balrog. If you have no creatures, lose seven life. So it's basically unchanged from gamma. And yeah, it there it is. the word dealt, Straight up Balrog. Way, to opponent. Oh yeah, dealt. Okay. <laughs> Well, there you have it. It's pretty undeniable proof of my theory. <laughs> so I have a lot of respect for the ABU uh, Lord of the Pit art, but if you're really kind of a Lord of the Rings homer and you wanna and you wanna see that art, take a look at that the, the one that's been reprinted the last three times because it's pretty cool. Neat. All right, let's go on to Lure. Oui. Lure, a card that invented a whole mechanic. So in Alpha, Lure is one GG, enchant creature. All creatures able to block target creature must do so. If a creature has the ability to block more than one creature, Lure does not prevent (laughs) this. If there is more than one attacking creature with Lure, defender may choose which one of them each creature, uh, each defending creature blocks. So so it literally creates an exception. Well, it creates an exception for two-headed giant. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Well, it's actually... uh, and the card, um, there was one oh, other card that, uh, yeah. yeah, Blaze of Glory that uh, that lets you block multiples too. Yeah, so this is part of that is just a, a strong recognition of the fact that Alpha had so many ways to monk with monkey with attacking God. and blocking that you had to bake in the exceptions to a card like we, this. We've already covered the, um, the main tactical uses, I think, which was on Thicket yeah, Basilisk and Cockatrice, which was like, you know, yeah. the. Inquest issue five top ten combos from revised or whatever, <laughs> you know. Um, I want to just jump to the fact that. So we also you mentioned the fact that there are a number of cards, pithy card titles that have become mechanics, and this is one of them. What I want to jump to is this is yeah. an underappreciated, unheralded uh, piece of Ansonmatics art. Pretty cool. Yeah. See, I, I was going to make a similar point too. If you didn't, the. Um... The art is very simple in composition, but the more you look at it, the more you think about it, it has some some layers, I think, to the, the storytelling. Because, number one, this is an apple. Number two, apparently the apple is meant to be the, the lure, but at the same yeah. time, yeah, is it gold or silver? That's pretty noteworthy. There's not a lot of golden apples in this world. And then you look at the art and what's reflected yes. in it, and that is just incredibly both well-rendered and satisfying, and then 
adds another layer to the meaning of this thing, which it adds menace yes. to it in a way that just an apple sitting on a table might otherwise not have. Yep. There is a threat. For all There's reasons. literally a monster inside the apple. It's luring yeah. you to take a bite of the apple and then you'll get bitten is the point. Yep. Oh, it's so it's so satisfying. I would not have thought this was Anson Maddox. It doesn't have any of his like, typical markers, which is is it? Yeah, That's true. and also by the way, the table that it's sitting on, it, you get a sense of how dangerous this thing actually is because it appears to be like acid or some sort of like you know like green yeah. smoke that of evoking poison yeah. fumes coming yeah. off the table. Yeah, yeah, pretty cool. Well, this card was reprinted up to revised, and then it was in summer, and then fourth edition. Then it was in, interestingly, then it was in Ice Age. Oh, yeah. It's and a so bizarre ca- piece of art cards, in Ice Age. It's a Foglio. <laughs> uh, yeah, the Phil Foglio <laughs> art, which is this is showing a character like a goblin getting its cheek pulled by a literal lure. Like someone was casting a fishing line and caught this goblin's uh, cheek. It's a little unsettling. But the notion it was put into Ice Age, and then later it was put into Masks. And that tells us that it was viewed as even more of a staple because it was put into these other non-numbered core set core sets. It was in 5th edition, 6th edition, Masks, 7th, and then 8th edition. And then it took a little bit of a break and was strangely, again, Kamigawa. It was in Kamigawa. So this card, even though it was in a bunch of numbered core sets, was in three of the not-numbered uh, you know, core sets that were part of the three-set blocks. 10th edition, and then M12. The It hasn't been reprinted since, and I, I can understand why. It's overstated its welcome in terms of its power level. Right. Because while the card can be kind of a beating in a limited environment, it was never good enough for Constructed, oh, no. really. Like, I, as a, as a young Timmy, did put it into a couple decks because it was a way to just end a game sometimes when we weren't building very good decks. And it was fun to pull off the Thicabascalus combo occasionally. But otherwise, this card is not good enough and definitely overstayed its welcome in almost every Magic context. It's got one of those tragic functions where if it does its job, it goes away quickly. You know, I mean, whatever you put <laughs> it on is going to die very quickly. <laughs> so. Yeah. Barring certain Mondo combos with indestructible <laughs> yeah. creatures or something. And I'm pretty sure at some point in my life I put this on a drudge scout. Nice. I must have done that. <laughs> yeah. That's frustrating. I almost certainly did that. <laughs> now, regeneration. Yeah, I don't have too much more yeah. to say. I like the art more than I like the card, that's for sure. Well, I like the card because I like what it signals to me is that they are building in cool synergies and cool interactions into Alpha, right? Different kinds of ways that's on fair. regeneration, on you know the Thicket Basilisk Cockatrice. And I, I love that. I mean, I think we already talked about how they went overboard on enchant creatures, enchant permanents, mm-hmm. period. Um, and they learn from that. But this is, in my opinion, this is one of the more interesting ones. Certainly not power, powerful on, on a power level scale, but uh, I think one of the more interesting enchant, enchant creatures. Looking at the gamma version of this card, it's noteworthy that the effect is entirely the same, except it costs a single green there mana. There you go. That's what it should have been. Yeah. Much better, and it also plays into the fact that there's just much more emphasis on creature combat and things that manipulate creature combat in Gamma and subsequently Alpha. Yeah. You could have made this an instant, me... too, you know, just for a turn, and it wouldn't have been, I, th- I don't think, substantially or materially different in the vast majority of cases, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I would agree with that. We are at M. We are at M. So M, what does M bring for us? Well, of course, M brings us... Mox Pearl. 
<laughs> magical hack. Yeah, we're gonna. Have to, it's gonna be a while till we get to Mox Pearl. First of all, magical hack is a interrupt for you. <clears throat> Change the text of any card being played or already in play by replacing one basic land type with another. For example, you can change Swamp Walk to Planeswalk. Nice bit of strategic advice there. In most meaningful ways, this card remains unchanged from Alpha. Um, Steve, is there anything about that card that uh, stands out to you? Because I can honestly say this is one of those ones that stunk up my <laughs> box of cards when I was a kid. Harsh. <laughs> God. I, I just really, really so, despised opening uh, Magical Hacks and Slayer. So I could be mistaken thing. about this, but I, I seem to recall Richard Garfield saying, that from Alpha, this is his favorite card. Now, he's on record saying Scheherazade's his favorite card of all, you know, in Magic, but the Magical Hack was his favorite card um, from from the Alpha original set. Huh. Um, you don't say. I do say. Uh, but what I think is interesting is that this is part of a class, in my opinion. And the class includes, as you said, Slide of um, Mind. Slide of Mind. Let me say that. The class includes Slide of Mind, of course, but I think it also extends to the Laces. And I think what this card and Slide of Mind and the Lace suggested that is that this ability to change identity was a much larger conceptual part of Magic the Gathering than I think we think is either justifiable from a contemporary perspective or should have been the case um, back in the day, because clearly that's been whittled out for the most part. But think about it. Step back for a second, Kevin, and think about Magic. What is Magic? All right, fundamentally... Magic wasn't conceived of as a game of attacking and blocking and, you know, direct damage spells and counter spells. That's, that's how we think about it today. What it, when it was in its elemental form of five magics, magic was about different kinds of spells, magics coming out of different kinds of colors, right? That's why it was called five magics. And they were very much supposed to be based upon thematic to those color identity elements. And so Magical Hack and Sleight of Mind were two ways of messing with that in a very direct way. And I think that they were intended to be and thought to be a larger part of what Magic was. And once, you know, players started playing with them, the Hive Mind figured things out, they realized that that was just an error, right? It was... (laughs) (laughs) Not the most compelling part of Magic, I would say. No, but if you were... But I think if you start with the very basic concept of, of different colors of Magic doing different things, I could see how you would think from a very conceptual origin point that these would be a larger part of the game. Oh, I completely agree. Don't get me wrong. I And I follow that logic really at its base. I simply, I would simply observe that the implementation of those things yeah. in Alpha and Gamma were <laughs> mostly filled with feel-bads. <laughs> it was mostly uh-huh. filled with ways in which your opponent just didn't get to play magic if you did things like magical hack their gloom not gloom's a bad example magical hack their conversion to say you know planes or swamps or whatever would hurt them the most that kind of thing was just like the the ways it was implemented was not fun and whimsical and oh what a neat interaction it was just like oh now i lose instead of you you know (laughs) because because the things you had to interact with were like my creature is unblockable okay, that's not especially fun. Now I just don't have any choices, yeah. you know? Or my creature has protection from your one color. I'm going to magical hack this thing so my Cyclopean tomb changes your lands to different types or whatever. Like, the the, the ways that was implemented were not good. And you, then you layer into the fact that as a collectible card game, and I know Richard Garfield um, didn't 
could not really anticipate the popularity of magic and subsequently the nature of what collecting it really played like. But having seven of this effect at rare <laughs> in the early sets was just way oppressive and also made opening booster packs uh, much less fun in practice. Because I had, as a kid, I had a stack of laces and hacks and slights that just sat there. And I was like, well, whatever it is that's meant to be fun about this part of the game, I do not see it and don't feel it. And so they just languished in my box. But hey, that's neither here nor there. The card does what it does very well. And it's very efficient at it. And they have printed a couple more efficient versions that combine slight and hack since then. But it still does what it does. And it does play its role, as you described. Yeah, I... I, I think that you're right. I think you, that your observation is part of the problem was that, um, so, so for example, what are the actual implementations of swamp or planeswalk? I mean, there aren't, there aren't an overwhelming amount, right? I mean, it's, or swamps. It's, it's, it's like conversion, <laughs> right? It's, um, well, let's just count. There's, okay. So in alpha, there are eight references to swamp. Uh, there are three of them. Okay, two of them are creatures. Having swamp three, sorry, three of them are creatures having swamp walk. Bograith, evil presence, Sami master. So that's a way that if you were playing a blue X deck, a blue black deck, you could remove your opponent's uh, swamp walk, which would be a nice kind of combat trick. Or you can impart a different land walk to your own creature if you wanted to. Then there's sedge troll, which it's real hard to you know changing that text just gives basically a plus one to that creature or a minus one depending on your context. Then there's Cormus Bell and Nightmare. You yeah. know, it, this can kill a nightmare, basically. And then there's Cyclopean Tomb and Karma. And <laughs> with Karma, you can just make Karma apply to whoever you want. That is so your your whimsical applications are basically Cyclopean Tomb and Cormus Bell. <laughs> yeah, basically. And and I guess you're kind of turning off a Cormus Bell, which but you could change again. That's not. That's couldn't not, you? Ch- you could make a. I mean, you could make a situation where. You're changing swamp to island, and now all all of a sudden I have a bunch of creatures, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, okay, but that to me falls under the heading of oh, I was winning and now I'm just losing. Like it's it's kind of all, all, these all seem like they just take one switch and turn it from off to on is what they do. It's not like an incremental interesting thing. Yeah. Cyclopean tomb is the only like incremental interesting thing. Otherwise, it's just this creature is unblockable, or this creature can now be blocked normally. Okay, I think that's not. That I think what Richard needed to, needed to do if he wanted this card to be better was to take a heavier hand in terms of making sure that throughout the commonality, the rarity sections of of Alpha, that there were cards that would 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 make this useful in an interesting way. Right? He needed to be deliberate in making yeah. more synergies. And I think, and I would argue, interesting but not just overpowering yeah. too, right? Yeah, because I think the karma example is just a pure feel bad. Either your opponent played a karma and now it's killing them because it says planes and they they just die in two turns or whatever it is, right? Or you played a karma and you're just sidestepping its drawback and changing it to mountain and killing a different player the same way karma already does, well, just in I a think, different matchup. I think one you know? thing that stands out is that. Just the is comparison comparing this to Slide of Mind. Slide of Mind seems incredibly more powerful. I mean, with you know, with all the examples we've talked about, Life Force and Death Grip, and the COPs and so on and so forth, it just has a much wider scope of for application. Sure, you can you can probably magical hack a Life Tap, but that's marginal in comparison. Also, Northern <laughs> Paladin, like, you know, being another thing you can yeah. Slide of Mind. 
I don't think I realized the dramatic asymmetry before between these two cards. I thought they were kind of like, <laughs> you know, fraternal twins, but they're really not. They're more like twins in the Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito sense. <laughs> <laughs> that's really, that's really funny. Uh, you know what? I agree with you there. It's just the, the extremes. They go from interesting to backbreaking. Very few interesting ones. They go from mundane to slightly interesting to backbreaking. Like, you're not gonna, you're not gonna sleight of mind a throne of bone. Like, I, okay, so I take that back. You would sleight of mind a throne of bone, but it's boring. It's not interesting. All you've done is turned it into a crystal rod. Like, that's not interesting, yeah. right? Um, and then there's the whole White Knight situation. Like, White Knight, I would argue, is interesting. You, you, you can create some scenarios where I've, I've tried to remove it, but haha, now I have protection from green or I'm, you know, I'm blocking and haha, now my creature doesn't die. Like, but then what is that? That you just turned it into a combat trick. Like the, the, the ways that alpha manipulates land types and colors is either, you know, closing the door on something completely or just not that interesting. I mean, are you gonna put are you gonna put together a blue black deck where all your creatures are blue, and so that you can sleight of mind some blood moons to say blue, or sorry, uh, bad moons to say blue? That's oh, okay. I guess that's somewhat interesting. You've put together a a, a blue lord in alpha only. That's there's there's something to that. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I I just think there are you needed more incremental levers on cards to have this whole mechanic of shifting colors around be interesting and tactical as opposed to just i'm gonna reinvent a new complete hoser or i'm gonna do something that's really minor and silly was magical so slide of mine is continued into ice age was magical ha- well tell me the reprint history of magical hack it did not go as far as slide of mind it only went up to fifth edition what wasn't ever in any other non-numbered core sets just just fourth you know revised fourth that's fifth. actually further than i thought it went i would have imagined it stopped to fourth <laughs> Yeah, well, it, uh, in my opinion, it's like three or four too far, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> You're really hating on this card, jeez. Uh, I just the effect the effect was not properly positioned and properly designed, and I think it takes multiple things to to really fix actually, it. Actually, I do think I, it was. I'll properly tell you what I've liked it. I mean, you want it at rare, you want it at one mana, and you probably want it in blue. If you're gonna put it in uh, any of those places, it, that's where it should be, right? You don't want this a common or uncommon. It'd be infuriating. See, that's the part I disagree with. Why, if you're putting it at rare, why did you make seven cards at rare that have an effect like this? Just make one or two and put them at uncommon. You could cut the laces from this format and this format entirely and put magical hack and sleight of mind at uncommon. And I would be much happier, much happier. But then again, like I, I said, Richard Garfield didn't know how popular the game was and didn't have a lot of thought put into the the fun well, of opening booster packs exactly. Yeah, there's two points there's two points to make about that. The first is that in the original design of yeah. Magic, you weren't actually supposed to know what was rare and what wasn't. Like it was not uh, that's fair. It was too. not thought that people would have actually collected the entire set such that they would know, you know, what was rare. And so part I think the the main f- that's, that only partly mitigates no, that. No, but issue, part but. the function of rarity was not to, so when we open it if we were to open an alpha pack and you you know and you see magical hack you'd be super disappointed right but but the, <laughs> <laughs> you're like damn it this is terrible exactly. but um you know and, and so obviously we'd look for good rares because they're rare and we want to get the good ones but that's not how magic was originally designed it's original design rares were supposed to be things that were the least frequently in circulation right they weren't and they weren't yeah. trying you weren't supposed to induce joy or disappointment <laughs> by depending on what's in that third or fourth card slot 
what you're supposed to be doing <laughs> is making sure that the cards that are the most obscure and perhaps narrow have the, the least circulation. And so putting something in uncommon, I think it would double your disappointment because you'd see so many. Now, all the times you saw Life Tap, you'd be upset to see Magical Hack. Now, here's the other thing. The second point is that if you consolidated all of those things, Kevin, just to the two the two spells, then all of a sudden the color identity shifting things are just in blue as opposed to all throughout all the five magics. And maybe that's fine, but I think the idea... Yeah, yeah I think that was something that Richard wanted to have across. I think the flaw was maybe not in conception, but not making, not ensuring that in these 295 correction, 302 cards <laughs> in limited edition had a sufficient quantity of interesting kind of lure basilisk, basilisk type combinations with magical hack, right? That I think was the mistake. If, if they had added even two or three more, it could have made a tremendous difference. So I, I take your reasoning and the, the, the notion of making something in the rare slot to make it more obscure is not obscure that part but, but just is, more out of less in, go ahead go ahead you know obscurity it's not just <laughs> it, obscurity is a byproduct of the core thing which is I guess well isn't isn't obscurity though the intersection of the intentional part of the rarity combined with how much product Richard expected people to have either own or have access to? That's, Maybe. I'm using that word purposefully. He wanted these cards to be obscure. Yeah, I think obscure. That's why Ancestral Recall exists at all, right? That's why he put that one at rares, because he wanted people to rarely have I one. I think things can become obscure because they have become, been lost to history or lost to something, As whereas I think there's a more deliberate connotation here. But go ahead. Okay, fair enough. The But the if the goal was to make these effects um, you know, at rare, on purpose, so they didn't come out that often then the fact that there are seven of them <laughs> just just muddies that goal completely. Keep in mind, by the numbers, how many alpha rares are there? 1,100. Per rare. How many alpha commons? 4,500. So if you multiply seven different alpha rares that, that monkey with colors, you get 7,700 of these laces plus hacks. Whereas if you had just done what I suggested and put Magical Hack and, and Sleight of Mind at Uncommon and got rid of the laces, you'd have 9,000 as opposed to 7,700. Like, the numbers would work out at a 7 to 2 ratio, yeah. right? So I think it's justifiable, but, but I, I'm not harping on this issue too badly just because there are a lot of factors at play that Richard Garfield couldn't and didn't predict. That's okay. But the simple truth is is that the, the intersection of all these factors... The, the other thing, too, is that it doesn't take many openings of booster packs to understand. You're talking about gamers. You're talking about D&D people. You're talking about the math nerds of, of middle school and high school, right? How many booster packs, Steve, did you have to open before you understood which place was going to be the cool card, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, what, three? <laughs> like, the notion that this that rarity would be obscure to people is is, in my opinion, laughable in hindsight. The only way that truly would have worked is if you had shuffled the cards in the boosters. But the fact that they're collated means humans and their inherent ability to recognize patterns is going to kick in after the first two, right? Like the the first the second time you get a land war elf in in you know the first chunk of cards, you're going to be like, oh yeah, there's probably a lot of these. <laughs> but the fact that you open three boosters and the only card that's that's actually legitimately different across them is in the last slot, like your, your recognition kicks in real fast. So I don't think the notion that rarity was meant to be obscured or, you know, hidden basically from the audience 
it really stood up to any kind of any kind of real analysis. If people only were ever allowed to buy as much magic product as they were at Gen Con the first year, then okay, maybe. <laughs> well, <laughs> but once you get a couple of boosters past that, that falls apart I think real that quick. The, I think that the underlying problem is that there wasn't, or the 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 premise or the assumption, the assumption rather within your argument right there is that there's only one goal that they were trying to achieve. And I think that there were two goals, and they were working across purposes. And the the other goal was oh, okay. the goal of making sure that all five colors of magic could manipulate magic identity. And so that was yeah, that cross purposes with the other goal of, you know, remove making these less circulated by by removing them to the rare slot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I still would have put it in uncommon. But there's a lot of hindsight baked into that observation. Well, I mean, it's possible they just shouldn't exist at all. Because if you can't it's so it's not <laughs> about what the the optimal solution is probably not including magical hack and magic. <laughs> if you know, it does create for some very interesting, I guess, puzzling type situations, which are cool. But if you aren't mm-hmm. going to create a sufficient number of interesting applications, then I don't think it, it probably doesn't warrant inclusion in, Alpha, in in Magic, let's say, limited edition. Yeah, that's fair, and I would support that conclusion above all else. I think. I can, I can, I can I just want that. to. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to th- finish up by throwing out to Julie Barrow, who did all of four cards in Alpha, and this card I would not put this very high on my list of iconic or noteworthy arts in Alpha, but at the same time, it's actually the one out of it's on the short list of cards with the most context. Yeah, <laughs> there is just so much context crammed into here. You've got this figure in profile hunched over what looks like a, a pseudo-drafting type desk, maybe with a with a, a tome or something. It's hard to tell, a scroll maybe. And they're they're intent on it, but then their their office, their workspace is just filled with interesting knickknacks and bobs and things on the wall and a statue and an hourglass. I mean, there's just so much going on here. It's it's kinda of like Library of Lang. I was gonna say everything you described applies to Library of Lang just about. So Yeah, yeah. This card possibly has the most context crammed into the art out of all the ones in Alpha, and I love it. It's for some reason I find it very oddly satisfying. It's a little bit like the uh, the lo-fi hip-hop girl in this day and age. So, uh, all right, let's move on to a card that uh, does not need any help, <laughs> and that card is Mahamori Jin. Oh boy, it, what simplicity. For, for you, you, you get summon Jin, and it simply says flying, and it's a 5-6. The simplicity and elegance of this card, I think, is matched only by its relative power yeah. and uh, the the strong place that it holds that we've already alluded to a few times in the in the alpha context. I, I don't play this card very much, but man, did I love opening these <laughs> in revised. Holy moly. Talk about a card I was excited to get in the rare slot. Wow. Did you? Did you ever get it? <laughs> oh, yeah. I opened a few. Nice. I opened a few in my days. And I was really excited because this is, you know, on the short list of things that can go toe-to-toe with my opponent, Shivan, yep. right? And uh, it can beat down those annoying Sengers and Sarahs. Like, oh, yeah, I was big time into the Mahamori Jin. Even though I didn't understand a lot of real fundamental tenets of magic, I did understand the fact that this matched up really well against 95% of the creatures in the set. This is interesting because uh, let's just talk about the thematic first. This is the only Jin in Alpha, right? Jin or Afrit. Uh you know, I uh, I can't say whether or not I can confirm that off the top of my head. Let me just double check. Jin or Efreet. Yeah, this is the only one. Uh, a foreshadowing of right. Arabian Nights. And it very much does, right? I mean, the art has, you know, uh, looks like it could be like Aladdin or something. Uh, 
character rubbing the mm-hmm. genie, uh, the bottle, and the genie's coming out, right? The genie. It, In a puff yep, of smoke. It's, yep. it's very clear, uh, kind of Middle Eastern, you know, fantasy art, imagery, so on and so forth. Um, Kevin, I, so one of the, my quickly identified blue and white, you know, back in 1994 is the cards to play, is the colors to play. You know, swords, disenchant, counter spells mm-hmm. very quickly became obvious to me. I, for a while, I think I was playing green and that, you know, is a heavier basis. I had like Rubinia and I may have had birds of paradise, but then I slowly jettisoned them as I powered up and, and went just to, you know, mi- focused on blue white. I didn't, I wasn't really big on, you know, smattering all of the other colors in. I, I really wanted to focus around blue and white and then, you know, bring everything else in in a, sl- in a lower, in a slower way. And I independently discovered this from Brian Weissman's the deck. And I basically built, by the time I had finished my blue white deck in its kind of maximalist form, I had my, my win conditions were just two Sarah Angels, a Mahamodi Jin, and I think I had a Felden's Cane in the sideboard for for nice. um yeah for millstone decks and mirror matches um and the, and so i you know basically that, that was my only oh i also had of course brain geyser as a win condition i didn't never ran fireball but um but i never really used brain geyser in that way as a win condition it was always just you know the <laughs> my main win conditions were sarah mahamodi and feldon's game and in fact feldon's game was my favorite win condition because it meant i could be you know complete control role um and I, I didn't have to like defend, you know, my Sarahs if they if they top decked swords. Um, but yeah, Mahmoudi I thought was like there with Sarah Angel, and then until I saw Brian Weissman's deck, and I realized that my deck could be improved even more. But the playgroup I played around, they like affirmed and confirmed that I <laughs> I did design this, you know, independently because <laughs> I had you know the eight counter spells, the four swords and four disenchants, and so on and so forth. So Mahmoudi to me will always be. You know, from my 1994 and then later 1995 Type 1 deck was one of my favorite win conditions. Um, and yes, for the reasons you said, nice. right? It it survived combat with the Senjir. It was larger. It could survive combat with the Sarah. It was larger. It could it could do kind of had more defensive capabilities. It wasn't felled by a psionic blast and so on. And I never really mm-hmm. was concerned about it getting red blasted that much. Um and I also felt it was like better against, oh, here's the other thing. The biggest reason that this card was important, and this is no small thing, was that it survived combat <laughs> with the Juzum Jin. Oh, yeah. That was much bigger post-alpha. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, I mean, cause Juzum Jin was just the best creature, period. Everyone knew it. Um, you know, in, in 1994, 1995, type one, Juzum Jin was like number one baddie on the street. You know, it was like the creature mm-hmm. that everyone, you know, you either played that or you played a basically a control deck. You had a Juzum deck. There were sometimes like Urnum, but mostly it was, it was Juzum was the main, the main baddie. So, so, Ur, uh, so here, Mahamodi was the guy. He was the guy who could survive combat with basically everything you might reasonably see and have kind of like pre-type one, type one deck, right? And, and, right. Live, and then could be your win condition once you dealt with that or keep him on defense as need be and attack with Sarah's. Yep. Really just an incredibly strong role player, both for the Timmies and the competitive players alike. You don't really see Mahamodi in old school very much. I did actually encounter a blue-red deck that had a Mahamodi, and I was shocked to see it, and I was impressed. 
Um, <laughs> partly because, you know, there's so many red blasts and control magics and so on and so forth. Um, and it does take a double bolt to kill it, uh, that right, that route. Um, but yeah, it's extremely rare and old school. Um, it's also maze of it. Yeah, maze. It's decent in it's, I, I mean, I think it's probably fine as a one or one of in, in alpha league or, you know, if you want to, in that particular format, it's probably fine if you're playing mono blue or blue white. Sarah Angel is generally going to be better, like most of the time. But in, in mono blue, right. I mean, I don't really like those cards in mono blue. I don't think you need a fat Modi to win the game. I think you can easily win with jade statues. I don't even think you need air elementals, but I can understand why people would want to pl- feel security of having a mono Modi. Yeah. Matches up well against Juggernaut, too, in, in specifically but Alpha. so does Jade Statue. Oh, fair enough. So, Mahamodi was printed in Alpha Beta Unlimited, revised, and fourth. It took a break for a couple sets, came back in seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth, and it hasn't been seen in a non-reprint fashion since tenth edition. It's pretty clear that the card for a rare six-mana blue creature um, has become outclassed. Yeah. Uh, you you want to get more for six mana because like it or not it is still just a, a semi vanilla uh, creature and so you don't see this kind of thing at rare anymore. The it has been reprinted though in a couple of recent sets. Uh, I guess recent is overstating it. It was in <laughs> it was in Ultimate Masters, but it's been downgraded to an uncommon for its last few printings. It's all relative. Time is relative. <laughs> Time is relative. Yeah, Iconic Masters and Ultimate Masters in particular, it was reprinted. Yeah, as a uncommon, and that stands to reason. Even then, it's probably falling by the wayside in it, terms of value you'd even expect from an uncommon due to power It makes creep. me really sad when they reprint a card like this or Sarah to try and get some attention, and then you discover that, you know, reprinting it in 8th or ninth, it just, I don't know, it becomes obscure, to use your <laughs> word, right? It becomes, uh, that, yeah. that makes me sad, because it, it loses a lot of its luster when, I don't know. It's like Michael Jordan coming out of retirement or something. You know, it's just not the sure. same product. <laughs> well, that if a better advertisement for old school as a concept, I have not heard. <laughs> yes. Right? Part of the part of the value of old school is not just to relive your potentially your childhood in some cases, which has a certain value, but also just to recontextualize yes. cards to see them uh, in, their in their original, original environment. Context. Right? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of value in that, like you said. Okay, anything else on, on Modi? Cool, I mean, we already card. commented no, we're on good. the art. Do you have anything else to add? Yeah. No, you covered a lot of the stuff I wanted to cover as well, so I'm good. Very, very affection, uh, very affectionate card for me. Oh, one other thing. Uh, the Gamma version is just called Jin, <laughs> yeah. but it's otherwise the same card. <laughs> Elves, Jin, Goblin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Goblins. Yeah, Gamma was good with its, its simplistic high fantasy or other fantasy types. All right, after Mahamodi Jin is a couple of cards that really monkey with mana. <laughs> we got four mana cards. They're back abstract to back concepts, here. difficult to make into art. All th- all the three of the next ones. <laughs> yeah. That's that's true. And they, they I guess they get a little less well, no, no, I take that back. There's some different scales of abstractness here. The first one is Mana Barbs. So, Mana Barbs is an enchantment. This costs 3 and a red. Whenever any land is tapped, Mana Barbs does one damage to the land's controller. Pretty simple in concept, really. And um, the execution on the alpha wording here isn't too bad. The card is symmetrical, applies all the time to you and your opponents. 
And the current Oracle wording is pretty darn close to that. Whenever a player taps a land for mana, Mana Barbs does one damage to that player. It's worth contextualizing for our audience before we go any further that this card um, had a double effect of sorts in the alpha in the early years of the game due to Mana Burn. It's not like yes. this card causes Mana Burn. It's well, just that this card makes Mana Burn doubly problematic in certain interactions and, and contexts and it's you got to keep in mind that context too when you evaluate this card i think we should talk about this card in it's a pairing which it is with power surge which is the card you're really thinking of oh. because this punishes you for tapping lands and power surge punishes you for not tapping lands for not tapping lands yeah you're right power surge is the one that's more impacted and impactful with respect to um mana bird so let me read that one so we're skipping ahead a little bit but it's our show Power Surge says RR, enchantment, before untapping lands at the start of a turn, each player takes one damage for each land he or she controls but did not tap during the previous turn. Yeah. Which is a hilarious wording <laughs> and subject to some interpretation, <laughs> of course. But, but to your point, um, the idea here is simply if you don't tap your lands, you you take damage for doing so. So it's meant to punish basically blue yes. for not tapping out. yes. And also, the reason why it's impactful is because of the existence of Mana yes. Burn. It, but when Mana, there were a handful of cards when Mana Burn went away that you, you know, we confirmed about, conferred about, and they were just functionally neutered. And this is at or near the top of that list mm-hmm. <laughs> of cards that yeah. were just functionally killed. Now, now I find it interesting. Several things. Number one is, so first of all, Power Surge is the is the first in a long line of of red enchantments that monkey with blue. Like tectonic instability, so on and so <laughs> forth. The punished blue for not, you know, for yeah. holding up a bunch of men. For either not tapping out or for tapping out on your turn. Right. This, but, yeah. but I find it interesting because they're, they're symmetrical, but not in terms of mana cost. That mana barbs at four mana <laughs> is, is very pricey. Whereas power surge is like, feels about perfectly priced. In fact, it's almost a slap in the face. And red, red, it's saying, I'm matching blue, blue, right? This is a, <laughs> that's it's a good point it's i never really picked up on that that uh parallelism there it's really aping the counter spell mana right. cost now mana barbs so this could be a potentially very powerful card i mean so think about all the things that you would put in kind of like a painful red you know red deck like an atog deck copper tablet ankh of mishra's at the very top you know there's the dingus egg mm-hmm. we talked about that um Mana barbs could easily be one of those very powerful, I'm just going to drain your life away, damned if you do, damned if you don't. And we've seen those in modern contexts, right? We've seen the kind of, um, oh, what are, the, what are those enchantments and creatures that if you play a spell under a certain mana cost, you just get zapped, you know? like. Oh, yeah. So the, uh, I was just thinking of Harsh Mentor, but that's not one of the spell ones. Um, the there was the one that's renowned the... for... Yeah, the Berserker scab clan. And then there was the spell version of that that was it seen play for a while in, in older formats. What was that one? Yeah, the the pyrostatic, pyrostatic pillar. pillar, right? I remember when that came out. Boy, that yeah. was <laughs> that was a discussion point for a long, long time. But but mm-hmm. pyrostatic pillar and mana barbs are kind of in that range of menacing. Mm-hmm. You know, th- th- you can't you can't get too down in life. You know, you've got to do you got to get. You gotta get that working. You can't dirtle around with the mana barbs, <laughs> right? Same thing with Ankh of Mishra. True. I just think this card is very powerful. It's just four mana. It's just like I think one mana too much to really be dangerous. If this had even been three, I think you would have. This would be much more painful because 
I mean, at four mana, it's just very pricey. I understand why they wanted <laughs> to put it four because if I tap five mana on turn four after you played this, right? My, I'm, I'm rather if I tap five mana on turn five after you, you've just played this, I'm getting losing a, a quarter of my life. You know, that's it's yeah. that's a lot, and it's a lot. But I think they should have just pushed it just a little bit further on this. Up, ramped it up just a little bit because otherwise this could be very, very useful. Well, I think the subsequent Punisher kind of cards that you alluded to have demonstrated that you can afford to push the cost of these down a little bit and it's it's still okay. It's just that interaction with spells and permanents is far more diverse and reliable these days than it was in Alpha. But I, want, I wanted to, you to speak to the reprint history of this, but before you do... The uh, mm-hmm. gamma version is funny. It says <laughs> it says each point of mana used does one life damage to the user. That's a subtly and yes. powerfully different yes. card. Yeah. <laughs> For one, it hits other sources of mana, artifacts and creatures. Yeah. Wow. Makes channel cost twice as much life. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I'm obviously the language would need to be. Um, would need to be updated a bit and would have been kind of a disaster if they'd really tried to print that in alpha, I guess. I mean, this is a very simplistic, but it's almost a layperson's language. Granted, they were willing to do that in alpha, but I, I'm i almost of the opinion that I would rather have seen this version. I'm not almost. I am of the opinion. Of the, <laughs> That's why I put it out. The, the effect it would have had on Moxon would have been yes. great. And then if they had made it more aggressively costed, it, I mean, I think it'd be interesting to see them print this today. You mean uh, the the gamma type yeah, version for some sort of constructed yeah. magic to see if it has an effect? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it is cool. Uh, you you asked about the reprint history, Alpha Beta Unlimited revised in fourth and fifth and sixth, so it went all the way up to sixth edition. A break for a couple of sets until M10, or sorry, until tenth edition, and then M10, and then M12, and then not again. So it's got that kind of early staple feel. It didn't make it into any of the other pseudo core sets. Ice Age, Tempest, Mirage, etc. But it was in the numbered sets all the way up till 6th edition and then a few more times in the early years. So this is another one of those cards that uh, R&D just felt was a staple in red from the core set standpoint. I personally, I remember a couple of people casting this against me in my youth, in the revised days. Really? And I remember thinking, gosh, that's annoying. <laughs> and I'm, I almost certainly lost to it. I don't have a strong memory of it, but there's, it's, it's, got, this is just the sort of card I almost certainly lost to as a kid. But not after 1994 do I remember ever encountering this card in any context. I'm yeah. genuinely surprised that, as you observed about the power level, I'm, as this card got less and less powerful over the years, I'm surprised it made it past fourth edition or yeah. revised even. Yeah, it's, it's not it's, any good. Yeah, it's not, and it, I think it has everything to do with the mana cost, frankly. You could say yeah, that about agreed. a lot of cards, but I think it's, it, I think the, the <laughs> dynamic, the, the way in which the game unfolds, I mean, by turn four, you're already halfway through a game. So the potential for this to do, you know, the, the most amount of damage, yeah. it really does diminish at that point. It is it, a much better, well, sorry, just, go ahead. I was just going to observe that if this was costed at two, I have a feeling we'd all have a lot of painful memories of this card. <laughs> totally agree. <laughs> Can't deny that. I would like to compare this card, going back a couple of cards, to Life Tap. This card is not a color hoser, you know, specifically by any stretch. In fact, it's symmetrical. It hurts the, the caster as well. But I would argue that um, 
because of the way colors match up against one another, this card, you could make a case for this being an anti-blue card because blue is the color of the five that wants to sit back the most, right? And control and control the game. Play spells and later. this card... And play spells later, yeah. This card punishes you for having the slower long game more than anything else. It preys but, on blue's you know weaknesses and approaches to a game, and it it plays to red's strengths. But I don't think it. I don't. Well, red has a lot of the X spells. I don't think this is better at it it hurting blue than power surge. I think power surge. No, is more... I I don't. I don't think it is. I think power surge is more uh, powerful, so to speak. I would agree with you there. But at the same time, power surge is also doesn't doesn't say blue on it anywhere, right? Yeah. I think you you propose to review these cards kind of as a dyad, and I'm just pointing out that both of them are you can mistake them for anti-blue hosers, in my opinion, partially because they just punish nope. any color or deck that's trying to get to the long. I think game. that's patently obvious in the case of so part of in the case of power surge. I mean, <laughs> part of what this demonstrates is that you can have a card that has an effect, and the effects have mm-hmm. disparate effect impacts across the color pie. Right, Power Surge clearly is better against blue heavy decks. Granted. And so, you know, Granted. something that looks superficially neutral actually has a disparate impact is really important to recognize about Magic because things are not evenly mm-hmm. meted out, right? Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think mm-hmm. that Banna Barbs is quite as strong anti-blue as you're suggesting, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah, that's fair. It isn't quite as strong. And the simple truth, that it, the simple fact that it's... Uh... Symmetrical undermines my point a little bit, yeah. But I would argue that of the you know, if red was pairing playing against blue, red's the one that could afford to play under a mana barbs and expect to win more possibly. So than blue. You know where you where else this is pretty brutal against? It's pretty brutal against the mono black decks with pump knights, things of that nature. <laughs> yeah, that's fair too. And obviously, red is just good against things like necropotence and lich, yeah. just on face value. But that's neither here nor there. So is there anything else you want to say about Power Surge then? I mean, we kind of covered well, power it. Sur- yeah, the, the thing I-, I want to say about Power Surge is well, we already mentioned how it was completely neutered by by the M10 mm. rules change that got rid of Mana Burn. Um, um, no, actually. Is there anything you'd like to say about it? Just a couple things. One, it didn't last as long as uh, Mana Barbs did. It was only up until 4th edition, which I find interesting because, as you've observed, I think Power Surge is actually the superior card and I'm a little surprised it didn't last as long, but I have a feeling it was probably bucketed as more of a color yeah, hoser than, a than Mana Barbs was, and probably got the chop because of that. And the other thing I want to point out is this language in the alpha version. Let me read again. Before untapping lands at the start of the turn, each player takes one damage for each land he or she controls, but did not tap during the previous turn. <laughs> now, that means that you're meant to have tra- you meant to track... Yeah. Whether or not you tapped lands during the previous time turn. Walk. Yeah, and so right, exactly. That's the example I was just going to use. If you cast time walk on your turn, you're meant to take damage because your turn was the previous turn. Whoops. I, I don't know why the previous turn language is on here, unless it was just kind of a, a layperson's reading and, and didn't really get critically thought about. Also, there's the notion of the fact that this ability happens before untapping. Yeah. Yeah, and as such, you don't get the luxury of your mana to do things like play healing salve or, or guardian COP angel Red. or something. Yeah, um, which is weird and and doesn't work under the, the rules. The gamma today. version of power surge says each player loses one life for each untapped land at the start of their turn. That's such a simpler yeah. implita- implementation. Why didn't they go with that? 
Instead, they use this language of the, the lands that you control that you did not tap during the previous turn. Why don't just call it an untapped yeah. land? I mean, yeah. come on. That's weird. They're working too hard on this <laughs> Power Surge Alpha wording. Who knows? <laughs> well, all right. Let's move on to some, some other, and I would argue, better mana cards. The next one is Mana Flare. So, for 2R, you get an enchantment that says whenever either player taps land for mana, comma, each land produces one extra mana of the appropriate type. <laughs> the word appropriate is yeah. doing a lot of work there. The same, you mean? <laughs> yeah. No, no, you should have tapped it for yeah, this. Exactly. You should have tapped your tundra for blue. Let me make a blue mana. That was far more appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> It's a little bit of juice, a uh, little bit of uh, floral spasm action oh, here. <laughs> Mana flare, Mana flare. Which uh, which color should I have tapped this land for? Um, <laughs> this card is awesome. Uh, obviously, plays into Red's X spell components and Big fire time. breathing components in Alpha. Yeah, so there's just a lot of of tactical uh, synergy here with Red in Alpha. And I know many, many players in the early days of my experience with the game saw Mana Flare and saw Fireball and said, well, that's what I'm doing. And so I played against a lot of Mana Flare, Dragon Whelp, Shivan, Fireball decks when I was young. Lots of them. This is a big time fun card. I almost regret that they printed this in rare because uncommon, it just would have been so much more accessible. So a couple things to say. Number one is this card has lost a little bit of the bite that we just referred to, which was that you know, with, with Mana Burn, in a Mana Burn format, this has a little bit more of a, you know, if you're not going all in and you're just creating some partial mana, you're going to be taking Burn here or there. But the main thing yeah. is, this is, there's two of these effects. There's Gauntlet of Might, which we talked about, and there's this. Gauntlet of Might only applies to mountains. This applies to everything. So as soon as someone plays this, everyone is doubling up on their land, their mana from lands. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's interesting about this card, Kevin, is that Unfortunately, for the player of this, it's the opponent that gets the really, to really flex, flex first, right? And get the benefit of the full usage. (laughs) So you really have to build a deck around Mana Flare. And then if you don't get the Mana Flare, then you can't, I don't know, it's hard to, it's hard to, to execute your game plan. Yeah, absolutely. At the same time, you know, Richard Garfield didn't shy away from symmetrical effects that, that benefit both players given the presence of this and howling mine and wheel of fortune (laughs) and time twister i mean there's there's a fair number of powerful yet symmetrical effects in alpha i agree with you completely the i was just thinking about when you're talking about the fact that this you have to put this card in the context of mana burn to really appreciate it i was just reminded steve we haven't we've mentioned mana burn a couple of times in this review but did you have the experience of playing with Mana Burn and Mishra's Factories? Oh yeah, uh, a lot. Well, because old school, old school Mishra's Factory mana was burn, a reinstates Mana Burn in most cases. Oh, go ahead. Yes. Well, okay. So that's true. So you're doing that actively these days. When I was young, uh, it was kind of an epiphany for me the first time I, because <laughs> I was playing with Mana Burn for the first several years of my experience. It was an epiphany to me the first time I had a whole bunch of mana in my pool for whatever mana reason drain. and. <laughs> and yeah, or something, or mana flare, and then went to like pass the turn, and my opponent would say, "Oh, you got to take mana burn," and I thought, "Oh, I'll just activate this Mishra's factory." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, and then it was like that was just one of those moments, like you know, Richard Garfield intended the cards As to have sink. these these emergent in, yeah interactions, and 
I don't think, I mean, who knows when they were designing Mishra's factory, whether or not they viewed it as an out to mana burn. I don't know. Someone must have said it in design. But the point of the matter is it was just a, a real light bulb moment for me as a young player the first time I got to do that. And then it forever it, it colored the the value of Mishra's factory. And soon I was putting Mishra's factory. in all my <laughs> Well, that was probably a good thing. Anyway, <laughs> Mishra's factory is so good. <laughs> You're, that's a really good point. No, I wasn't thinking about how good Mishra's factory was. I was thinking, I don't want to burn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, you know, something gained, something lost, you know, with, with mana burn. Um, right. And it, it's hard to recalibrate and calculate the, the gains against the losses. Mana flare though. Um, Boy, this art is really striking. I mean, in especially in the, with I've the black ordered version of it. I mean, I think the revised oh, arts, unfortunately, yeah. are just so dr- diluted and drained of their color. <laughs> but this one in yeah, particular, really because unshamed. the color, the color is so. Um, I mean, it's so color sensitive. I think the art here to really see because it's it's really about kind of the spectrum of of, of light around. What is this like a some sort of face or something? I, I can't. I was going to ask you exactly that about what you made of the face. Do you think the face is a character or creature? Do you think it's an object? Yeah. Do you think it's a deity? I think it's an object. I some I sometimes read it as deity. Could be. I mean, objects and deities are often frequently the same, right? That that one is rep- yeah. symbolic of the deity. Um, yeah. It could be either, but it just seems like the different ways to look at this card. I mean, it just it almost looks like it was rendered on a computer. It's so. Brilliant. Now, you obviously know 1992, you know, Mac is going to create art this, this <laughs> vivid and vibrant, but it's, it's phenomenal. I mean, phenomenal art in just the sense that it, it just does not seem dated whatsoever. It's kind of got like these energy zigs and zags in the middle of the, the rays. It's got, I mean, depending on yeah. the angle you look at it, it can look more golden and the background can become more uh, enrich, and if you, in other angles, I mean, it does have a, it's almost a lens flare. Other angles, the rays themselves are more vivid. <laughs> it's amazing. It's actually amazing what they were able to do with it. It is really a shame that a lot of players encountered this card in the early and mid 90s in either revised or fourth edition, which are the two worst renditions oh. of this and many other cards. Because I'm right there with you. The card has way more depth and texture when you look at the more saturated versions of either Alpha and Beta Unlimited or some of the more obscure printings like Summer or admittedly 5th edition has a little bit more saturation. Yeah, yeah. if you're going to study this card, study one of those versions where the art's not washed out. Yeah, big time fan of Mana Flare. We should note the the rest in peace Chris Rush. This is another great Chris Rush piece of many. And I, I mean, I've seen this played in, in plenty in com- competitive magic. Certainly, it's one of the, you know the one of the fun things you can do in a ramp deck. Um, I've seen it played in Alpha League. I've seen it played in Old School. I've seen it played in back in Historical Type One, um, all over the place. Mm-hmm. I don't recall this ever being like a Pro Tour Grand Prix card. How far was this reprint carried, Kevin? Just a moment. The last paper printing was fifth edition, unfortunately. Wow. It got a couple of online printings after that. Why would they yeah, take this, this card hasn't been printed take in this, ages? This is, seems like the that's baffling to me. This seems like the kind of card that if you want people to build interesting decks and have fun with magic in a casual sense, you would put this in the card pool. Far more than yes. mana barbs, which outlived this by several sets. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Yeah. Completely agree. I don't get it either. This card's I mean, way this card awesome. is like a card that you you put it into a multiplayer deck, no one wants to take out take you out of the game. 
right? <laughs> it's like everyone's happier there. Group hug. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> which is which is the essence of magic in a, in a sense, right? I mean, you want you bring people together. Um, in in many contexts, yeah. yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's funny. I don't see a lot of mana flares in EDH anymore. Um, there was a time when I did, and you're not wrong about the effect that it has. That's interesting. I, the, the mana flares, because of magic has pushed so much more spiky in the last several years and several sets, uh, mana flares are rarely uh, symmetrical anymore. Yeah. There's still lots of mana doublers, but they usually only apply to the caster. All right, let's move on to one that I personally have a lot of affinity for, for obscure reasons. And this is mana short. So mana short is a weird one (laughs) to you it's an instant which the fact that it's an instant we can talk about till the cows come home all opponents lands are tapped and opponents mana pool is emptied it's actually not a bad wording um it doesn't say that it actively taps them it just says they are tapped so it's got kind of a strangely passive wording (laughs) (laughs) whereas the current oracle text simply says tap all lands target player controls note that it says player not opponent and that wow. player loses all unspent mana. Wow. I have no idea why you're able to mana short yourself in the yes. Oracle wording. That seems pretty indefensible to me. Um, and it's noteworthy that the Alpha wording uh, still assumes only two-player games. So it's opponents with an apostrophe S, which means it's not, you know, according to a strict textual reading, not meant to apply to all your opponents oh in a multiplayer God. game. <laughs> you're blowing my mind with all um, these textual s- elements, syntactical. God. <laughs> so I have no idea why the or this is another one of those completely indefensible yeah. oracle wordings in my someone, opinion. There's just no reading of the Mark alpha Gottlieb. card. That, no, I know he's not the <laughs> rules manager anymore, but whoever the rules manager is, right? Um, I, I tell you, Steve, it's Eli Schifrin. <laughs> Go ahead. The, yeah, the, in my opinion, there's more to love about this card than I think the average player will ever really truly agree with me on. So. I think my opinion on this card is maybe higher. I might be in the That's 1% of appreciation of this card. Concept. Go ahead, unpack this. Um, one of the reasons why I love Mana Short is because I used to play Stasis uh. a lot. And I brewed a lot of casual Stasis decks, and I know I was, I was that person uh, in some of my mid to late teens. And then I played Stasis in competitive formats even. I played Squandered Stasis in uh, PTQs, and I was not good at it, don't get me wrong, but it was my pet deck for a couple of years. And in, even in extended PTQs in the late 90s, I was rocking one mana short in some builds of the deck. And it was just so incredibly yeah. fun to mana short people and have them pick up the card and read it and ask what the <laughs> heck was going on. <laughs> because it's so delightfully obscure. Yeah. The art is so delightfully devoid it's... of context and yet beautiful, right? And the card is also enigmatic in the in its printings, like the Alpha, Beta, Unlimited, Revised ones look so dramatically different. It's one of those cards that has completely recolored in Beta from Alpha. And the wording changed completely, even from Alpha to Beta, which is weird. And it's just, the card is so cool <laughs> in all of the different levers <laughs> that we are reviewing cards on. Like, it has something, yeah, I just feel like I have something to say on every uh, access about this card. And yet, no one ever plays this well, card. It was printed in seventh edition for Pete's sake. No one ever plays well, this card. I have I have something I'm going to say that I think you will appreciate. In in the era Please. of the emoji, this card is referred in alpha circles as the rose. So it and all you have to nice. do is just, you know, the rose emoji. Um This I like card that. is I, I number one, this card did see a lot of play. I don't think know if you knew this, maybe you didn't, but this card was in the deck sideboard many times. 
and the official version of the deck by ah, Ryan Weissman as a one-off. I did not remember that fact. Obviously, that's a, a part of Magic's early history that I have a lot of appreciation for, but wasn't active in. So yeah, that's cool I mean, to hear. obviously, and part of the reason for that it was good against the control mirror. It's great, in fact, the card in the control mirror, right? Mm-hmm. Short your opponent, mm-hmm. and then you untap and play disrupting scepter or whatever you want, mind twist. Um, the other thing is this is like shockingly close. I know they say everything's a time walk, but it actually is very close <laughs> to a time walk in an annoying way. You you met as you said, you manage short your opponent and your upkeep their upkeep, they're tapped down, they're very limited and constrained in what they can do the rest of the turn. Yes, they can play another land, yes mm-hmm. they can do attack you, but for many intents and purposes, you will have stymied anything they want to do for that turn. It's basically close to an Orum's chant or an abeyance in a sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They can still play the land and so on, but you've done it I mean, it's an Orum's chant in it's an abeyance in blue for that matter, which makes yeah. it even better. Yeah. Um and and yes, the art is effete. It's over refined. It's <laughs> right. It has no <laughs> obvious tangible bearing to anything that it actually does other than just some sort of um stylized image that you know can become a symbol like you you could have put this on life tap and it would mean yeah, just as much exactly. <laughs> no but i've played with this in my sideboard many times i put it when did i last play with this in the sideboard relatively recently i believe because i have a beautiful beta one of these and the beta one by the way is mm. one of the cards well actually why don't you read the beta text i'll let you do that okay so let me reread the alpha text yeah. just for a comparison Alpha says, all opponent's lands are tapped, and opponent's mana pool is emptied. Beta, by contrast, says, all opponent's lands are tapped, and opponent's mana pool is emptied. Opponent takes no damage from unspent mana. Hmm. Now, the unlimited version is the same as the beta one. But then when you when you get to revise, the revised version said all opponents' lands are tapped and opponents' mana pool is emptied. Opponent takes no damage from unspent mana. So it's just a reformatted, uh, visually reformatted one from the beta version. By the time you get to 6th edition, let me read the most recent printing. The 7th edition one says uh, tap all lands, target player controls, and empty his or her mana pool, which is, to my eyes, the same as the Oracle wording today. So why don't you talk, what about that difference between alpha and beta? Well, the is reason meaningful it, it's, you, it's not the text, but the cards between alpha and beta that were retemplated for some reason have a much richer mm-hmm. uh, coloration. And so the beta oh, mana short, like the beta icy manipulator and a handful, there's about what, 10 or so of those cards that were, re, mm-hmm. that were corrected. And the beta, the beta is super rich and colorful. And so I have a nice beta mana short. I do not have an alpha one, sadly, but. Um, it's gorgeous. The the colors are so oh, different yeah. that that because the art on the card is so so <laughs> oblique to the <laughs> function of the thing, I I find myself just evaluating the card as a piece of art just because it doesn't say anything to me otherwise. And I have to admit that I much prefer the the pink interpretation of the alpha. flower in alpha. Yeah. As opposed to the more purely rose. red, rose red yeah. version uh, in beta. Not as you, you've heard from me many times, I'm, I'm much more of a fan of alpha, or sorry, beta. I like the saturation, especially in the card frames. But I must admit, I would take the alpha art in the beta frame <laughs> if I could. Well, yeah, 
and even the stem and leaves are so I mean they look very rose like in beta and and are much mm-hmm. lighter in alpha as well. It, yeah. it's, it's remarkably and so. And the background being a gradient, yeah, the background oh, yeah. being a gradient because it's so the the contrast is so dialed up in beta, the background appears to take up much less of the card, so it feels like it alters the composition yeah. of the card no, too. No, it's true. Like the alpha version Changes feels like emphasis. a magic card. The beta version looks like a renaissance painting. I mean, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I agree. It's like a Caravaggio or something. Yeah. It's incredibly different. It, it's really wild. I love these couple, of th- these intense differences in the the coloration. Um, so, Steve, have you or do you play this card uh, recently? So all? it is in Alpha League. It's actually restricted because of how much it, like Time yes. Walk it is. Interesting. <laughs> it's restricted. Fascinating. <laughs> That's wild. And I don't own one. Yeah, so I, I don't think I've. I don't think I've. I don't think I've cast this card in this millennium. Oh, that's sad. That's but, sad. Uh, it, it kind of is, but I still, as you can hear, I still I just think, love it. I so think much. I put one. So here's where I've been playing Mana Short, and I haven't actually cast it yet. In old school 95, <laughs> because in a combo deck in old school, if you can play an old school, if you can play a combo deck in old school, like the Twiddle Vault deck or whatever, it's perfect. Because mm-hmm. all you want to do is just get the combo pieces in your hand, get your opponent to tap out on their end step, and then untap and go nuts. Because there's no force yeah. of will. There's Makes zero sense. force of will. So there's... So if they're tapped out, the road is clear. The road is clear. The only thing that can overcome it is like a lotus. Yeah. Well, this... Uh, we should we should have said before now that this art is done by one Damien Willich, and Damien did several cards in Alpha. This one... I mean, this is not the only one that I really enjoy, but we've already reviewed several of them. Some uh, previous noteworthy examples include uh, Control Magic and Circle of Protection Blue and Castle and Gaia's Liege. So we are gonna, we're going to get to a few more. Damien also did the Light Force, which we reviewed just a few minutes ago. Yeah, Damien's mostly got uh, uh, outdoors images. I was going to say landscapes, but uh, that's doing uh, hurricane and regrowth a little bit of a dis- disservice. But in general, Damien's got what... Uh, Looks like 15 cards in Alpha, and I pretty much enjoy every <laughs> single one of them. With the exception, I guess, of Chaos Lace. i uh not a, not a big fan of Chaos Lace, but we talked about the reasons for that. Anything else on oh, Mana Shorts? Beautiful card, and I, lo- I, just, I love that you have this personal experience with it that is reaffirmed yeah. by its general power in a variety of contexts. <laughs> I am. I have a renewed sadness that it is so difficult for people to experience this card in specifically its alpha yeah. and beta incarnation. Well, like ah, incarnation, no pun intended. <laughs> the uh, I even though the cards are really not playable in any formats other than old school right now, I really wish players who are playing in those formats could it's, experience the beauty <laughs> of the original. Printings. It's a, it's actually amazing, and I was just reflecting on this yesterday. How much vintage now goes around basically just pitching free spells? Um, there was mm-hmm. a guy, one of the kids in my area who was, who grinds a lot on vintage magic online. He shared a new Hollowvine deck he built that doesn't have Vengevine and he had Kravik and Horror <laughs> in there. And he had, he had four, wow. he had five gold cards in there that were basically exclusively there to pitch. And he, <laughs> I mean, he had, um, like wild yeah, cards. They were like wild cards. Exactly right. They were, he uses them with, uh, you know, force of vigor. He had what's the? Um, he had uh, a black pitch spell. I don't remember. It was unmask. 
It was just there's so many pitch spells now, and you know, with force of negation and force of vigor, and and there's even more. Mm-hmm. There was um oh god, what was it? I was looking at his deck yesterday, but it's just there. Contag- contagion or unmask or oh, it was a sickening sh- two sickening shoals in there. <laughs> oh, there you go. And shoal, and yeah. also he had one of the new uh, black wraths. That's like if your opponent didn't play something, you know, this turn you can wrath. You know what I'm talking about? No, the 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 force, the most recent force cycle, the black one was destroy all the creatures that entered the battlefield this turn. He had had that. Yeah, I I forgot the name of it, but yeah, it's just incredible, just how many there are. I mean, so mana short isn't even you can't even envision it in a contemporary context, but in an environment in which (laughs) there's no pitch spells, well, yeah, yeah, that's a good point, and that's a shame. Uh, There could be there could come a point where uh, where the average game of vintage involves actually producing very little yep. mana like it does for hollow vine. Yep. Uh, all right. So I think we should graduate to our fourth consecutive mana card <laughs> and one that is undoubtedly the most powerful of the group. This is mana vault for a single generic mana. You get a mono artifact that says tap to add three colorless mana to your mana pool. Mana vault doesn't untap normally during untap phase to untap it. You must pay four mana. If Mana Vault remains tapped during upkeep, it does one damage to you. Tapping this artifact can be played as an interrupt. Well, we've already drained, I think, pretty thoroughly the topic of the contextual tapping and untapping language with respect to Time Vault and some other things. Even though we haven't reviewed Time Vault yet, we've, we've already kind of talked about that issue a lot. Mana Vault, from a vintage context, kind of needs no introduction. It's been restricted for a long time. You can, I'm sure, tell us when. And it's rightfully so, especially in the modern era of paradoxical outcome and many other things. Um, where to begin on Mana Vault, Steve? Well, why don't you begin by telling me what your experiences with it are, and then I'll talk about it in the historical context. Well, this falls under the heading of things I did not appreciate very well as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> it being part of Revised, I had a few. And I I remember thinking, on a number of occasions when I was building decks and looking at the thing, I remember thinking, well, I guess I could... I guess I could fireball for a couple of more, uh, but then I'm just going to take damage for the rest of the game. I guess I could cast this Shivan on turn four, but then I'm just going to take damage for the rest of the game. I just kind of kind of ruled it out. Like I was still thinking, I wasn't thinking about winning quickly or, or, or sealing the deal quickly back then. I was just thinking, well, I acknowledge that this accelerates me, but I don't want to just sit and take damage then for the rest <laughs> of the time. So I mostly just didn't put it into my decks at all as a kid. I only really started to appreciate the card when I started playing Vintage, huh. basically. Well, yeah. so Mana Vault is one of those... There is There are several things that early Magic players didn't understand very well. One of them, of course, was the concept mm. of Mana Curves. The other was the second... The, the other was... The second is the concept of exactly how much mana you need in a deck, right? That people consistently played too few lands, (laughs) which is probably why land destruction was so... Not just the fact that there were so many good land destruction cards and effects, but that was part of the reason it was probably so good is because people were constantly mana screwed and there was no mulligans. (laughs) We covered that with Icequake pretty thoroughly. Not Icequake, but uh, Ice Storm, sorry. But the, the, the other thing that early Magic players simply did not appreciate or had wrong was they had what social psychologists call loss aversion, right? So it's like loss aversion is the concept oh, yeah. that in gam- you know, in gambling or whatever, that people fear losing more than they fear, than they, than they want to gain, right? That if you said, would you rather, you could flip a coin and you can gain, th- you know, gain, win $3 or lose $3, people 
are more afraid to lose $3 than gain $3. And so um, the, the concept of losing life, now the obvious exception was Juzum Jin. People didn't care about losing life that, it, you know, clearly they just <laughs> wanted to, and, and Serendipity just... The comparison was too much stacked in their right, favor in the case of Juzum. Right. But in the case of, of Mana Vault and Mana Crypt, it took a, a surprisingly long time for these cards to catch on. And I'll tell you when they caught on. So Mana Crypt became available in, what was it, 95 as a book promo? It basically saw almost no play until 1997, Kevin, and it took... So mm-hmm. it took the printing of Prosperity in Visions, was it, until people started playing with that card in Type 1. And, and basically mm-hmm. the Prosperity deck just used Mana Vault and Mana Crypt and the rest of the Acceleration. I can't remember whether they used Lion's Eye Diamond at the time or not, but they used the mana to just accelerate out huge Prosperities... And then they would play black visas on the opponent, and you could just keep, you know, prosperating into pros- more mana and prosperities. And that basically became the bare bones of the Academy deck, Kevin. And so it actually yep. wasn't until Telerian Academy's second or third, I think the third wave of restrictions around that archetype that Mana Vault and Mana Crypt were restricted. 1999. It's so incredible. In it really hindsight. is. And so, so that was there was a long time where you could play as many of these as you want. Now, there was an, also the Prosperity deck played with often Hercules Recalls so that it could, you know, play all these out, Hercules them back to the hand, you know, tap them, Hercules them back to the hand, tap the, uh, replay them, tap them again, much like uh, you do with um, Paradoxical Outcome, right, to play even larger Prosperities. Now, there were actually versions of the deck that I have found records of you know, Hercules Fireball from like 1994. Built not around Mana Crypt, of course, but Mana Vault. And um, yeah. so the same concept carries through. When Mana Vault was unrestricted in old school, I was scared. Because <laughs> I thought, my God, that seems like a very powerful card. Especially with Transmute Artifact. No kidding. Turns out yeah. it actually wasn't that big of a problem, to my surprise. Um, but yeah, you can do a lot of things with Mana Vault. You can Twiddle it, transmute, and just to be clear, you know, transmuting with Mana Vault means that you can get, you know, a lot of good things. <laughs> you can get a, I mean, because the... <laughs> there are, turns out there are a lot of good artifacts right. in old school. Well, because the, it taps for three mana, <laughs> and then you get the, the mana cost, so you can basically, mm-hmm. you know, get something that costs baseline four or more. I mean, four, mm-hmm. and then if you can pay more mana, you can get even more. Um, so you can get things like Sitting in a bottle, of course, you can get Mirror Universe, you can get Force Field, anyway, Jester's Cap, lots of things. Yeah. You can get Chaos Orb and activate it. Um, but it turns out it actually wasn't, uh, it wasn't too bad. And, and I, the other thing that concerned me about Banna Vault was that with unrestricted Mishra's workshops, you could just get c- consistent tubbies, right? Which is you just play Juggernaut, Suchi, Trike, Winter Orb, Icy Manipulator, Strip Mines, and that would be a very obnoxious deck, but it turns out that energy flux, without taxing effects, energy flux just wrecks that. Yeah. So Mana Vault is immensely powerful. Also, Mana Vault, we should say, probably one of the, in contemporary vintage, one of the best uses of Mana Vault, Kevin, <laughs> is with Tinker, and at least in the last 15 years, which is one <laughs> of the reasons, yeah, Mana Naturally. Vault has seen a lot of play. And we've seen plenty and plenty of uh, applications of that in when did we start playing Mana Vault in our blue decks, in our big blue decks, Kevin? Was it was it with 
just because of – I'm trying to remember. Like I think Control Slaver was probably – know what it was? It was Gifts and Control Slaver, right? That's when we started playing with Manimal. Yeah, I, yeah I, I was going to guess Control Slaver was the pivot point for us because – just because there's so much – there's just undeniable synergy. It was good with Welder. It was good at casting Mind Slaver. It was good with Thirst. We, I don't remember if that was the real linchpin, but um, we must have been doing it then, and that seems like the watershed moment. Yeah, I think also with gifts because with gifts ungiven, it's just so good at casting. Yeah, it's gifts, so good yeah. at casting gifts, and then you know the gifts usually found tinker, so being tapped really wasn't a problem. Also, you could just get the big old remember the get the big mana gifts, so you get like mana vault, mm-hmm. black lotus, <laughs> mana crypt, and like a mox, and then you basically you actually net, yeah. it's it's breaking even, I think, because no matter what they give you, you get four, right? Yeah. And you could do that if you had Yogg Will in yeah. your hand already. Yeah, and then the next gifts, the Among next other gifts things. you used was gifts yeah. for like recoup and Yogg Will. So I think that's I think it was gifts and Control Slaver. Yes, Control Slaver obviously very good in Control Slaver with welders and so on. But I think it was gifts yeah. where it became kind of really mainstream. And then it's it came back with Paradoxical Outcome, of course, because it's, it's fantastic with PO for the, basically the same reason. <laughs> yep, completely. Yeah, the. Uh... It seems foolish now in hindsight that we ever had a period of multiple years where you had unrestricted mana vaults and mana crypts. Oh, yeah. Like, what were we doing with our lives? Yeah. But uh, so once we got past those points, the card has become, in my opinion, one of the more interesting, yet still broken, uh, role-playing restricted cards. Because while it is fairly obvious the synergy with PO is undeniable and it'd be foolish to play without it, there have been many other decks along the spectrum of artifact-based big blue type decks, right? Where Mana Vault was a debatable inclusion. And I really enjoy that aspect of it from a deck construction standpoint. I'm not saying the decision was always was was always fraught or anything. Sometimes it was just right or wrong. But the point is, is it's not like every vintage blue deck has a Mana Vault in it. And there are good reasons is for this that. Card, that's true. Does this card played in um, EDH? Is it legal? It's legal and yeah, it's played. It's it's actually really really good. It's it's you know there's EDH being a, a, a higher life total format means that the drawback is is mitigated a little bit and it's one of the better ways to actually play a five or six mana commander with a reasonable pace in a game. So it's 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 reasonably popular reasonably popular in EDH. Not to mention just ramping you up to seven <laughs> mana spells, which are which are frequently played in EDH. I personally don't have it in too many decks uh, just because I don't feel the need to be that fast. I'm not playing a competitive format. But there are a couple of more and more expensive commanders where I either have reliable ways to get rid of it, like I do have one deck that has Goblin Welder in it, and or getting the commander out is just so critical to the game plan. So I only have, I think, two, maybe three out of a dozen EDH decks that have it. That's kind of surprising thought that this would see more play well a a big part of my answer is that i don't play competitive edh i know that this card is played far more often in true cedh decks because it's just undeniably explosive um and one of the things i love about mana vault is this is actually i don't know if this is gosh i haven't been paying attention well enough to the to the uma cards how many we've been reviewing in alpha that have been in uma but um when this card is so, uh, th- let me talk about the lineage. Uh, Alpha Beta Unlimited, and then Revised, and then Fifth Edition. Then there's a huge gap. So after Fifth Edition, 
the card was next printed in paper as a uh, masterpiece, and those are you know chase rares uh, inserts, right? And then it was reprinted with a new art in UMA, uh, Ultimate Masters. And of note is that the UMA was one of the first sets to have the extended art treatment for cards. And so you've got this really cool UMA uh, Man of Art, uh, sorry, Man of Alt box topper with the extended art. And, uh, and in my opinion, a really compelling image with lots of nice blues and greens in it. That there's not many cards in Alpha that have lived all the way to get like a box topper extended art <laughs> alternate art treatment. It's not the original art, which I very much love, but uh, it's just a noteworthy progression for reprints for an Alpha card, especially since prior to that the last printing was fifth edition. So like in terms of booster products where you could actually open this card at a, a particular rarity, from fifth edition to Ultimate Masters is a pretty big stretch to have nothing in between really. It's also worth noting that this card, while it doesn't have the uh, dramatic color change from Alpha to Beta, like, for example, Mana Short that we just talked about, has kind of an interesting difference between Alpha and Beta. The Alpha version is actually uh, it, it's dimmer, and as such, the, the detail in the, the, the darks are darker in it, but it's not, but it loses actually a little bit of detail, in my opinion. I actually like the fact, and this is a little counter to my normal opinion of it, I really kind of like the fact that the beta version is a little bit lighter. Just that it much, is. but it seems like yeah. somebody turned on a light in the room. What is going on what is, <laughs> between I mean, the alpha so and beta version? This is incredible art. I mean, the rendering, it it's, looks like a, an oil painting with like an inside of an alien hive. And with the fur. Yeah, Mark Tadine. Phenomenal. Um, but Kevin, so what is going on? I mean, clearly this cube is like pulling the chains up into place the chains are holding it yeah. from like ele- from uh levitating like too far up so what's going on is the vault holding mana that's being drawn <laughs> from the ground that's a fantastic question i don't truly know the answer I'll there's speculate. no flavor text to fall back <laughs> on here yeah my speculation is that this whole room is actually the mana vault and that this cube is has some kind of powerful energy that, as you put it, is interacting with the the well in the floor, and they are, you know, the the chains are holding it in place such that the the owner and the caster of this mana vault can meet out the mana over time. But I really don't know if there's any much if there's much more mechanical inference we can read from this art. It's just meant to be an object of power, in my estimation. It's really cool to study. I would love to see a larger version of this. Yeah, unfortunately, I I don't know this to be a fact, but most of, if not all, of the alpha arts from this era were were yeah. fairly small paintings. I've seen a lot right? of them in person. Six by yeah, eight, some. Them, yeah. yeah, I don't recall having ever seen uh, an image of the Mana Vault original, but I'm I'm sure it's a spectacular piece. But it, it's probably I remember not very large. when we got these signed from Mark Tadine. We met him, I think, at it was in Columbus, I believe. It was at an Origins. I. That's right. The first time I got a Man of Vault signed was definitely at yeah. Origins, and I had him um, change the cube into a board cube. It's huh. <laughs> great. Yeah, I should probably get a few more Man of Vault signed Kevin, by him. How uh, many do you have? I think I, I think I only have. Well, I only have one beta. Uh, I only have one super nice one, but then I have a couple I more revised ones from one back alpha in the day. And I don't have a lot. Revised one. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not suggesting that I go hog wild and buy another alpha or beta one because they're super expensive. But at the same time. You know, I could be excused to get another revised one or two. I think I think that this card. I remember it being used as as the solution in some of our some of my gifts, the puzzling 
articles back in a while uh-huh. ago. They were cool because it was usually the solution you never thought of, right? It's like gifts for Mana Vault. Oh, of course, because then I can, you know, because then <laughs> I can, you know, Hercules recall it back, cast gifts again. You know, no, I don't know. Cast Yogmoss will, and yeah, then usually yeah. go to town. Cool card. Stay tuned for more thrilling limited edition adventures in the next part of our episode 100 spectacular on so many insane plays. Ha, 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 ha.